This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this spring. You can go to officialjackcar.com right now and check out the cover reveal video. My guest today, Kevin Owens. Kevin has a very unique story. Grew up in Ireland, joined the Irish military, Irish special operations, then did some contracting, then to the United States, into the U.S. Army, U.S. special operations, and now runs courses for fieldcraft survival at their North Carolina operation. Now, without further ado, Kevin Owens. Let's kick it off. Awesome. Dude, thanks for making the trek. Yeah. And, uh, a little snowy out there. A little bit. And little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mike Glover did not let you know. He did not. It's interesting because when he came up here before the snow, he asked if his car could make it, his, yeah. uh, his little port yeah. racing Porsche rally thing, yeah. and, which is awesome. And I uh, said, yeah, I can make it today. Everything's plowed and mm. you know, melted or whatever else. Mm. Uh, but it's interesting that he didn't pass any of that intel on you. He did not you. share that. So hmm. I, when I landed, I, I, it wasn't snowing, obviously, in, in uh, Salt Lake City, but we're higher elevation here. And, uh, yeah, they gave me a, a Dodge Charger. I got a bit size, <laughs> and they upgraded me. And so I said, cool, so... Coming up that hill, a little interesting, a little, <laughs> little bit of backsliding, had to take a run in a couple of hills, yep. but I made it. Yeah, I might not make it down, but I made it up. It's so funny because most people I would for sure make make uh, make a point to reach out and say, hey, make sure you have four-wheel drive or, mm. or chains or something. And for you, I was like... I don't need to tell. I don't need to tell him. He's going to be prepared for every single oh, contingency. No. And then I'm coming back up the hill, and my yeah. my and my car has the snow tires on it, so it's got the spikes on the wheels yeah. uh, or on the tires. I mean, and uh, I come up and I'm like, "Who is up here with this Dodge Charger <laughs> thing? That's yeah. like taking the wrong turn." I'm like, "I guess they're you know visiting. They're from, they're visiting from out of town." That uh, idiot in the two wheel drive vehicle works for a preparedness company. Yeah, and I looked as I went by, and I like you know I couldn't quite make out who was in there, and then uh, sure enough. Yeah, yeah. I was like, no way. Thanks for embarrassing me there, Jack. I appreciate it. Uh, It's more for Mike, you know, sharing intel. I know, Spreading situational awareness, you know, up and down the chain. I like to keep it challenging. So, (laughs) hey, anybody can get up here in four-wheel drive. It's good to know, actually, that that you made it up here in the two-wheel drive. If if it wasn't for a couple of bear patches. Yeah. Where I could get traction with one wheel, yeah. I wouldn't have made it. Like yeah, there's that. a couple spots yeah. on either side of the road. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah, yeah. And they were up here today uh, making it a little wider because it yeah. was last few days it was just plowed on yeah. the road up here, just the snow yeah. on either you side. The, the walls of snow on both sides. That are, I was like, how many inches of yeah, snow do you get here? I have no idea right now. Yeah. I just know yeah. that I've been shovel. I'm shoveling it, and my wife is in the tractor, so she takes care of the tractor portion. Mm-hmm. And last year we had this little tiny tractor. I mean, it was small. And the first snow of the season, and I meant to get one, but I've been too busy. Yeah. And the first snow of the season, my wife called down and was like, hey, do you have any you know, bigger tractors? And luckily, someone had ordered one, yeah. like exactly what we wanted, yeah. and then never picked it up. Yeah. And so they said, you know, crazy. A couple hours ago, we decided to sell this one. They were holding it for someone, but they, mm. they've been holding it for months, and mm-hmm. it seems to have disappeared. So mm. we got one, and I can imagine being up here without that. Yeah. This, it's, so, this snow. it's so part of life here. You know, if it, if it sprinkles snow in North Carolina— the whole yeah. state shuts down. Uh-huh. They close Fort Bragg. All the schools <laughs> close. Yeah. Um, they just don't have the mechanism to deal with it. Yeah. But it's beautiful up here. It really is. Yeah, I know. We love it up here. Um, you know, I was in Dallas once when it, everything froze, and I was flying in, actually going to uh, on a hunt with my my daughter, 
and it was a few years ago and the whole city froze and man, it, it froze. Like yeah. everybody was, it was dead stop traffic. All of Dallas shut down. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting if you're not prepared for yeah. it, um, how it can really, uh, impact yeah. you more so mm -hmm. than places where it's just normal. Yeah. But you know, just, 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 life, just yeah. be ready. Mm -hmm. Just be ready. Yeah. But, uh, speaking of being ready, man, but I'm so fired up to bring to, that you're here <laughs> because, uh, right when, when, uh, like Fieldcraft moved out here from Arizona, up to, to Utah, just a town over in Heber. Um, when I went over there, you were getting ready to go. You were packing up. I was. So we yeah. kind of like, we crossed mm -hmm. paths briefly. You mm -hmm. were packing up to head out to, to North Carolina yep. and uh, start operations out there. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but so, so anyway, so we haven't been able to sit down together yeah. because of that, because mm -hmm. you were on the other side of the, mm -hmm. the country. But man, you have had quite the journey. <laughs> like, it's insane. Like, the first time I heard about you, I'm like, wait, he's what? Like, what's this accent? And Wait, yeah. what has he done? And I see some of these, the, some of the photos. I'm like, what year is this? Like, does he travel back in time? <laughs> like, how how old is this guy? Yeah. Like, how could he have done all these things? It's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, man, so growing up, so where did you where did you grow up? And then uh, we talked a little bit before. We should have been recording our conversation for the last couple hours. Mm -hmm. But uh, Princess Gate and seeing mm -hmm. that video of uh, SAS storming the Iranian embassy, yeah. um, how that impacted you. But uh, what was growing up like for you? <laughs> Growing up was awesome, but it, it uh, so I grew up in Ireland. I grew up a couple of miles a mile south of the, and I have this hybrid American Irish accent, mm. by the way, in case people are trying to figure. Like Irish <laughs> people think I sound like an American, really, and Americans think I sound okay. Irish, so I can't win. Um, and I've modified the way I, I speak over the years because I did a lot of teaching and I, I worked mm. in sniper school for special operations and all that. And uh, so you have to modify things. But it's funny, I did a podcast recently with an Irish guy. And my accent came back right away. Really? Yeah, it's funny. your podcast. Yeah, my podcast. Nice. Yeah, what's that one guy. called? Uh, it's just Kevin Owens' podcast. I couldn't think of a better name. Okay, hey, that's I'm good. Not real creative. No, that's good. That's good. Brand um, recognition. But I grew up in Ireland. I grew up a couple of miles south of the Northern Ireland border, midway between Dublin and Belfast, uh, on the east coast. Um, grew up big family, fourteen kids. Fourteen. Fourteen. Yeah, plus parents. So sixteen of us in, in a really small house. Uh, it was a three-bedroom house, but it was owned by the government. It was kind of government housing. And, uh, yeah, there was <laughs> the master bedroom. There was eight girls in there. And then the next size bedroom, there was six boys in there. It was like three bunk beds, right? It's one where you open the door, and you, you can only open it like a couple inches, Whoa. and you got to sneak in and close it. And then my parents had a room, and uh, eight girls, six boys. It, it, it But... You know, people look back and they're like, oh, my God, but that's life. And when you grow up that way, you don't know anything else, mm -hmm. right? So right. there's nothing um, weird about it. Right. And, and, you know, Irish Catholic family, there, there was a the kind of subdivision, the housing estate we, we lived in, there was 36 houses. And there was other families there with that many kids. Wow. There was families of 14, there was families of 12, there was families of 8. So there was always tons of kids to play with, right? All those, like, whole tribes your age, and like we all hung out, but it was, we didn't have, uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but you know, my mom was a super strong person, very organized, very capable. Mm -hmm. And we always paid our bills. We all got educated and none of us went to prison probably because the cops were really bad. Wow. Um, but, and you know, looking back in today's world, it would have been very hard and it would have been very, um, challenging. But back then it wasn't, right? It was more challenging, I think, for my mom, right? Yeah. Who, 
had to feed 14 kids and to 16 people and had no car. And she had to get, go on the bus to go into town to get groceries, right? Wow. And imagine getting groceries for that many people and going on a bus. And she used to take one or two of us with us to carry stuff. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah, we had no car, uh, black and white TV for a long time. And we were lucky because we were near the Northern Ireland border. So we picked up the BBC Mm. Ra- uh, news channel or okay. TV channel, yeah. right? Whereas the rest of Ireland didn't get that. They just got the the RTE, which is the the Irish broadcast thing. Um, so at least we got the BBC, so we yeah. can watch BBC programs. Excuse-, yeah. excuse me, we can watch BBC programs as well. But um, is this one channel, just BBC? Just one channel, yeah, yeah. And when you mean it was hard, to, it would be hard to grow up like that today. Is that because you mean because you would be aware? of how yeah. other people yeah. were growing well, looking, up or you'd be able to see that on your back, device. If, if people today had to grow up like that, they'd be like, but it's the same thing. And like, if we grew up back in the pioneer days, yeah. we'd be like, Oh my God. And we were talking about that earlier on yeah. about how just tough the pioneers were, were to, to move across this country in a wagon. Um, it with all kinds of danger and you know, you, you cut your hand and then you die of an infection, right? right? Or, or, another thousand ways you could die yeah um just just hard resilient people but i think every generation gets a little you know they change right they're, they they're not as resilient they're not as tough they're smarter they're more creative maybe um but it's it's, it's kind of weird to watch it yeah. evolve you know so it wasn't a bad childhood like we 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 uh i i I was always kind of a wild kid, especially in, in teen years. Used to break into places and steal stuff. It was more for the adrenaline yeah. than actually the swag because you're not stealing a lot out of the school. You know, you break into your school, what are you going to get? Pencils, you know? Um, it was more, I, I liked that adrenaline. I don't think uh. I knew it at the time. I think later on, I, I realized, and it was funny, I, when I worked at the sniper school, we were all sitting around one night. There's like four or five instructors sitting around one day waiting. You know how it is, you're... A lot of waiting in the army, and we all talked about our childhood, and it was all very similar. You know, breaking mm. into factories mm. and all that kind of thing. But I, I think it was that adrenaline right. stuff. We, we we used to break into pubs and steal booze. You know, really? Yeah. Were there a lot of pubs? Everything? Oh yeah, a lot of pubs. We stole the. Keg. How big was the town? Um, I, I grew up in the town uh, close by. It was a fairly big town, but I grew up in a seaside kind of resort. Okay. Um, fishing kind of village okay. type thing that was fairly small, but it was still uh, quite a few pubs there. Okay. We stole a keg of beer one time. Damn. And uh, I was like 14. And, you know, there's 90 pints of beer in a keg. A keg oh, and wow. that's a lot for a 14-year-old to pick up, right? So there was two of us. So we couldn't hardly move it. So we put it on a bike, on a bicycle on the bar. And we put a coat on it and a hat. There you go. And we were, I think we were drunk. See? We were pretending it was a person. Look at that. <laughs> Master criminals. Yeah. Oh, we didn't get caught. Adapting. I I Look at that. Know. That's awesome. Creative. Good right? training. Yeah. Good training, Good training. For, for later on. Good what did your training. parents do? Uh, my old man, my dad, he uh, he built houses. He was a bricklayer. Okay. But very early in my childhood, he dropped a brick on his foot and smashed his foot. And he was on disability. And he really never got back to work. He, he had some... Demons with alcohol, as uh, a lot of that older generation did, um, and he he uh, he struggled his whole life, and so we he basically was on welfare for a lot for a large portion of my. I, I almost don't remember when he worked. You know what I mean? Because I was very young when he stopped working. So um, it, it sounds harsh, but. My old man was was an inspiration to me in that I did not want to be that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I did not 
I wanted something better than what he had, right? Yeah. And I would want my kids to have something better than I had. So he inspired me and he always, because I grew up in that world, alcohol always scared me. And I don't drink now, but I did drink for years because it's, it's very much part of the culture in Ireland. And people can get offended by that if they want, but it is what it is. <laughs> uh, cultural stereotypes come from somewhere, generally. Um, but alcohol always scared me because I've seen what it can do to people. Yeah. And I've seen what it, how it can get a grip on people. And I did drink when I was younger. And, but it, 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 even when I was in the Irish Army and, and I, I, you know, I found myself drinking every weekend and, and there was times when I would pull it back because it always got to a point mm -hmm. where I'm like, this is too much and pull it right. back. And my kids have never seen me drink, drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. And it, it's almost like it skips a generation because I, sometimes I think they don't see what it can produce. Right. So maybe, but they're, they're, my kids are great, but um, the, it did it inspire me and keep me away from that. Mm -hmm. Even at a subconscious level when yeah. I was younger, I, I, it wasn't like, oh my God, I, you know, I, I can only drink this much. It wasn't very organized. It just yeah. always, it was always something that bothered me. Right. And, and uh, I, I didn't, I didn't let myself go down that rabbit hole. I just didn't. I'm, I'm not, I mean, I don't drink now, but I'm not, I never really was a big drinker. Yeah. Um, we were talking earlier on when I was a young teenager, I, I watched the Iranian embassy siege on BBC. And yeah. when the, the Iranian terrorists took over the Iranian embassy in Princess Gate in London, mm -hmm. And the siege went on for like a week. There's actually a great movie called Five Days or Five Days. Yeah, there's days. a couple of them. One was more recent. Yeah, um, yeah. So I saw that. that uh, one, yeah, I think it's called Five Days. But, you know, it dragged on and the negotiations went on and on and on. And eventually the British SAS stormed the embassy, right? Yeah. And Thatcher, who just come into power, she, uh, she wanted the cameras to film it. Mm -hmm. She wanted to show people. She was a big supporter of the SAS. She was, she was, she was very, the color of the iron lady, right? She went into, she went into uh, the Falklands like that. She did that. She let the hunger strikers die in Northern Ireland. Like she mm -hmm. was no, and she was hated in Ireland. Absolutely mm -hmm. hated. But Hence when the that, assassination attempts and, and, the, and the books about oh, it, fictional and real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, jump forward. I, when I was in special operations in Ireland years later, she came into Ireland for a summit uh -huh. on, uh, Northern Ireland and European community and stuff like that. And the Gaddafi had sent six shiploads of arms to the IRA. And uh, we can talk about this later, but the, um, in those arms shipments, there were surface air missiles. And they were so afraid that the IRA would shoot down her plane. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was there and her plane, her version of Air Force One came in, flew from England, landed in Dublin airport, taxied. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened. Waited, waited, waited. And about 30 minutes later, two Wessex helicopters flew across and landed. And she got out of one no. of the helicopters. It right. was a decoy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's how seriously they took it. But the IRA tried to kill her a, a few times. But um, but I watched that embassy, that rescue were done. And you see these black clad figures with the balaclavas and AP4, the, the pro masks and AP5s yeah. and just old school as hell. And yeah. I was like, oh, my God, that's... It wasn't like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. It was, that is so freaking cool. And it just appealed to me. And I think oh, yeah. there's there's that, a lot of young men have that draw. And you look at old pictures of Vietnam and um, 
you look at you know special operations and all that at a very very young age mm -hmm. and it, it's just a, a very very powerful draw um for for young men especially and i don't know it's very hard to explain mm -hmm. but you had it i had it a lot of people have it and i've run into young men or you know middle-aged men since who really wanted that life and went to pursue that life mm -hmm but had a physical thing, like they had a surgery or something as a young man, or they had something disqualifying. And that was taken from them. Mm -hmm. And now I ran into one uh, kind of younger guy in uh, Texas a couple of months ago, and he's a truck driver. And he listens to all the podcasts, and he, and he loves that whole culture and that whole life, mm -hmm. but he wasn't able to pursue it. Right. That would be hard. That'd that would be, tough. be difficult to deal with. Yeah. Um, when, when I was trying to go into the Irish army. I was waiting and waiting and waiting and I couldn't get in. They weren't recruiting. I was going to the French Foreign Legion. No Myself way. and a buddy of mine bought tickets for the boat. Like it's, it's a boat trip into France and down. And we we're going to go to the French Foreign Legion because we had that urge to have that life. And the Irish army at the time, it very rarely recruited, a very small army, defense force, internal security type, type stuff, you know. But um, it, it just so happened that it, it I got into the Irish army instead, right? Then years later, when I was out of the army, I was working in America and I had no green card and I, and I, I was going to go again. Really? And then fate stepped in again and stopped me. But um, it, it's funny how one decision early on in your life will pivot your life in a completely different direction and uh, you know, for better or worse, right? Yeah. Um, but, but growing up in Ireland, a big family, Went to school, did my thing, um, kind of grew up with a lot of anger issues, did a lot of fighting, part of the culture, right? It, it's just, <laughs> hey, uh, again, cultural stereotypes, punched a few people <laughs> in a bar in my time, uh -huh. usually the biggest guy in the bar. Yeah. Um, but I, I, at a certain point, I, I just, me and a buddy of mine, I, I, you know, I met him one day and I was like, do you want to go in the army? And he was like, yeah. And the only thing you knew about the army was, um, the Irish Army escorted cash. When when armored trucks would go around the banks picking up cash, uh, dropping off cash, they'd have a military escort because okay. of the IRA, because of the war up the road, not too far, right? A few miles, right? Yeah, like six miles north of where I grew up. I, I heard bombs go off sometimes. There was a bomb in my street as a kid. We were coming back. I was probably 10. We were coming back from school, and they had the whole street cordoned off. And I never found out what it was. I think it was probably a loyalist paramilitary group coming down south to bomb in this side because that happened too. Yeah. And But the car was abandoned in my street and had a car bomb on it, in it. And somebody found it and they cordoned off the whole street. And we came up and there was a, a, a blocking position. So we're kids. We just go into the fields and go in the back way and go into our house. Yeah. And my mom was still in the house cooking. She didn't even know. Yeah. And I found out, I talked about this. I think I might've told Blandy Stump about this. And then... My brother reached out to him and he said, do you know why she was in there? The cops told one of our neighbors to go around and alert everybody in the street. And he was fighting. He was having one of these neighbor fights with my father. Uh. So he purposely skipped our house and didn't tell us that no there's a car bomb outside. Yeah. And they said it was a massive car bomb. So we go in. My mom didn't know anything about it, but it got defused, you know. Um, there was one, there was a bomb... Uh, in a, you can look it up, Warren Point, 18 British soldiers, paratroopers were killed in this bomb. But I heard that bomb go off. I was hunting with my father and uh, it went up, boom. And he was like, that's a bomb in Northern Ireland. Like right off the bat, he pegged it. 
um, massive bomb. So that that's kind of how close we were. Yeah. And again, South Armagh is that how you say it? Uh, say it? South Armagh. South Armagh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, yeah, it it comes in. It's called Bandit Country. When you talked about the book, you interviewed mm-hmm. the, the yeah, author. Yeah, Toby Herndon. And, um, it was right on the border. Very lawless place, but very innovative. Um, active IRA active service unit there. A um, lot of like a massive bomb that was put off in London was built there. Uh, the Irish snipers that were operating were operating out of there. Um, v- very active part of, of the, because in any counterinsurgency and in any insurgency war, freedom fighter, whatever you want to call it, if you can jump across a border, mm-hmm. it's across sanctuary. the border, right? Mm-hmm. It's sanctuary. And that's the South was a sanctuary for the IRA. Mm-hmm. They just blow shit up and jump across the border. I heard a great story once. I don't know if I ever told this before, but... Um, there was a guy in the army with me in the infantry in Ireland and he was playing Gaelic football, which is like a hybrid between soccer and rugby, right? It, it's uh, He was playing Gaelic football out on the border, like right, like a mile from the border in South Armagh. And I mean, so close, you could see the British OPs up on the, on the hill and stuff like that. And he said they were out there and half the other team were missing. And the referee's looking, it's like 20 minutes, there's half the other team are missing, and then boom, they're about to call the match off, and a big explosion happened up the road, right? A few minutes later, a car comes screeching to a halt, like four guys jump out of the car, already dressed in the the, the uniform or whatever uh-huh. that they're playing in, and they run onto the field and start playing. Wow, <laughs> hey, yeah. Talk about intimidating the other team. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, crazy place, but... Uh, so I was like, hey, you want to go in the army? And we were like, eh, why not? And uh, you But you'd know, already seen Princess Gate. You'd seen, I, the, already seen the breaching, that. and I, I, which I is the just, greatest uh, SAS commercial you could ever really possibly get. Was. And HK commercial yes, at the same time. Yes, yes. I have a framed photo of that of the guys as they're entering with the MP5 right there. I do It's too. in the garage all framed yeah, up. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The MP5 is an iconic weapon. Oh, so great. Um, I carried one in Somalia later on and yeah. I, I threw it away because it wouldn't engage at distance, but I still love it. It's, yeah. it's just a beautiful weapon. But um, so we, we were like, yeah, let's go in the army. We didn't know anything about it because no internet back then. And so there was this guy who was, um, and I apologize if you heard this story before, because I know I've told it before. There was this guy who was a, a kind of a friend of ours that we we met at the bar and he was a funny guy. He'd been in the IRA as far as I know. Um but he'd been in the army for three years and he got out and we were like, let's ask Tony uh, what the army was like. So we, we sat down with a, you know, had a beer with Tony and he started telling us these stories. And one of the stories that stuck with me was um, he was a private living in the barracks and all the barracks are all, they're all locked down there and peace on the gate in and out. He have to open the gate for you because of security. But the, him and a buddy of his were leaving one night and the MP stopped them at the gate. It was like a Saturday night. They're going to have to go, go drinking or whatever. And, uh, the MP sent them to the chow hall and they had to make sandwiches for an officer's function. And they had to make a thousand sandwiches. Oh no, I don't and, like where this is going. Yeah, and Tony was like, the guy who was with him, let's say his name was Matt, I can't remember. He said, he, Matt spat on 500 sandwiches. He said, I could only spit on like 300 and I had absolutely no <laughs> spit left. Oh. I couldn't do it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, I knew, I knew exactly where that was going. Yeah. Yeah. I was worried yeah. it might be worse, but yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 No, maybe it was, but that's what he told me. <laughs> um, so we went in the army. We, we enlisted. It took a year after we enlisted to actually get called in. Yeah. Because it, similar here. Yeah. It's not, um, 
it's not like you can just go in the army there. They, they have to be recruiting. They have to have vacancies. Uh-huh. And there was no central training base. I trained in my hometown. Okay. With NCOs who were on the border the week before. And they, they just, hey, you guys are training recruits right. for like six months. So we came in. There was to the 30 of us. I think there was like 300 people who applied. There was no jobs in Ireland at this point. There was mm-hmm. at, like, it, you open up the, the newspaper for a job up, and there's nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. And a lot of people went to America. A lot of people went to England uh, and on the dole on welfare. And wow. that, to me, was not an option. I just yeah. wasn't going to do that because it's it's soul-destroying to, to not have a function every day, right? So I was going somewhere, mm-hmm. be it the French Foreign Legion or or wherever. Um, there. So we went in, and we went into infantry training in our own base. Okay. And... Um, it was about six months of training. It's actually quite hard. People ask me, was it harder there or in America? It was harder there because I was younger. In America, I was older, I was more mature. Uh, I'd already been through it once. Right. Um, so when I went in America, it wasn't, it wasn't, I knew exactly what to expect. Yeah. Was it you, similar? It's like, it's a boot camp and they yeah. shave your head and they yell at you yeah. and you make your bed and you fold your clothes and, and then you the go games, to the range. I already knew all the games. I played the games, right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 so it, it, the only reason America was hard was I was older. Like yeah, I was yeah. 29 when I went to America. Like, oh, so geez. yeah, yeah. Um, so and then and I was young. I was like 18. I um, what year were you born? Uh, 66. So I was gonna guess. Yeah. So I'm 56 uh, now. Huh? So when did you become aware of like the troubles, or was it just oh, like it was normal? Every day growing or? up, it became. Were you, were you aware of it as what it was, or was it just like this is life? I have oh, one channel life. on the BBC, yeah. and this is I don't know anything else yet. When you grow up in that environment mm. it's just what's normal and yeah. you become numb to it and bombings and shootings and killings every single day become normal right and the thing is where i grew up had i been born six miles north uh, i'd have been balls deep in the ira right because a catholic family growing up in northern ireland they were second class citizens the whole northern ireland fight the troubles that whatever you want to call it it all started as a civil rights movement because catholics could not get jobs they couldn't be in the police force they they couldn't vote in a lot of places because you had to own property to vote and it it, it was very very and the 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 voting kind of what do you call them the areas that the like voting precincts, or something. precincts were designed to keep the catholics down and um like they, they couldn't, it, it was very, very discriminatory. And that's not an exaggeration. It really was bad. They lived in ghetto housing. They, it, it was a horrible place for Catholics to live. And then there'd be attacks on Catholics and the police would get out of the way and Protestants come in and attack Catholics. And it was very good because all the police were Protestants, right? Mm. Um, so it started as a civil rights movement and it was pushing and it was, it was, based off the civil rights movement in America hmm. and uh, for civil rights, mostly in the South, right? So it was based off that. It was very peaceful at the start. And then, of course, the British Army came in with heavy-handed tactics. And in 1972, Bloody Sunday happened, right? There was a Bloody Sunday in the, in the, the 20s where they, they, in Dublin where they shot up a football stadium. But Bloody Sunday in the 70s, there was a peaceful march and the police came in and the paratroopers came in with heavy-handed tactics and shot a bunch of people. That was the biggest recruiting day. That day made the IRA. Hundreds and hundreds of young men signed and women signed up that day because they knew the police and the army were not going to protect them. So they needed the IRA to protect their neighborhoods. That's how how the whole thing started. And we were talking earlier, like, there's absolute validity in 
as a soldier in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Northern Ireland, pick, pick a country, pick a city, um, to those heavy-handed tactics really do turn the population against you. And I had this conversation with a warrant officer in Iraq in 2005 because I put a charge on a door and uh, we breached the door, went in, explosive charge, rolled the guy up. I don't think we shot anybody, but um, that night... He, he, this warrant was talking to me. It's like, we have to stop explosively breaching because we're blowing out all the windows in the neighborhood and we're turning the population against us and we're, we're creating more enemy than we're, we're, we're killing or capturing. And I remember, you know, I said, Willie, you're absolutely right. And that theory absolutely is, is solid. The problem is I'm the guy at the breach point and that charge buys me 10 extra seconds to get to that guy before he can grab his weapons and open fire on me at the breach point. So... I don't have the luxury of looking at this geopolitical strategy. I'm trying to get through the mm. next five minutes of my life. And that's what happens on a broad scale, right? You put soldiers into riots where they're getting hammered and they overreact. You put soldiers into situations where bombs are going off, IEDs, sniper attacks, your friends are getting killed, your friends are getting blown up, and there's no enemy to fight back against. And it happened to America in Vietnam. And, and then when they finally get something... They freaking overreact and it turns the whole population against you. And that's why guerrilla warfare is so effective. And that's why it's been effective across the world because um, the, the terrorist, freedom fighter, insurgent, whatever you want to call them, they, they only have to be right once. Mm -hmm. The occupying force have to be right every yeah. single time. And it's a very difficult fight, especially for a soldier because... Um, it, soldiers want to fight in a stand-up conventional war and it's just that that kind of war doesn't exist anymore yeah. or hasn't existed yeah, for quite a while it's all these little proxy wars and 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 guerrilla wars right and and they're a difficult fight for uh, especially expeditionary uniform. like you're going from let's say the united states to iraq united states to afghanistan mm -hmm. or you're going to central south america wherever it, it may be uh expeditionary counterinsurgency yes. is a little more difficult because now you are a foreign invader mm -hmm. on that and people you know are gonna it's different than do, if you're doing it on your home if you're so trying to suppress some sort of a uh guerrilla movement on your home soil yeah. it's a little different than counterinsurgency going somewhere else because mm -hmm. pretty easy to turn that population completely it against really you is. as the foreign invader it really is. And if the enemy know how to manipulate, how to use propaganda. Oh, and now, then, now guess what? Yeah. We have it right here. Mm -hmm. It's uh, we're attached to it on our phones. Yes. And so they yes. can, and they're typically much better at doing that than we are. They we typically are. do a mission mm -hmm. and then, you know, you have your PAO, your public affairs officer, and you figure out how to explain it or whatever else. The enemy is working it backwards. Yes. Hey, what do we want to affect? What, mm -hmm. what do we want to affect with this mission? Okay, this. Okay, here's how we're going to get to that. Yeah. So they work it backwards when we're like, who are we going to target? Okay, this guy, boom, we're going to go to their house, blow the doors off, grab them, bring them back here, interrogate them, go on a follow on target, whatever, whatever it might be. But guess what? We're like thinking of it in the other direction, not like, okay, now what? is going to happen if we do that. Okay, we just made his uh, his kid join or we made five other terrorists that day, whatever else. Well, guess what? The enemy is doing it, the backwards planning. The and other it's way. easier. So, yeah. The backwards way is easier, right? And then you, you don't have, you're trying to play nice and you don't have, uh, I remember, uh, remember the movie Apocalypse Now when, when Colonel Kurtz, who, who Colonel Kurtz got it, man. He understood, <laughs> right? Colonel Kurtz was talking about inoculating uh, 
when he was in Special Forces. I know it's a movie, but it's a good example. In Special Forces, they went in and they inoculated all the kids in the village for polio. And they left and they came back later and the Viet Cong had chopped off all the kids' arms, right? You, that type of brutality, you can't fight against that. It, it, Afghanistan was like that, right? We'd go in, we'd build wells, we'd get footballs out, we, we'd talk and try to get information, and we try to turn the population to us, and then we leave, and the Taliban come in and chop off the village leader's head for talking to us. Yeah. You can't... Who would you go with? Right. And like, I would... I, I, I mean, and it's not just us. They have centuries of dealing do. with that. So when we go in, like right off the bat, and let's say 2001, 2002, and we didn't understand why different villages or warlords would change sides. Yeah. Well, because it's very natural to go with the winning side yeah. over there. Because guess mm -hmm. what? If you don't, guess what happens? Yeah. Your head yeah. gets chopped off, mm -hmm. your arm gets chopped off, you know, that yeah. sort of a thing. Yeah. And, and that's and just normal. We, we try to put this American solution on a foreign problem, and it doesn't work that way. And... I hope we've learned our lesson, honestly. Um, I, I think, personally, I think invading Afghanistan was the right thing to do at the time, but with no exit strategy. I, I don't think Iraq was, but we can, we can get to that later. But um, it, it's a very interesting subject to look back on as hindsight for mm -hmm. guys like us, military guys like us who've been there. Um, and I wouldn't change anything I did. I'm, I'm not saying that, but... There is validity to that argument mm -hmm. that uh, you come in heavy-handed. You, t I think there has to be a balance there, and it, it's a very difficult fight. The problem is too that that we don't utilize psychological operations and propaganda on our side mm -hmm. to its full potential because um, everybody's afraid. Everybody's trying to cover their ass, right? And I've seen that mm -hmm. personally, where. We could do this, and it's done very effectively by some very high-end units. Um, there was one in Northern Ireland where there was a feud between the IRA and the INLA in the 80s, and I think it went on for like a year. I remember okay. I was at airborne school, and I was coming home, and we were driving past a hotel, and it was like a driveway up, and I looked in, and there was like three dead bodies, and it just happened, and it was like a meeting to kind of hash things out that turned into a gunfight. And at the end of that feud, where a bunch of INLA and a bunch of IRA had killed each other, it became known that MI5 had started that. They'd pop one, they'd pop the other, and they got them fighting each other. Um, Interesting. Like, that's that's brilliant. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever heard of the, the, the Foursquare Laundry thing? I don't think so. That was... Uh, it sounds vaguely familiar, but I can't place it. Yeah, there was... a. Uh, uh, a British Army military unit um, called Death something, I think it was, but it was counterintelligence, kind of very, very low-key operations, right? What they did was, you know, the, the housing estates, the subdivisions, the Catholic ghettos, basically. You can't, even when I was growing up, you couldn't afford a dryer in Ireland, like a dryer for drying your clothes. Yeah. The electricity at burn was so expensive, wow. nobody had a dryer. Okay. Now, you're talking about trying to hang clothes on a, on a, a clothesline in a country where it rains every day, right? So the, the British British intelligence started this laundry service. Where they I would, have for this side. You have. Got yeah. it. You have so they drive door to door and pick up all the laundry. And they would go and wash it and fold it and take it back. But before they did that, they would swab it for gunshot re for explosive residue mm -hmm. to see who was making bombs. Like to me, that's just creative. Yeah, yeah. That is thinking outside the box. Except yeah. um, the IRA had its own counterintelligence unit that caught on to this, 
and came out one day and sprayed. They had a guy in the roof that was taking photographs and he wasn't there that day, but they came out while they were doing it and they shot the driver. And the girl who was uh, an agent, she was at the door getting laundry and she pushed into the house and told the people in the house that they were loyalists trying to kill her. And she escaped out the back. Like, how she got away, I don't know. But um, there was a very big cat and mouse game in Northern Ireland with, with agents and counter agents and double agents. And it, it Incredible. Was, and the IRA was heavily infiltrated, which all that information is coming out now. I can't wait to read some more books about it. It's hard to find it a is. book that is not by a totally biased one side or the yes, other. It it's is. kind of hard yeah. to tell. Like in other places around the world, you can read things about uh, different counterinsurgency campaigns in Africa or uh, Central America or South America or whatever else, uh, China, Indochina, Vietnam. and But Northern Ireland, it becomes a mystery because you mm. put book off the shelf and you're like, okay. So that Toby Harnden uh, book, Bandit yes, Country, is like so good. That. And there's good another one you mentioned earlier. What was the other book that you, uh, you liked on the Troubles? Say Nothing, I say think nothing. it's called. And I just recently listened to that on tape. And that, it initially I thought it was a little pro-IRA, but it kind of leveled out later on. But it gave a lot of insights. And they've really done their homework. And then the Troubles podcast. And then, yeah, you said there's a, uh, there's, yeah. it's called The Troubles, the podcast. The Troubles. It's I'm going to listen Troubles. to that. And it goes incident by incident. Wow. And it, it takes them uh, as one segment, right? And, like, if you look at some of the missions in Northern Ireland, you ever heard of the Lock All? They hit Lock so. All. So Lock All was a small police station in Portadown, I think. And the uh, IRA, it was heavily fortified, but the IRA were going there to kill all the cops there. And they came in with a, a bulldozer and they had a, massive charge in the, of home energy explosive in the bulldozer, in the dumpster. And they went up and blew the gate open. Dang. And then a van pulled in with like six or seven IRA guys, heavily armed. You can see um, there's pictures of like they had FNs, FNCs, SPAS, shotguns, Browning High Powers, submachine, yeah, like yeah. heavily armed. Well, I don't think any of them made it out of the van because intelligence, again, that... Brits were waiting, and the SAS were dug in, basically waiting with two forty machine guns and just opened fire and sprayed the whole van and killed them all, um, very very quickly. So there was there was massive successes and failures on both sides, yeah. but a fascinating a fascinating conflict when you really dig into it. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I've got this. I think older and later in life, you get you get really tuned into history, man. And I, I've I've become obsessed with with different types of history. Yeah and military history for, yeah. for a lot of uh, stuff. But um, let me get back on track here. Uh, I keep veering off. Man. Yeah, no, no, it's, no, it's great. I do it. where, did, uh, where did a lot of the IRA guys get their, like, bomb-making expertise? Because uh, you couldn't get online back then. PLO. Um, yeah. The PLO, mostly, right? They sent guys they, to the PLO. So they traveled. Yes, they traveled, and they learned it, and they became experts. And, you know... And harder to track people back then. A lot of trial and error, too. A lot of IRA guys back in the early 70s were dying of cancer because some of the ingredients, carcinogenic, they're making mm. ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. They, they, uh, but you needed a kicker with, with Semtex mm. or some sort of plastic explosives to, to kick it off. Um, they, they went to the PLO and they, they got that. But, I mean, once you've got that expertise... The trigger mechanism is limited only by your imagination. Mm. There's so many ways to complete that circuit. It's mind-boggling. Um, and I, I did courses in the Irish Army on... Oh, wow. Yeah, because I needed to know what to look for, yeah. right? I needed to know what HME looks for, what a Mercury tilt switch looks looks like, right? And we do the same in special operations. They have whole factory, factories in... in uh, 
where they, sh they have homemade explosives factories where they teach guys how to make HME and what triggers. And could you, mm -hmm. I mean, you'd walk into it and you wouldn't know what you're looking for. Yeah. And uh, smells like you mm. smell marzipan, you smell the, the fuel. You, there's different types of smells that would key you off. Oh, so, um, yeah, a buddy of mine ran the HME course um, for EOD. And uh, so I, I give my novels uh, beforehand just to make sure. Because what I want to have happen is someone to read it, an mm -hmm. EOD guy to yeah. read it, yeah. and be like, oh, look, this guy did his research and he left out the one thing or yeah. whatever it is, you know, yeah. just like, yeah. but I want someone not to like an EOD guy to open the book and not just be like, oh, mm -hmm. just roll his eyes at it. I want him yeah. to be like, oh, he talked to someone who knows what they're doing or he yeah. knows what he's doing with this, with this particular device. But I see what he did here. He left out this yeah. thing. So, so, you know, kid doesn't blow themselves up in their basement type yeah. of a deal. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that stuff is fascinating. Oh, it, it really is. It's, it's amazing what you can make explode. And, you know, they, they started off very slow with, with very few mm -hmm. guns, and, and then they got more. They got a lot of guns, a lot of money from America, from Irish-Americans yeah. in, in America. But Boston, and, going around the bars with oh, the... Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. money in there. So that, that and then um, later on, like I, I talked about, Gaddafi sent them six shiploads of arms later on. Yeah. Um, How did they get those up there? The shipping containers? The, uh, yeah, well, four of the ships got intercepted, mm -hmm. and two got through, and... They came in and landed on a, a beach, unloaded all, all the weapons, and the ones that got intercepted actually saw some of the stuff that was on there, and it was thousands, AK-47, millions around Semtex, which at the time was very hard to detect. It didn't have that some sort of explosive okay. chemical ingredient that made it easy to detect um, surface-to-air missiles. And they brought them over the beach? They didn't, like, just have a manifest, false, you know, whatever else no, they had? They, they, like, well, what, the reason I know... Wow. I don't know if I should say this, but the reason I know is because when I was in special ops in Ireland, we recreated that. Oh, wow, cool. At the same beach. Amazing. Yeah. So, no, small ships, small Incredible. boats from a ship in and out, took it all in, took it all in. And I spent years, well, I mean, not years, but maybe a year looking for all those weapons. Mm -hmm. And they thought that the surface there missiles, they had attached them to weights and sunk them to the bottom of lakes. Oh. We had divers searching lakes in Ireland for these weapons. Okay. Um, but the, uh, we, we never found them. Like, they, huh. they decommissioned the weapons later on uh, on under the supervision of an international thing. Whether they're all decommissioned yeah. or not, I don't know. That's actually a good, like, kind of uh, kind of move, counter, to uh, let it spread out there, the rumor that, hey, we're sinking these things in lakes because then yeah. it takes resources. Maybe they're not even in the lakes, but yeah, it takes, exactly. it, it, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, it takes resources mm -hmm. to go and do that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But, um, oh, interesting. It, it uh but they became, they started very, very humble, but they became heavily armed. And they became masters at IEDs. Um, I, 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 I told Andy Stump this when I was on this thing, and, and I, I, when I was done, he was like, his eyes were like wide open. They used to do uh, very primitive triggers, right? And a very primitive trigger for, for a device is, you imagine I have a box, right? And there's a hole cut in the side, and inside you have a clothes peg. And you have positive and negative. And, mm -hmm. and when the yep. connection is made, it either arms it or it fires it, uh -huh. right? And um, they would have a non-conducting piece of material yeah. in there. So when I plant the bomb, I pull that and it arms it, right? Well, they had some incidents where kids would not pull the arming switch. They'd lose their nerve. Uh -huh. So the IRA started putting the kid's name and address on the arming switch. Oh, no, <laughs> I have heard that. Yeah. So you had to pull it to get it back, yep. right? We did a course... I got, when I was in the infantry, and I, so I spent a couple of years in the infantry, and then I went to special ops in Ireland. 
when I was in the infantry, we did a course called a specialist search team course. And basically our job was to go into derelict buildings and search them for weapons caches and look for booby traps and, you know, search the railway line going into Northern Ireland, search for bombs, do all that. And there's a whole procedure. We had buried wire detectors and metal detectors and all that kind of thing. And it was a great course. It was run by engineers in Dublin. And uh, they basically told us how to build IEDs. They told us how to build improvised mercury tilt switches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so simple. Like it... it you can have all these freaking... I never in my life had to choose between a red wire and a green yeah. wire while the clock is ticking. Uh-huh. I don't know who does that. Right, Hollywood. But yeah, exactly. But uh, um, it's so simple. But we went to that course. We were there for a couple of weeks. And at the end, we had a project where we had to submit an ID. And they, they graded it, right? Well, there was a guy in our class from the Falls Road in Belfast, which is a staunch IRA stronghold. And that's where he grew up and that's where he lived, but he was in the Irish Army. And he built a device at the end that was just mind blowing. Like, and he didn't learn it from, from yeah, that you course. Kind of, uh, I was on the same course. A couple questions for you. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he built this, I think it was an ammo can. And if you lifted it, it went off. Like we had we had the wires coming out to a light. And that was that the detonator yeah. firing simulator, right? So when you pick it up, the mm. light goes off, right? So it had an anti-lift switch. It had an anti-tilt switch. You shine a light on it, it went off. Oh, you, you, like he had like 10 different switches on this wow. thing. And the instructors were like... It's called showing your hand. Yeah. Well, the instructors okay. were like, I'm glad you're on our side. They wow. said, and they kept that device in the school as a demonstration model for future Dang. classes. So... Um, That's wild. Yeah. So... Thatcher was hated in Northern Ireland. Like, there used to be posters up in my hometown, and wanted posters for murder and torture of political prisoners because uh-huh. they went on hunger strike because they wanted political status yeah. in the prisons. They didn't want to be criminals, and she let eighteen of them die. And it was, I mean, you can say what you want about insurgents and terrorists, and but to starve yourself to death and let your body just eat itself away it takes some courage and discipline and. I mean, that is just mind-boggling that the 18 of them died um, before they called it off. And they tried to kill her a bunch of times. And and it's funny, when she was, I was telling you early on, she flew over in Air Force One to Ireland, but she wasn't even on the plane. I was in in Special Ops, but we were in a helicopter, and we were searching that five-mile stretch from the Irish coast to the airport. Looking for guys that surf their missiles, right? And we're, we're mowing the lawn, basically, up and down. And helicopters are great for about five minutes. Then it starts getting boring. <laughs> and then after 20 minutes, they're really boring. So we had ropes hooked up. We had snipers. We were all rigged up and ready to go. And after about 10 minutes, you know, guy, for the first 10 minutes, everybody's hanging out watching. Right. After about 10 minutes, you know, people are sitting back a little. After 20 minutes, everybody's asleep except oh, for the geez. pilots. <laughs> oh, jeez. It was just boring. Um what was the one where they tried to get her with the uh, the bomb in the hotel? Yeah, the Brighton bomb. So the 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 Conservative Party conference was in Brighton, and she was in a hotel, and they had built an IED, a bomb, into the wall, and she when it went off, her 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 room was in the middle of the hotel. She had walked to somebody else's room, and when it went off, it collapsed the whole center of the hotel. And she barely escaped with her life. Like, it was pure timing. Um, 
But to be able to do that, the logistics involved to be yeah. able to do that and make it detonate at the right time. Serious planning, especially with the you know infiltrations, yeah. suspicions. Yeah. Like imagine the suspicions, especially if you're Irish. Going, uh, I I went to London when I was when when I was Irish when I was yeah. in the Irish Army. I went to London for something. And I, I got grilled going across on the boat. And I, I had an ID card. Yeah. I was in the Irish Army. Sure. And they freaking grilled me. Um, so the ability to, to maneuver like that. Um, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. The, the, have you ever heard of the, the Gibraltar, killings in Gibraltar? It seems like it rings a, brow, a yeah. bell. But. Gibraltar was a, a British colony, right? Yeah, yeah. Part, of, part of England. Well, the IRA were going to blow up the changing of the guard in Gibraltar. And they sent three members over to do a recce. Had no guns, had no bombs, yeah. nothing. It was uh, two men and a woman. A woman, and the SCS were tracking them, and they just got told kill them. And they shot them in broad daylight in front of hundreds of people, and they just bang, 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 and just shot them a ton of times. And uh, their, their defense was: we thought they had a bomb. They thought they, they had a detonator to blow up a bomb and all that. Um, but that's another fascinating one. Like they just they just gunned them down in broad daylight. And it was a warning to the IRA. Do uh, not do this outside Northern Ireland. Yeah. Don't play this game, right? Um but it, it it's I I grew up in it, but I wasn't in it like I yeah. could have been in it if I grew up a couple of just, miles north. That's so wild. How did the uh, the snipers when we were talking about the uh, 50 cows in the back of vehicles mm -hmm. and having hide sites built in vehicles yeah. and that sort of a thing. Like, yeah. where did they get their training or were they just kind of... Uh, they didn't have training. They sh the shots were taken were very close. Yeah. They were within 100, 200 yards. Um, they obviously zeroed the rifle. They probably got trained in the Irish Army. A mm. lot of them did. Um, and uh, the shots were not that far with 50 cal and just right there. And they, they missed a bunch of times. But the ones they hit, it's the psychological weapon. Snipers are oh. very, as you know, very psychological weapon. Um, the, we, we were doing counter-sniper ops in Iraq in uh, 05. There was a sniper shooting from a car and taking out a bunch of Americans. And we were doing, because I was on an ODA, uh, a special forces team, and we were running an indigenous civilian. Is this up uh, in Missoula, like a sniper yes. up there? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Doing... They sent sealed snipers in. That's, I was there. I was one of those guys. Were you really? Yeah, I led the team. Those guys came to our base, and they're like, we don't really know what to do, because everybody talks about counter sniper like it's enemy at the gates. Like, right, looking, looking for, for movement, the guy. Looking for, there's a million people in this city. Yeah. It's not that, right? Yeah. So, and you know, when you get on a roof, you see other roofs. You only see the street, and the streets were so it's a very difficult mission. The best mm -hmm. way to get a sniper like that is to pour money into intelligence, mm -hmm. pay somebody off to rat yeah. him out, and kill him in his bed when he's when he's yeah. sleeping. Right? Um, arrest him. I meant to say, <laughs> but uh, take him into custody. But yes, take him into custody. So we were rolling around in the strikers with the and the seals were there on the rooftops. Yeah, and, I was one of those guys. There you Not go. Not in the rooftops. We were never went on the rooftop during the during the day anyway. Yeah. Always inside. Yeah. Um, but uh, then difficult we had difficult mission, but difficult yeah. to find somebody. You have to be right place, right time. Very, very unlikely that you will actually be in the right place. Yeah. It's the whole time we were up there, he didn't take a no. he didn't take a shot. No. You know, I had a, a a civilian who works at Picatinny in, in the whole force mod acquisitions world one time, and, and he said to me, best way to, best way to kill snipers is with another sniper. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's with <laughs> artillery. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're out there. We have guys, our guys in the back of the strikers dressed as regular army guys, but they're running our indig. And our indigers, mm -hmm. civilian clothes, trying to interdict this guy. Mm -hmm. 
And he's standing up. You know, the striker opens up in the back and you could stand up in the back. And he's standing up in the back. And the army guy beside him, as they're going back in the gate, as the, the mission's over, he, he, he kind of jolts and he's like, oh, my weapon fired. And he looks down and his dust cover's closed. The sniper's bullet struck his rifle on the way back in the gate. That's crazy. On a counter sniper up. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And these guys weren't even good snipers. They were kind of improvising. They yeah. were shooting close range. A really good sniper shooting that knows what he's doing will wear your ass out and you'll never catch him, right? Um, very psychological weapon. There is a, there's a very famous sign when the sniper was operating in Northern Ireland. I think it might be a picture of it in that book. Okay. There's a, a triangle like road sign yeah. that said "sniper caution, sniper at work." Do you ever see oh, that one? Man, no. I'm gonna go yeah, look in that book right after this, book, though. Right. Um, and then when the peace treaty kicked in, there was like it, it came up and it said "on on hold" or something like that. And it's very, you know, these propaganda man. signs and Irish flags that used to fly in Northern Ireland. Early on, the Brits would take them down, mm. and then they just booby trap them, and then they never took them down again. Mm. You know, um, the crazy that, yeah, time to grow up up there. It, it, it's I mean, it, it's it's a fascinating conflict, and it's yeah. it's kind of an old school conflict yeah. because it's almost like Cold War espionage, yeah. oh, exactly. dead drops, and you know, um, there's no cell phones, there's no emails no, or no, anything like that. No, trying um, to figure it out as you go along, and the enemy do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and the enemy do this, and it's the same today, but it's very, very, uh, very old school war, mm -hmm. and um, the amount that the, the the IRA were infiltrated by, by intelligence is, is kind of shocking, yeah. actually, and they still function. So they started off like a lot of groups like that start with big organizations, right, battalions, and then they, they figure out that one guy gets rolled up and he rats out 20, right? Uh, so they, they broke down into four-man cells, okay. and nobody on that cell knew everybody else. It's one guy knew one guy in another cell, yeah. and that's how it's broken down. So you keep that compartmentalization. Yeah. People don't know what other people are doing. It's very controlled in that manner. And uh, that, that's how you survive. But you never survive without the assistance of the people, right? If the people in that country mm -hmm. don't give you food and shelter and transportation, mm -hmm. and, and then you just, you go away, yeah. right? And, and because of the British heavy-handedness in Northern Ireland, the, the Catholic community supported the IRA in one way or another. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the, it, 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 dragged on for 30 oh, like it, it was an old school thing right in the 20s and the, the fight for irish mm -hmm. freedom and irish got us in ireland got its independence in in the 20s and the british pulled into the northern ireland right and they stayed in northern ireland because the majority of people in northern ireland were protestants and they wanted to be part of england and all that and that's that might change this year there's a census coming out and a lot of people think the catholics are going to outnumber the protestants in northern ireland uh. um but then it kind of went down it quietened down um for a couple of decades, a little bit here and there, and then it flared up again in, in the late 60s as a civil rights thing, and then it pivoted into, um, uh, basically, you can call it, a, a, the Irish call it the Troubles, right? The Irish under, under you know, I think it was Yeats or somebody said, the Irish treat a, a serious thing like a joke, and a joke like a serious thing, right? Uh, and, you know, the, the, that's good. the war in Northern Ireland is called the Troubles. You know what Second World War was called? The Emergency. Ah. <laughs> it's downplayed us a little bit. But it was a known war. 
and it was a it was a very violent and bloody war. Yeah, um, I mean, growing up in the eighties, it was all this, every every few months the Mac Bolan book cover would have something about Northern Ireland yeah, in it. We had Patriot yeah. Games, Tom Clancy, yeah. you know, movies here or there. Soldier yeah. of Fortune magazine would have an article on it here or there. You see something mm-hmm. in the newspaper if you're you know keyed into that sort of a thing, like warfare, anything that had something to do with yeah. war of any kind. I was right on it in yeah. Time yeah. magazine or Newsweek or a local paper or New York Times or whatever it might have been. Yeah. Um, so always reading up on that stuff. Always fascinated buy it um mm-hmm. because it is it's an old school conflict deep mm-hmm. deep roots um and incredible trade craft on both sides oh, there's yeah. something to study mm-hmm. um and it's not that it didn't happen that long ago in no. fact we went to uh uh ireland my wife's family's from from ireland and uh we went to, to belfast uh before before i went to ocs so in like 2002 mm-hmm. and uh so went up there and i was going to these different pubs and hotels and just thinking about all those things that i had read growing yeah. up and imagining yeah. like okay this pub right here this one it's dark you know mm-hmm. and it's they had to have had a meeting here in this corner you know that sort of a thing <laughs> but it's really interesting yeah. to be in a place like that and i was you, you see know, all the to, murals and all that i saw a bunch of murals yeah. i saw mm-hmm. i was like in the you know reading trying to find different uh hotels where things took place or terrorist events something happened or mm-hmm. attempts happened whatever it was and just trying to you know just get a little little feel for what it would yeah. have been like to yeah. to walk those streets, yep. you know, without mm-hmm. without a cell phone, without email, whatever else, but not knowing if uh, if your buddy was uh, really on your side yeah. or not, being paid or not, being blackmailed, yeah. uh, you know. And a lot of people think it's it was a Catholic and Protestant thing, and it actually wasn't. It it kind of that was a byproduct of it. It was mm. a civil rights thing, and it started because the Catholics needed jobs. It was British government, but. Um, it did pivot into that where Protestants would just go into a random Catholic neighborhood and gun down the first person they'd see. Oh. And then Catholics would do it back to Protestants and it just tit for tat killings. And it was brutal. Like it, it, it was, it was horrible. And hopefully now a generation of kids have grown up in Northern Ireland without violence. And it's not now to normal. It's very yeah. hard to break that cycle. Yeah. Um, if that's all, you know, right. Um, and there was psychopaths on both sides. Yeah. Like there really was. And, you know, the, the Good Friday Agreement, when the peace treaty, they open up all the jails and let them all out. Wow. All of them, convicted murderers, all of them just got out. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, huh? Man. What was it like going? So so how long were you in the uh, Irish Army before you went into the special operations side of it? About two years, about two and a half years in the infantry. And then I, I went to Lebanon on a peacekeeping thing. Oh, no kidding. In South Lebanon in, in 87. Dang. Six months in South Lebanon. Yeah. Um, that was pretty, that was wow. pretty interesting too. Um, oh, so you're 20 years old in Lebanon. Yep, yep, Dang. in Lebanon. Um, and we we were uh, we were in South Lebanon. It was like a multinational. Group. It was UNIFIL, United Nations interim force in Lebanon, right? Interim being short term, which mm. they're still there, <laughs> you know. But um, our our job, and it was you know growing up in the army and and going on patrols and border patrols and all that kind of thing, escorting cash and all that. It was a way to make extra money. And because the UN paid you and the Irish Army paid you as well. So you got double your pay. Um, and it was a way to see the world, right? Yeah. To go. I'd never been out of Ireland. It was a way to go to Israel, go to uh, Lebanon, went to Cyprus on leave. And it was just a way to see that part of the world, right? So, um, yeah, I flew out there, six-month tour. And people did die. People got killed. Irish soldier got killed recently in Lebanon, got ambushed and, and, and killed. And, and I really don't want to talk about it too much until I find out exactly what happened. Mm. But he's from my old, my infantry unit oh, wow. in, in uh, the 27th Infantry Battalion. But um, so we went out there. I was like 20, carrying an FNFAL that was bigger than me. Um, it, you'd like the old school, Browning high-power pistols, FNFAL awesome. rifles, um, 
the old Carl Gustav M45 submachine yeah, guns, yeah. NCOs carrying uh-huh. them. Nice. Um, the, but we went out there and we our job was to keep the the militia units and the Israelis. Mm. I, I, Keep them separated, basically, right? Now you're not you're not stopping the Israeli army, right? But you can report on them, right? And we reported all their movements and all that. And a lot of times they took a buffer into South Lebanon. They took mm. a five mile buffer so his rockets couldn't get launched into Israel, mm. right? So they owned all the hills in that five mile mm. buffer, or most of the hills. We we took over some of the other hills, okay. and we would report. And they would they would hire the Israelis would hire Christian militia to man the hills, and they were pretty brutal on on the local populations. Um, and then you had the Amal militia and the Hezbollah. Um, the Amal militia kind of went away because it, it was, and the PLO were kind of further up north in Beirut and stuff. But down on that border, the Hezbollah were the big threat. And they would attack Israeli outposts, like insane, with mined perimeters and machine guns and tanks and, and the thing. Like, um, but it was funny to watch those that South Lebanese army through binos. They used old... T-54 tanks, they used, remember the old half-tracks from, uh-huh. from World War II, uh-huh. you know, uh, very old-school gear. Yeah. One of them actually came over to our, our OP one time, and because we were across from each other, and he had an M16A1, and he thought he was, he was a dick, but he, he thought he was a badass, you know, and he was talking all trash about the FNFAL, and he was, he had this M16, and my platoon sergeant challenged him to a shooting competition. So they took a piece of wood and they buried it into the ground at 100 yards. <laughs> An old boy get up there and he fired 10 shots and put them all through the wood. And this platoon sergeant fired one shot with the FNL. He boom, blew the hole with a bar. Nice. You know, that 308 round, you yeah, know, yeah. you can't argue with that thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, the, the rules of engagement were absolutely ridiculous. Um, for you guys? For us. They were. Now, we didn't follow them, but they were ridiculous because mm. the UN is white vehicles and blue helmets mm. and hey we're here we're here to keep the peace and we got shot at all the time mm. by both sides um but the, the the rules were like if you got shot at like if you're on an op and you got shot at you had to fire two red flares to show them that they're shooting at a un position right <laughs> so if they couldn't vector in on yeah, you, yeah now they got you now we got yeah. you yeah and if you uh, fired again now you had to fire two more and if they fired again you could fire like warning shots. And if they fired again, you could fire containing shots. It was ridiculous, wow. right? We just shot back. And then yeah. when it was all over, we shared our flares in the air. Just yeah, to, yeah. You know, there was, a, there was a checkpoint in the middle of a town called Tibney. It was called Tibney Bridge. And it was three roads leading down into low ground. Yeah. And they had a permanent checkpoint. We had a permanent checkpoint there. And the trip before us, they were letting the Hezbollah go through that checkpoint with guns and all kinds of stuff. Now, our commander was like, nope, we're doing our job. Boom. And we start stopping cars and searching cars, and the Hezbollah got pissed, right? Yeah. Now, they know they don't have to kill us. They just have to create a couple of incidents, and the UN will back down and give them passes to get through, right? So I wasn't on a checkpoint this Jeez. day, but this one day, this big, huge guy jumped out of a car, and he had a burning high power in one hand. And the NCO had that Carl Gustav submachine gun. And it's like a Sten or Sterling. Mm-hmm. You pull it back and hook the action, okay. right? And then you put it forward and it fires with an open bolt. It's okay. basically, it's skin and bone, man. It's a barrel mm-hmm. and a spring yeah. and like very, very primitive guns. But um, but he had that bolt hooked back, right? So in order to fire it, you had to grab it, put okay. the bolt forward, and then it fires an open bolt. So um, the guy jumped out and he had... Uh, a browning high power in one hand and he reached across this guy's back and he grabbed the weapon where the bolt was uh. in the recess. 
So the guy couldn't fire it. Even if he could get his hand on the trigger, it wouldn't fire yeah. until that boat was let forward, right? So he had him like this and he reached across him and he was shooting those three privates. There was a machine gun position and three privates out on the roads that were coming in. They're trying to fire at him, but he kept moving and shooting at them with this Browning high power, like bang, 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 and dragging this guy around. Well, he got a malfunction on his pistol. Yeah. And the NCO's thinking, when he releases his hand to clear it, I can put the gun in action, I can shoot him, right? So, oh boy, big, huge guy, big beard. Um, he gets a malfunction. He grabs the slide with his teeth, racks the slide, Dang. and just keeps shooting. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then typical UN. Eventually, he dropped the guy, got in the car, and they, they left. UN comes down after you risk your life, and they give him passes to get through the checkpoint with weapons. It's just ridiculous. How like, long are we there? Six months. Oh, wow. Six months. I went back again. I did oh, two wow. tours there. Yeah. No kidding. So I did six months there. And yeah, there was there was a guy from the Ranger Wing in our platoon. And the Ranger Wing is the Irish Special Operations Unit, okay. right? So he was, they don't send guys in that role and they attach them to the regular army as, as squad leaders or whatever. So he was with us and uh, very professional guy, very little too gung-ho for most of the Irish troops, but um, kind of talked me into going selection. So came back. I also saw. So on that trip, you get on that trip, it. yeah, yeah. And then I, I'd also seen uh, when I was in Dundee in in my home base on the border, the Ranger Wing came up one time to mm. do uh, border operations. Okay. Very fit looking guys, different equipment, different guns, H okay. and K, everything basically. Were they like G threes or something? They had <laughs> best gun ever. HK-53 is, it's like oh, the yeah, size yeah. of an MP5, but mm -hmm. it's 5.56. Nice. It shoots a flame at the end, like a nice. freaking three feet long, yeah, yeah. right? It's a badass gun. It's loud as, I love that thing. But they had those, they had HK-33s, they had PSG-1s, they uh, had shotguns, they all carried okay. sidearms, they had SIG-226s. Okay, um, nice. They had some Browning high powers, that's what the Army had. They had, uh, they had better vehicles, Land Cruisers. Were they like... U.S. Rangers or U.S. Special Forces or a mixture or? It's kind of weird, right? Because you have this posse comitatus here, right? But in Europe, special ops units are used for internal security mm -hmm. all the time. The SES yes, are yeah. used in England. Um, so they are the police at that time in Ireland, no guns and no SWAT team. So the Ranger Wing were used as a SWAT team for okay. the police. So they had okay. this. they had this black... Uh, balaclava, black roll kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they also had the green roll, which was the conventional uh, special operations behind uh -huh. the lines. Thing. Yeah. But it was more so like a like a police SWAT team. Okay. Like FBI, HR yeah. team, maybe something like that. Yeah. Then it was like Ranger Regiment. Because we're not training to go to right. other countries. We're training for internal security mm -hmm. and we're operating for internal security. So that that's kind of more was like... So okay. the, the and they had Land Cruisers? We had Land Cruisers. We awesome. had uh, we had some civilian vehicles. We had, uh, um, I mean, it, it for an Irish Army unit, we were well equipped. Now it was only uh, very few of us, like two platoons of us, like a very small. What was um, selection like for that, or how did they selection? Yeah, it, <laughs> selection was. Uh, did you have to wait for someone to retire or get out to like? No, no, they, they went. To they ran selection every year, okay. and but the attrition rate was atrocious. And a lot of times people got hurt, right? And I, I talked school. to guys, like one of the officers that was in my selection, 
he came to America. He was the unit commander, and he came to Range 37 to the Special Ops Sniper Corps, Sniper uh, Competition a couple of years ago, and we sat down and BSed about all the things that were jacked up. And, and you don't know what you don't know. And America, the American military would break in people in selection too for a very long time. So I went to selection with like 88 people, and like I think like 10 finished and like okay. six got selected, right? Um, but a lot of people got hurt. Because you were just you're you're having them squat down and duck walk up and down hills in the morning and just just breaking yeah. them down and breaking them down. So when I went to selection, it was it was based on Ranger School in America. They sent a couple of officers to Ranger School in Fort Benning, and they took that back. So it was very much like uh, it's not like selection for SF, probably not for SEALs either. It was like Ranger School, right? So is. It was a garrison phase where you learned all the patrolling and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And then you went in the mountains and you you operated for weeks in, in okay. hostile terrain. You ambushes and raids and very okay. infantry tactics based like ranger school. You have to do the um, orienteering thing on your own yeah, type deal? Yeah, land navigation and all that type of stuff. And at the end, if you passed, but they didn't want you in the unit, they gave you a, a ranger tab, but it says Finoglock, which is like an old Gaelic word for like warrior. I'll get you one. I, I'll, get, I'll get you one yeah. and send it to you. Um, but you could get that and go back to your unit and you were like a rock star. But if you stayed in the unit, you got that tab and there was a red backing on it and you became a ranger. And, and nice. I had to move down to, to the middle of the country where the base was. Okay. Um, but at the time, the Irish Army was not well equipped, uh, not well funded, but the ranger wing were better funded, better equipped. Yeah. And, and you had guys who were in it for the right reasons and very professional, very physically fit. And I, I tell you, the training was awesome. It was really good training. And we got to do hits. We got to do missions. We got to do... The Irish government were very, very soft on the IRA. They didn't want to play with it. And, yeah. and they were probably right in hindsight, right? The British government, the British, when I have that problem in Northern Ireland, the, the Irish government were not getting dragged mm. into it. Now, you had, you had loyalist Protestant terrorist organizations who would go into the South and bomb. Mm. And the Irish government got involved heavily when the IRA, the INLA, the UVF got out of control, they, they, when they started robbing banks or kidnapping people in the South, which happened, they started shooting cops, then, then it would okay. be a big manhunt would go on and we'd be heavily involved in that. Um, but it was very, there's no, there's no equivalent really here because it was yeah. very FBI type. Right. So I went to sniper school there, became a sniper. Um, I was going to go to dive school, but they took us on a familiarization dive because when I was in Lebanon in 87, I went to Cyprus and I went diving. Yeah. It was beautiful. Like, oh, it was man. so badass. Oh, so I was like, that's cool. I'll, I'll go to dive. And then I went to dive. It took us on this familiarization dive and it was in some nasty lake in the winter and there's dead <laughs> cats. And it was horrible. I was like, I'm not doing this. I can this only this imagine. Yeah. yeah. So I became a sniper and then I lay in the rain all the yeah, time. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and then there was there was conventional sniping and then it was counter-terrorist um yeah we had a hksg1 i don't know if you've seen that five five six it's got the little trigger thing on it where you pop it it and it half cocks the trigger okay okay yeah Yeah, i know what you're talking about yeah Yeah. i love the hk stuff it's just beautiful so cool have you been to the what is the gray room they have that thing where they have all the hk stuff from the beginning of time you know that's uh every single one there i think it's in germany yeah um i forget if they have one in virginia yeah. Or not. It's been a while since I thought I'd about love that. To but, go, man. I yeah. would love to go. Um, 
I, I got to get an MP5. That thing's I know. Like a personal I, friend I, of mine, yeah. I have a line on one. Yeah. Uh, I've got a, like, a lot of paperwork Don't and all that sort of one. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I know. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, too cool. Too cool. I mean, it's so iconic. Yeah. But what kind of helicopters do you guys have? <laughs> we had the Alouette 3. That's what I thought. Yeah. It's like flying in a goldfish yeah. bowl. Like it really, that's what we have. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, helicopter, helicopter. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it's uh, it's like it's. And we would we would go to the offshore rigs. We had a couple of gas okay. rigs off the coast, mm-hmm. and we would retake those, which you've probably nice. done in your yep. former life. We we yep. do that goplat stuff. Yep. Um, scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Really? Honestly. Well, we'd come in, and it be, because they were afraid that that some sort of terrorist would take it, a multi billion dollar thing. Uh-huh. We'd come in, cool place to visit because the chow was awesome. It's like okay. ten floors. But we would come in and with divers. The mm-hmm. divers would come in and secure the spider deck on the bottom, and then mm-hmm. they'd infiltrate up and secure the heli deck. Mm-hmm. And then we'd come in, the main force come in with helicopters and yep. rope on and boats. Yep. And, and, but I remember coming in the big Sea Raider boats, those big, huge mm-hmm. things. When you're out at sea, quite a ways out. Yeah. Coming like this. Yeah, like no this, joke, right? especially there. I'm, I'm at the front with a body armor and no cutaway body armor back then. MP5, fireman's axe, pistol all this crap on me and I'm in the ocean and if I fall in oh yeah I am going to the bottom oh, yeah. and there's no way and I remember coming in this boat and it would lift you up in these massive waves the, as you know the ocean's a scary place very unforgiving boat. yeah so I remember coming in and, and coming in the, the boat handles were awesome you come in and lift it up and there was a ladder there I just grabbed the ladder and the boat just disappeared from me mm-hmm. and then God bless upper body strength mm-hmm. because fear of death you know yeah. climb up that thing and uh retake that we did the aircraft we retake hijacked aircraft cool um did a lot of training on hijacked aircraft it was funny i i I was telling this story on my own podcast we had a guy in the infantry when i was in the american army and he was kidding my squad and guy was dumb as a box of rocks man and i don't say that lightly but i have have 50 stories about this guy (laughs) and i was telling somebody this is years later i was telling somebody we were in a training event we were all standing around bs and i was talking to an officer or another nco and he was asking me about retaking hijacked aircraft. And I was telling him, you know, how you approach ladders and this and get up in the wings and, and blow the doors and all that kind of thing. And, and I was just giving him some, some background on it. And this kid's listening on the side. And when I'm done talking, he comes over, he's like, that seems really dangerous. And then I'm thinking, the plane is on the ground. And he was like, oh, that's totally different. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That's the guy that you like guards the pallets. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, on yeah. The, he oh, was geez. good for, oh. yeah, get up on the, on the. That's brutal. The machine gun position in, yeah. Turret in Kosovo in the winter, yeah. Um, oh, man. But we, yeah, we did, you know, we, we did a lot of breaching CQB. You bus takedowns? We did, yeah. Bus takedowns. Trains? Car, trains, yep, yep. Trains, buses. Aircraft, everything, right? Nice. It's all CQB, right? It's mm-hmm. all, it, it's, the techniques are a little different. Once you get and, into the room, it's a room, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, ladders and windows. Ladders and, and windows mm-hmm. and breaching and, and uh, the, the control of explosives was also very, very controlled yeah, yeah. in Ireland, right? Like we oh. got it for the military. But if a quarry was using explosives, I would have to go as an infantry guy before I went to special ops. I'd have to go to the quarry with a police vehicle, two Land Rovers with four soldiers in each. We'd have to... Uh, pick up the explosives, bring it to the quarry, watch it being used, and watch, supervise the burning of anything that wasn't used, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was just, and it wasn't like, if you're escorting cash, let's say, with 
two cops and four soldiers in each Land Rover. It's not like the IRA couldn't kill you on and take it. It's just, it's a mm-hmm. deterrent. Mm-hmm. To get to that million dollars, I have to kill so, four soldiers. And the public... Right. The public would turn against them if they did stuff like that, right? So it's more of a deterrent than anything yeah. else. Um, but if there was a high risk and in intel that a cash escort was going to get hit, yeah. then the ranger wing would go in and they would be the ones that escorted in regular okay. army uniforms and clothes okay. and all that. And we did that as well. Um, we did covert observation posts along the border. People would come in and say, I heard, uh, we heard machine gun fire up here in the mountain, wilderness mountains in Ireland. And we'd go in and uh, in, in civilian vans, um, we'd put in OPs and we'd have a cop with us because we didn't have powers of arrest. We'd put in an OP, we'd dig in. I became really good at OPs. I used to teach it years later in, in sniper school in America. I, I was the guy who taught OPs, but we would dig in subterranean OPs and sit there for days. Observation posts. Uh, observation really. posts, yeah. And... Uh, we were there to interdict them if they came huh. and um but that that's you know you go to these rural places and that's where weapons get zeroed and weapons get get test yeah. fired before they jump across the border and use them in operation. almost sounds like some game warden stuff yeah uh, you yeah. know up there yeah, in, a, yeah, in yeah. a ghillie suit was, or something it was interesting but i got to the point where i was like eh. you know i kind of i went back again to lebanon in like 91 as an NCO, as a non-commissioned officer, squad leader attached to the infantry, but I was a ranger. Okay. And uh, went back. Um, great, great trip. Great guys. Um, I, I, people, I, I have a problem with officers, you know. I, I grew I up understand. in that. Well, well, the Irish Army is very based on the British Army. Yeah. As most places who were colonized by British India, uh, Pakistan, they all take that British Army model. And you have that class system baked in hard and people don't even see it when you're there you just don't even see it like we were at a platoon in lebanon and we'd sit down to dinner and the officer's dinner was visibly bigger than anybody else's right it's like the navy you know yeah yeah yeah, this class system right the army are not really like that the air force are more are the navy like that too where yeah navy i think i don't know regular navy it it seems like it sometimes i didn't spend much time on ships or probably did anything with the regular navy so it's probably also baked in from films that i've seen you know the power of popular culture but you always picture the uh you know the officers mess or whatever really nice and then i mean i spent i was enlisted first so i I did some shipboarding operations as an enlisted guy and uh worked off a couple different ships i'll say the australian navy so we did one some stuff before september 11th on a u.s ship uh, like an amphib and it was, uh, morale was low, let's just say, mm-hmm. and, uh, food, not great, long lines, you know, just mm-hmm. people didn't want to be there. It didn't seem like, and then after September 11th, we worked off, uh, an Australian amphib that they bought from the U S yeah. so same, same thing. The morale through the roof. Everybody was happy to be there. They had, uh, I think it was like once a week or something. They had wine with their with their dinner. Mm. Um, everybody like the helicopters land or a boat comes to to bring on new food. Everybody like runs up to help. It's not like, hey, you Jones, wow. up there to help. Yeah. Come on, yeah. uh, why? Because you did this last week or yeah. whatever. You know, you screwed up. Uh, everybody ran, like ran up there, unloaded the food, play a game of cricket in that hangar bay area. Mm. Like it was just different. Really? It what was the key? felt different. What was the key? I don't know, probably the wine, um, but uh, I, 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 I don't I, know. I think it was just uh, it, culture. It, 
Probably. Yeah. I mean, I spent a little time in Australia, uh, yeah. backpacking around, and yeah. you know, if you know any uh, people who are Australian, I mean, I, uh, I don't maybe it's just uh, culture, and it's also it's an island of of um, criminals, yeah. <laughs> so, that, so that probably plays yeah. into it as yeah. well. Maybe you associate or yeah. uh, you know. I, I did a I little work with the Australian SES in Somalia oh, when I was cool. a contractor later on. Um, to me, Australians are tough. I'm, I. This this uh, compliance with the whole COVID thing and the gun thing in Australia mm. it kind of blows my mind know, that they strange. would go down that road. But because yeah. I didn't think culturally they were like that. But uh, yeah, the whole officer enlisted thing in that house in, in uh, Lebanon. Yeah. The officer's room was the size of this room, uh-huh. and I was stuffed in private, and there was six of us stuffed in a closet. That's what it was like on the ship. Uh, yeah. That when it was the U.S. ship, we yeah. were all stuffed as enlisted guys. We were stuffed down there mm-hmm. with our special boat guys, and we were all smushed into these little yeah. bunk bed area thing. Yeah. And then uh, you go up and see the officer's yeah. area, and you're like, yeah. hey, it's that private room and yeah. all that stuff. It's a little much, you know? Yeah. I, I could go on and on. That, it, it's interesting. I did, when I went to special ops, the very first class course I would took was a methods of instruction course. They, mm. they taught us how to teach, yeah, um, which I thought was smart. Yeah. And even in, as a Green Beret, right, your job is teaching people mm-hmm. and you don't go to an instructor course until you've been on a team for a couple of years and you oh, go back really? to be an instructor. Interesting. Like okay. I, I thought that was weird. Right. And then they sent us to the Naval base to do a Siemens course, oh. basic Siemens course, okay. knots, boat handling, okay. ship terminology, because we did special ops for the Navy as well. You probably have more uh, nautical training than I do. I might. Uh-huh. I, think, I think you it probably do. It was funny because when years later I was in a, a place, I don't know if I can say it, but one of our missions was to retake go plats off the coast of this other country like it was looking like it was going to happen okay. in the Strait of Hormuz, right? And uh, I didn't know, not all SEALs do go plat training, Right. And the SEALs that were there were briefing it. And I was like, I think I know more about this than he oh, does, yeah. you know? Uh, and I was asking questions. And the guy was like kind of uncertain. And I wasn't trying to put him on the spot, but I'd done a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And I'd been on a lot of those go-plats back in the day. And, and it, it stuck with me, you know? Um, yeah, I think of all my platoons, I think two of the seven, um, I did go-plat training. Well, here's the I thing. Think. People don't realize about special ops, right? You can't be good at everything. You just can't. You can specialize. Like, when I was a, a, a team sergeant in a SIF company in third group, I had 18 different tasks I had to be proficient on. Yeah. Like, one is, like, military freefall, right? So you go, you train for a couple of weeks, and then you put it down and yeah. you move on. Breaching, mechanical, ballistic, explosive mm-hmm. breaching, that's a whole nother segment. Reconnaissance has... 30 different subtasks inside mm-hmm. it, right? Language, driving. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that you become jack of all trades and master of one or two, right? Yeah. Um, and it's the same thing, right? You you go here, you do this, you yeah. do this, you're deploying all the time. It's very hard to keep current on everything. Um but that's that's not the public perception, right? Yeah, like and everybody a, thinks that everybody in special yeah. operations is a is a gun guy. Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's not, not the all. case. Not, not the all. case at all. Like I, I would would uh, I, I shot before I went in the military, kind of training myself up, and then while I was in, I would go if someone was coming th- passing through town. It wasn't as prevalent people traveling back then. Some people did, mm-hmm. but uh, it was like schools, like Thunder Ranch, yes, gun site, yes. that sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more established type schools. But I'd go there on yeah. the weekends. I'd drive mm-hmm. from uh, uh, from San Diego out to Arizona to mm-hmm. do a course, come back, or I'd drive to LA or wherever mm-hmm. else, uh, or the outskirts of like Riverside, um, do a course back down because I was just keeping my skills up yeah. on my own. Not and I was like looking that. out because I, I would seek out people whose only mission in life 
was to teach firearm type yeah. training. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not like uh, they had uh, tons of other things to do. Yeah. And yeah, the firearm stuff is one. No, this is their sole mission is life. They're passionate about it. They love it. Mm -hmm. And so I would try to go to as many people as I possibly could to pick up as much as I could, yeah. especially with the shotgun stuff. Because yeah. all we yeah. used the shotgun for yeah. was breaching. breaching. Yep. And mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to learn how to fight with that thing. Yeah. So I went to a couple of different courses where I learned yeah. how to fight with an 870, fight with uh, an auto-loading HK91 type yeah. of a thing. Or yeah. not, sorry, uh, the... Uh, uh, the Benelli M1 Super 90, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. um, and uh, and learn how to how to fight with those things. Mm -hmm. You know, use them as like a rifle. Um, yeah. Using those di the different loads for different mm -hmm. situations. How do you go between two different things? Yeah. Um, so so I so I'd seek that stuff out. But yeah. a lot of military people, you're right. They're they're not. They go to a little bit of training. Yeah. Maybe they shoot in boot camp. Maybe they go to if they go to infantry. Okay, they're going to get good mm -hmm. with like one weapon, maybe yeah. two. Yeah. Um, but they're not going to be able you know to use a bunch of different road? types. You know where I learned to drive off-road? I learned in Afghanistan. I'd On never the job driven training. Off, I'd no, never okay. driven off-road. Nice. I was in Afghanistan, and I'm driving a freaking uh, the Hilux? No, okay. up across a mountain and through riverbeds and, and trying to pick a track and all that, you know? Um and it's not so, like a Humvee, for those listening, if you just like to jump into a Humvee, there's some different things to it yeah, as far as uh, right, with yeah. that, what was it called? Gear throttle module? What was that thing yeah, called? The modulation? Yeah, 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 all that yeah, stuff. It's been a yeah. while. But, uh, and then fighting with vehicles, yeah. you know, when you think of, if you sit down and you mm -hmm. think about it, it makes sense. But if you just like hop into one and you've yeah. never done it before and really haven't thought about it, yeah. then it's, uh, you probably need to put some, some, some thought you do, into how you're going to maneuver these vehicles, how you're going to fight with these things. Yeah, it's a whole Because when the gunfight starts... You, 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 don't, you don't rise to the occasion, <laughs> you fall to your level of training. Yeah, exactly. And that is so true in everything. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I learned as I went. I can't believe you had that guy on your podcast, man. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Toby Harnden. So right here, so we took a little, grabbed this book, took a little break. Um, but, yeah, Bandit Country right here. And there's a photo in here we talked about with that uh, sniper at work. And who was the guy that we lo just looked at? So this says, yeah, sniper at work. Yeah, right here. propaganda, man. Amazing. I think propaganda is underappreciated. That's your hometown. Yep, Dundalk. That's where I grew. That's the town close to where I grew. Where I grew up and lived till I was twenty-five. Gosh, amazing. And where I patrolled in the border. That's where my unit was. Where I trained, and where I launched border patrols from. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of border. I did. You know the way they say, you know, proper sleep and all that. When I was in the infantry, we did seven 24-hour duties a month on the border, right? And so you'd work 24 hours on, 24 hours off for a week. So you'd work like, let's say, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And then the next week, you'd work like nine to five type of normal stuff, yeah. right? And then the next week, you'd do Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, right? So every month you did seven 24-hour duties Dang. and no sleeping. And it wore your ass out. It really did. Yeah. It took a toll. And, of course, you're in Land Rovers with open backs and freezing your ass off in the winter Dang. and sweating your nuts off in the summer. And, you know, we were talking about officers. I was on the border, <laughs> one, I was on the border one time, and there was cadets there from, like, our version of West Point, let's okay. say. And they come up to the border during the uh, part of their training to the border patrols. And one of them was in the back of the Land Rover with me. And it's going to be hard to explain this to people who can't see. But let's say the driver's here mm. and the driver would be on that side. The NCO would be here. Um, and then there's two privates in the back and we're, we're, we have our weapons like this. And the open back of the Land Rover is like this, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the British Army were doing a big operation out on this side of the border. And it's only like... 300 meters away, they were doing a big helicopter and all that. And the cadet that was facing me 
was straining out the back of the Land Rover to try to see what was going on. And I looked at the driver and he looked in the mirror and we were crawling along the road very, very slowly. And I looked at the driver and I knew what he was going to do. And he just gunned it. This kid had fell out of the back mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. crashed on the ground. Fairly typical. Gear everywhere, weapon gone. Um, yeah, that's pretty funny. Fairly typical, yeah. <laughs> but that officer exactly. probably come back as an officer later oh, on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, it. Yeah. That's why officers hate NCOs, it's man. Yeah. It's um, possible. Uh, who is it? The guy you talked about, Captain Robert. How do you say? Nyrak. Nyrak. Yeah. Nyrak was a very, very shadowy figure. Um there's a lot of speculation he was involved in a Miami sound uh, machine. It was a band yeah. that was blown up that he was there for that. He was he was so brave. He was almost suicidal. He used to get dressed up. There's a picture of him there yeah. in, in civilian clothes with a beard. And he would go into IRA pubs and sing IRA songs. And he was insane. Well, they caught on to him. That, that the places like South Armand, they're so suspicious of everybody uh-huh. that they caught on and they, they captured him and they never found his body. They oh. tortured him and killed him. And he, there's, there's a, uh, there was a, an organization kind of started to find what they called the disappeared of Northern Ireland. All the people who were murdered or killed and never, their body was never found. And they found a lot of those people through intelligence. And okay. Through, yeah. But Nyrock, they never found his body. No kidding. Yeah. Um, very, yeah, there's very a picture current. of him here all in yeah. uniform. And here's a picture yeah. of him here yep. in, uh, in civ- uh, civvies. Yeah. Man, amazing. I mean, the ball's on the guy to go into an IRA pub and, as an Englishman and sing IRA songs. Wow. Yeah. That's the, almost like Team, almost Team America, Team Police. Remember when he goes in and is dressed up in the beard? Hey, <laughs> yeah. heard about any uh, terrorist events uh, going on lately? Uh, <laughs> some people are good at that, and some people aren't. You know, yeah, um, uh, yeah. The, the, you know, in 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 SF, I don't know, if like seals, but in SF, you you kind of take your career one of two ways. You kind of take it, you know, sniper assault or. Mm-hmm kick doors in, blow charges, all that kind of thing. Or you go kind of intel and run sources yeah. and all that. I, I went this way. I, I wouldn't have been suited, I don't think, yeah. uh, the other way. Um, but it's very hard to do both, yeah. right? It's very hard. It's, right. Once you start going down that road, it's very hard right. to come back. I would rather go this road, but some yeah, guys yeah. are just good at it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we started doing that more after September 11th. And uh, yeah, I didn't go down that path either. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, a lot of report writing. Yep. I think for those guys, yep. mm-hmm. uh, but interesting, interesting yes. stuff for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. And some of the courses that are run and brag, they have ex British guys from Northern Ireland oh, nice. teaching there like technical, not technical, but physical surveillance mm. and stuff like that. Um, anyway, yeah, cause we, we get to, we get a little, uh, get a little dependent on technology We really do. Uh, in we a lot of different really ways. Do. Not just People the, don't realize, like, not just the nods and the lasers, but also on yeah, the surveillance yeah, side of the yeah, house yeah, and yeah, tracking that, those and, old school skills, man. Um, the mm-hmm. people don't realize to, to follow a car physically, you need like six cars or something like that, a minimum, yeah. or you'll be burned. Um, yeah, I did the driving courses, those are the most fun. Yeah. And I never got to do um, the O'Neill Racing course. Yeah. I really want to do that. I'm going to do that uh, soon over the next couple of years. Yeah. But um, we, but I did the BSR, I did BSR, mm-hmm. and as part of that, we did some vehicle surveillance, multiple vehicles, doing yeah. all that stuff. And that was a lot really of cool. work, yeah, it's yeah. A, and it's a skill set, yeah, like, like yeah, um. I did a little bit of that. I did a little bit of tracking and tagging cars and, no, nice. and tracking them in real time, which makes it so much easier. But again, it's technology that yeah. fails. Um, there, there's a balance, and, and we can talk about that later when we get into the force mod stuff. That 
the first mod job. The last five years of my life in, in the army, I ran force modernization for special forces. Must be really all interesting. The, all the, yeah, it really was. And I, I had a big influence in SOCOM. And I, 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 because special forces is such a big piece of SOCOM oh, yeah. that we bullied a lot of other people, right? Because yeah. well, it was just more army people in positions. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and it's also like, you know, if we, if we have a program, we're buying that mug and we're paying $10 a mug for all of SOCOM. Well, if SF pull out, well, now you're paying $20 a mug because mm. the numbers, seals are small, rangers sure. are small. Um, uh, Marsoc is tiny, you know what I mean? SF Command's a massive organization, so we were able to to bully people a little bit. <laughs> I, I tried to find yes. a softer word than bully. Yeah, no. That, well, before you were doing that, though, where did the um, so you you dabbled with possibly going to the French Foreign Legion? Yeah. How did you know about the French Foreign Legion? Uh, was it through uh, popular culture like movies and magazines and books? I think somebody who was there. Okay, and. Uh, um, not the first time. The second, I was in. Well, when I was in Somalia, there was a guy who had spent two years in French Foreign Legion, and and you were in Somalia with with who? Well, I, I let me let me just keep going because I'll, I'll jump back and forth. Yeah. It's hard for people to track. So when I was getting near, so I enlisted in the army in Ireland. Did three years, re-enlisted three more years, and then re-enlisted to do three more years. But after one year, I got out, and you can apply for what's called discharge by purchase at least you could then mm. and so if you're in your in your contracted three years you can say i want out and they'll bill how much it costs to train you oh. and they'll bill you for it now the only things that are really billable are courses that are good on the outside like if you did a chef's course or something like that repelling down buildings and shooting people no. nobody cared really? right so i paid like 1500 bucks huh? but the, the reason i get out i so that's at year seven then? So you did three, three, seven, and then... Okay. Seven years, yeah. Um, it's that seven years, I guess. And, and at that time, I was like 25. And that's a pivotal... Mm. That's a kind of very, very... Had I stayed, I probably would have still be there, right? Huh. So... And it wasn't planned. People were like, oh, how did you go from special ops in the Irish Army to special ops in the American Army? Well, there was a freaking 10-year gap there. That mm. Some of it was horrible. And in I spent six years in the infantry in the American Army I because I wasn't a citizen... I spent almost a year in Somalia as a contractor. I drove a cab. I worked construction. I did all kinds of crap jobs. But um, so what was, was your plan when you when you got out with that seventh so, year? So me and another guy who was a senior member in the unit, we started a survival company, believe it or not, right? In Ireland. Fieldcraft Survival, right? I wouldn't call that, but in Ireland. And all it was was taking people out once or twice a month, uh, rock climbing, you know, doing rappelling, doing land navigation, doing survival training, okay. a group here, a little group there. And it was kind of a, it was a hobby because I like to teach and it was a way to supplement your income because we weren't paid that well. Um, well, the unit commander got wind of it and he told us we have to stop it or get out of the unit. Mm. Now, he had no right to do that. We weren't mentioning that we were in, and it was because um, the Northern Ireland thing and it was because... Uh -huh. um, the SAS, and it was very hush-hush, and it didn't really need to be as hush-hush as it was. But um, So he told us, stop what you're doing or get out of the unit. So um, initially we were going to get out of the unit, and I have a really bad temper, so I was like, screw it, I'm just going to get out of the army. And I, so I just, I know that seems like a very bad program to have in an Irish army. Like you just pay back your 1500 bucks and yeah. you're out. Like, it seems like you have whatever, yeah. you know, like one thing, like that guy and yeah. I'm out. I know. Boom. Yeah. Cause yeah. you, you know, if you owe four more years in the U S military, you're like, yeah. I'm out. Wait, I can't really get yeah. out. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It. Right. It got me. I, yeah. I, I, 
I tried to move to another unit, and then there was a whole lot of stuff. But in the end, I was just like, I'm getting out, and I was kind of a bad temper. But um, in the in the transition period of six weeks, while my process, my paperwork was being was being processed, like the, the they had me like cleaning toilets in the unit and pulling grass up, and they tried to. And it, that was very common back then. Yeah. And I told you, I talked to that officer who was in there. The, and I, 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 he was like, it was disgusting. And that's the way things were done back there. It's like mm-hmm. they punish you for having the, the audacity to leave, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I left, I actually had tears rolling down my eyes when I walked out of that unit because I had that loss of sense of purpose. I had mm-hmm. that, all my friends were there. My whole identity was tied to that unit. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it was all stripped away. And I think because I went through it back then, I didn't go through it later on. Yeah. And at the time, I was like a little lost. So we did that. We did that company a little bit, and it was. It's hard to have an outdoor company in a country where it rains every day, you know. Uh, um, in the end, it it went round and round and round, and it kind of failed. I drove a taxi. I did a whole bunch of crap in jobs Ireland. in Ireland. Yeah. And eventually, I was just like, I, I can't do this anymore. I need to go, and I wanted to go freaking find myself almost right so i i sold my car i got the money for that i grabbed the backpack and i bought a Eurail pass to go around europe mm-hmm. and i just backpacked around europe for like six weeks was this mid 90s this was 92 okay yeah um so i just bounced around europe and that's where i met my wife actually my wife is from sweden and that's where i met so it's again it's like these little pivotal points in your life that change your trajectory and take you in a whole different direction mm-hmm. right so I, I bounced around Europe. I went to Normandy. I went to freaking Bastogne. I mm-hmm. went to all these medieval castles and all that. And it was cool because you buy one ticket yep. and you can go on any train you want. And if you don't want to pay for a hotel because you have no money, you just go to the to the train station and go, okay, this this uh, train goes to Berlin tonight and back yeah. in the morning. I'll just sleep stay on the, on the train all night and sleep, right? And it was really cool and it was yeah. really liberating. Um, but eventually I had to come home. And all my problems were still there, mm. and I just put them on hold. So I came back, and a lot of my family had emigrated to America. Okay. They'd gotten green cards through a lottery system. Um, the Irish-American politicians started this Donnelly lottery, and you just applied for it, and they drew names out of a hat, and if you got it, you got a green card, and you go to America, right? Wow. Um, but I had never applied because I had a great job. I had a great job in Ireland as well that was decently paid and that I loved. But all of a sudden, I didn't have that job anymore, so... And I didn't have a green card. So I ended up going to America on a holiday visa, which is three months. Okay. And then after that, you're an illegal immigrant, you know. And so I went uh, to New York. I worked construction for my brother and I overstayed my visa. So I was in, in America for about a year. I used to go rock climbing in uh, New Pulse. It's upstate New York uh, near West Point. Um the gunks, it's called. I used to go rock climbing every single weekend, and that was my, my that was my adrenaline. It was like okay. it was like a junkie. If I didn't get that, like some weekends we'd have to work, and I wouldn't get that adrenaline, uh-huh. and I'd be just depressed the whole next week. I'd be Kidding. down in the dumps, and it was hard years, you know. They they say, some somebody I saw something recently where somebody was saying, you know, from zero to twenty five in your life is like the good it's all partying and fun and you're a kid and you're at school and you know you're drinking and and you're partying and and maybe you go to college or you go in the army whatever that right from 25 to 50 is the hard years really that's (laughs) when you have a family that's when you're strapped for cash that's when you got to do all the hard work and then when hopefully when you're 50 and on you get to you know 
feel the fruits of that labor, right? So at 25, I'm out of the army and I'm like in America, illegal immigrant. Um, Where were you living at the time? New York, in the like, Bronx. No kidding. Yeah, I lived with my brother for a little bit and then I got an apartment. And there's a whole substructure set up for illegal immigrants in those Irish neighborhoods. And it's the same in Hispanic neighborhoods and all that where... You can function quite effectively, okay. even though you don't have a green card or okay. you don't have a social security number. Everything's cash. Do you have a driver's um, license? I'm sorry, what? Do you have a driver's license? Or kind of- yeah, there's ways to do it. Now, I don't know what they do now, yeah. but you could go to the social security administration office and say, I am here for six months on vacation, but I want to buy a car and travel, so I need a driver's license, so I need a social security card. So they give you a social security card with a number, and it would say, not for work purposes, right? But then when you go to get a driver's license, you just give them the number, you don't give them the actual card, uh-huh. and then you get a driver's license. And with a driver's license, you can basically do anything you want. Wow. Right? Okay. And even like construction companies, like my brother has his own construction company, illegal immigrant. He was an illegal immigrant at his construction company. And of course, he's all these guys are illegal, and they're all working off the books. So it's hard to compete with that when you have a legitimate company and you're paying workman's comp and all wow. that stuff, right? Now, when the when a job pays you 20 grand by check, how do you cash that check, right? Well, it's all tied through the bars, the Irish American bars in, Ameri- in, in the Irish neighborhoods. The barman who knows you gives you the head nod. The check gets cashed behind the bar. They take a certain percentage and the rest goes to, to the guy, right? Wow. So it's money laundering wow. on a massive scale. And that's Amazing. one guy. And there's probably hundreds of those yeah. going on at the time in the 90s, especially. Yeah. Um, wow. it, it's so, and it's hard for American companies who are paying all the workman's comp and all that taxes wow. to compete with jobs like that. Um, now, I, if people are like, oh, what do you think of the, the southern border, illegal immigration since you were illegal? I, I think. I, I paid dearly for that later on. I paid thousands of dollars in fines to, mm. to get legal, right? Anyway, so I worked there for about a year. And I wasn't happy, but I was like treading water. Like I, I, and that's when I was going back to the French Foreign Legion. I that's what really, you're thinking about it. Yes. And I, 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 I was, uh, I did a lot of PT. I was very physically fit, I did a lot of rock climbing. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a climbing instructor in the Irish Army. I went okay. to a climbing instructor's course. I like climbing. Um, the, uh, but I was, I was pretty fucking miserable, really. And then I got a call one day. My mom had cancer and she was terminal. And I remember the call well. It almost like the, my knees buckled when I heard it. Like she had problems and she was going in to get tests and of course she had problems for a long time but she's old school mm-hmm. and she wouldn't get checked out um says the guy with multiple injuries that will not get mm-hmm. surgery uh, um but very tough woman very strong very uh like minimal education growing up but just hard and very mm-hmm. very intelligent and very good at managing very difficult situation anyway mm-hmm. that the, the and she was terminal. She had like six weeks to live or something like that. And so I was like, screw it, I'm going back, right? I'm going back to see her. Now, when, you, when you're when you illegal immigrant and you go back, you're not getting back. You're not getting another holiday visa because they know you overstayed your visa, right? So I'm like, I- I'm willing to do it. So I, I got rid of my car, my apartment, and I got on a plane. I went back home. And it turned out that when they did a biopsy and she was riddled with cancer and it was... It was ovarian cancer, which was very treatable with chemotherapy, but the doctor misdiagnosed it as bowel cancer. 
and gave her six weeks to live. Well, after like two months passed and she hadn't passed away, my sister started asking about the test results of the biopsy. And the doctor got pissed, like that they were daring to question her. And she then she went in and looked and figured out it wasn't bowel cancer, it was ovarian cancer, and it could be treated. So then they started chemotherapy, but we'd lost like two months, right? And it was just going, it was horrible, right? It was it was destroying her, and she was on morphine, and, and it, it, it was very difficult. Cancer is very difficult on the family, right? It, it, it's a death sentence, and, you know, it, it just drags on and on and on, and it, it was horrible. But I was at home at the time, unemployed, no money, fuck, sorry, low point of my life, like really low. Um, and I, 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 I it, it took a toll on me, it really did. And at the lowest point, um, a guy approached me about going to Somalia as a contractor. And, you know, we call it a contractor now. Back then we called it a freelance security consultant, Right. And the the leap between mercenary and security consultant and contractor is 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 not that much, right? Mm-hmm. So this guy was in the range wing with me. He got out. He'd been in Somalia, and he hooked up with these Brits that were working for a logistics company out of London, and they needed hired guns basically uh, because Somalia, Mogadishu was such a dangerous place. Now Black Hawk Down was October '93. This was I landed in country in February '94, right after mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down, and it was the D most dangerous country in the or a city in the world bar none and you know they hated americans even though i was irish if, if you're white you're american mm-hmm. to them you're mm-hmm. all americans right um i jumped at the opportunity to go i i would have went for free for the adventure and because it, it was like the therapy i needed at the time yeah. and i was at a very very low point in my life so i jumped at it I had to do it. I would have done it. I got well paid, but I would have done it for free. And I didn't even know what I was doing. So I get there. I fly in. I take a flight from Dublin to London, from London to Nairobi, Kenya. And then uh, a UN flight into Mogadishu and I land. And uh, I get met at the airport by two British guys, the SAS guys that they had to be an AK-47 and a pistol belt with some mags on it. And they're like, let's roll. And we drive out the gate into downtown Mogadishu and back to the house. We were living in a house which is crazy in downtown Mogadishu at the time. Now, we lived in several places in the time I was there. We had to keep moving because we kept getting attacked. Um, but uh, crazy, crazy adventure. Um, post-apocalyptic city, completely no law, dead bodies in the street, technical vehicles everywhere, militia running everything. And we had militia hired with us because you can't right. go anywhere without... The militia who owned that part of the city. Um, what was your mission? What were you guys doing? We were uh, we were working for a, a shipping company out of London, and what they would do is when the when all the UN countries that were there. So when the Americans left, it was left with Pakistanis and Malaysians and mm. Egyptians, a lot of Muslim countries, and they said they weren't there to fight with their Muslim brothers, mm. and they let. Somalis in the gate with guns and were taking bribes and it was it was out of control. But when all those military units, to include the American military, if they want a hundred trucks brought in to Mogadishu, they don't have shipping containers and all that kind of so they put it out to uh, bid for for units or for companies to bid on. So our company, you had to be there to get that uh, solicitation. You'd put in a bid. And then the lowest bidder basically got the contract. And okay. then 
the ship would come in, they'd fly in a port captain, he would come in, he'd supervise all the Somali stevedores and they would unload the ship. Um, and then, but they needed security because it was so dangerous for the civilian uh, staff who worked who's there. Who's bringing it in? Like who's... Uh, shipping companies, right? Yeah, but, so, what, but what are they, what, what's on there? Are they bringing in food? Oh, they bringing food, in... vehicles, okay. armor. Uh, a lot of it was pulling stuff out by the time mm. I got there, right? Because the mission had failed. Um, but it, it was all kinds of stuff. It was containers, okay. it was vehicles. And, and I actually learned a lot about ships at that time because you have these big shipping things yeah. and all the heavy stuff, the vehicles on the bottom, they're roll okay. on, roll off. And then all the containers on the top and they're all attached uh, together and cranes. And, and it, it, was, it was insane. But if you weren't there to bid on that contract, you wouldn't get it. Now yeah. we were, I, I have to be very careful what I say because... I could say this, I think. Like, there was incidents where certain contractors, special operations backgrounds, not us, of course, would pick the locks of the UN offices, hack the computers, see what the other companies were bidding, and underbid them. It's called industrial espionage, right? Mm -hmm. Totally unethical. I mean, who would do that, right? But mm -hmm. um, So we were there because we had shipping assets and because we had staff there who needed security in the most dangerous city in the world um and we were well paid and, and the mission was not super well defined um but it it, it became I, I you were showing me a dragon off earlier on i was going to tell you i'm going to say tell you a dragon off story but when we were living in this house we had this big mansion outside in the in the city basically um which we ended up leaving because we kept getting attacked but um when I got there, we had like 30 staff. Most of them were guards. They were security personnel okay. who were all high on cot. You know, they're, they're mm -hmm. chewing the cot. And, uh, but if you don't have them, you'll be killed instantly, right? And then some of them were staffed to make food for us, laundry. Okay. Like we lived in the high life, at least at the start, until we had to leave there. Um, but a guy brought me up on the roof the first day or two I was there. And he said, check this out. And between us and the airport there was a road and there was a bandit that used to sit on that road with an AK and people would be walking to work and he'd just shoot somebody dead, bang. And you'd see them fall. He'd go up there, he'd rob them and he'd roll the body into the ditch. Mm. And then he'd go back and everybody'd run away. Now, 20 minutes later, all back because he had to go down that road to go to work or go wherever and he'd shoot him again. So I got a dragon off and I was going to shoot this guy. And of course, I don't want to draw a bunch of fire in, in the house. Mm -hmm. So I pulled back deep in to the house and shoot from a very, very con mm. concealed position. But the freaking dragon off was a piece of garbage and it had a cracked sight on it and it, it, it just didn't work. It was, it's like uh, an AK, even at its best, it, is. it takes you 200 yards farther. Yeah, it's not a Maybe. great piece of gear, you know? And then, you know, we bought weapons at Bakara Market, um, mm. but it's mostly Soviet stuff, like mm. no really good weapons. Um, and, you know, we had MP5s that we brought into the country somehow and MP5 is a great weapon. It is a classic. Not real good at 300 yards. Yeah. It's a pistol caliber, mm -hmm. right? So one time we got fired at from distance. So I, I hung that thing on my wall and I got a Galil out of a captured weapons facility nice. and ran a Galil. Awesome. Um, it, it, it's very, people want to hear all these war stories and shootings. It's very difficult to navigate, honestly, because number one, I have a couple of concerns when I talk about shooting and gunfights and combat. Number one, I don't want to sound like a douchebag right. that's on the freaking internet all the time talking about shooting people in the face and look how cool I am. I don't want to be associated with that. Yeah. Number two, 
I don't want people to think I'm a freaking sociopath and taking human life is taken lightly. It's not, right? I just happened to find myself in a couple of positions where I, I had to do it, right? I put myself in those positions, but... And that's number three, or number two. Number three, there's no context. There's no context to how dangerous it was in Mogadishu, in Afghanistan, when you were there, in Iraq, at the height of the war. It's very hard to um, explain how dangerous it was there, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I, I try to navigate through without being too specific. And I did a, a podcast a while ago on my own podcast about Somalia and Mogadishu. And after it, was, after it was over, my wife was like, you shouldn't say that because you were not even part of a military there. You were a hired gun and you talk about shooting people and stuff like that. And I re I re re-recorded it. I did. Oh really? Yeah, I did. And well, now people are going to want the original, the director's I know, cut. I know. You know? But I, I often said, if I ever wrote a book, I'd, I'd yeah. write it, I'd write it loosely on my life, but I'd make it fiction because then I could put anything I want. I could tell the truth. And there nobody can say, I, can't I was going to ask you about that yeah. actually at the end. I, I can't was. believe you shot that guy, or I could I could embellish whatever I wanted. Well, did you get that the guy by the, the shooting people as they walked by? No, I didn't get him. I oh, did he just stay there? What? Uh, yeah, he. Well, we we got attacked in that house. We got attacked the night we were the night I arrived. We got attacked, uh, and we got attacked multiple times. And it was just bandits. We're trying to take our shit, basically, mm-hmm. right? So the night I arrived, I I came in. I got a briefing on how to do laundry and where the kitchen was. And I was like, what are the rules of engagement, right? Because I, I dealt with rules of engagement in Ireland, in Lebanon, mm-hmm. and now in Somalia. And I'm like, and nobody really could give me an answer. It was so dangerous that it was so loose. But so I didn't get any answer, really. Well, I was jet lagged like crazy. And the guy I came in to replace, he went on leave, right? So I came in, he flew out that day. So they're like, hey, his room is up there. Go ahead and, and crash out. So I go up, I have my AK, I have my mags. Um, I drop him in the corner. I lock the door so the Somalis don't kill me in the middle of the night. And I crawl into bed. Well, the guy that left, um, he liked to party and sleep late. And all his windows were completely blacked out. So in the middle of the night, gunfire started hitting the house. And we're under attack. And the rest of the guys, I think there's three of them there at the time, they're on the roof with our, with our indage, and they're getting after it. And there's no nods. You don't no have, nods. Right. No nods. I roll out of bed. I have no flashlight. I can't find the door. <laughs> I have no idea where That's I crazy. am. I spent 15 minutes crawling to... around the room trying to find the light switch. Uh-huh. I'm totally unfamiliar uh-huh. with the building. By the time I get the light switch on, get my guns, get to the roof, gunfight's over. And I'm like, wow, these th- these guys think I'm a coward now. And I was hiding downstairs. Uh, it's funny to look back on, but man, I should have been better prepared. But I had no idea what I was getting into. Honestly, it wouldn't have stopped me, but it was uh, extremely dangerous. We got attacked a bunch of times. And in the end, we had to bug out with a bag and go live at the airport. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it was... Uh, and then, like, if you if you drove through the city, mm-hmm. through Mogadishu during the fighting, it, it our indage would drive the vehicle for us. Um, what you guys have? You have Hiluxes and stuff like that? We had, yeah, Hiluxes, yeah. We had a couple of Hiluxes and a Land Cruiser, I think. And nice. uh, But we had no armor in, and we had an armored Kevlar blanket, and we mm-hmm. got shot at a lot. Like, if you were through the city, you were generally okay because your indage are driving, mm-hmm. and they own the city, and everybody knows them, and it's the only mm-hmm. way you can function. 
But if there's too much fighting in the city and we had to go, so there was three main locations. There was the airport and the seaport, which are kind of connected by okay. a connecting road. Then there's the American Embassy compound, which is a massive compound further down in the city. Okay. And they were the only places we went. And generally, if you went from the airport to the American Embassy compound, you took a flight, a helicopter, a human. Okay. But the UN wouldn't let us on. They'd bump us all the time. Was it contract. old school Huey or like a, a modern contracted no, super Huey type thing? old school Huey, right? Uh -huh. UN, uh, but they wouldn't let us on because we're contractors. They'd bump us all the time. So we had to drive. And driving was extremely dangerous. And if you either, when the Americans were there, there was a, a ring road that went out into the desert and in the other side. Mm. And the Americans had uh, positions, checkpoints every 100 yards on that thing. But after the Americans left, nobody was out there. And it was full of bandits that were trying to disable your vehicle and take your shit, basically, yeah. right? So you'd be in a running gunfight the whole way and then the whole way back that day. And it didn't phase me, not even slightly. I didn't care. I was at a very low point before that because my mom uh, and all that. And I was, I was almost at a point where I was like... Had your mom passed away? Yeah, she died. Yeah, she died before I left. But... Um, that, but I, I was at a point where I was like, this is awesome, you know? Um, it was... It was a little surreal. I have no pictures. I, I'm very bad at taking pictures. And almost every picture I have, somebody gave me. I have yeah. a couple of pictures from Somalia. Um, and uh, There's some good ones on your Instagram. Yeah, yeah. You know, the those ones, ones where I'm have. like, how old is this guy? Like, how is he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the body armor on. Yeah, old school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a crazy, crazy time. And no law, right? There was yeah. an Islamic courthouse downtown. Okay. And there, yeah, there was railings around it and those hands stuck to the railings in various degrees of flesh rotting because they'd shot people's hand off for stealing. Um, in the airport or at the at the seaport, there was a prison. I looked at it recently on Google Earth. It's still there. But you look at the seaport and then up on the hill behind it, there was a prison where they, they threw people in prison. But it was up to the families to come feed them or they just starve to death. And one day we could hear a shooting, like, boom, boom, like short bursts all day. And we asked this guy uh, who was head of security for the seaport, what's going on? He said, they're overcrowded. They're, they're making room for more prisoners. Mm -hmm. Just like shooting people, right? Um, savage place. Absolute stoning people to death, stoning women to death while we were there. Um, mutilation of young girls, like just, just a savage place. And totally broken down and totally lawless. And um, no accountability for oh, yeah. anything, um, but exactly what I needed at that point in my life. And it really did put me back on the, the right track, you know? Um, How many of you guys were there? Well, did I, people come in and out while you were there or was it like one group? I stayed there the whole time with one other guy and he had been... Royal Marine Commando fought in okay. the Falklands. Yeah. Had been uh, oh. SAS, had been 14th Inc. Group in Northern Ireland. Great guy. Freaking great guy. A little big dude too. A little too aggressive for a big dude to be. Um, <laughs> me and him went to pay a bill one time at the Mogadishu Port Authority. And when we got there, there was a riot going on outside. People with stakes, bang. And, and we we're like, oh, we better come back later. And we went back and we we're drinking tea. And he was like, Screw this, let's go. <laughs> like, all right. And we go, we push our way through a riot to get to the door. And of course, they won't open the door at the Mogadishu Port Authority. They're like, no. And we're like, shit. We turn around, there's an angry mob around us. And we're just, well, here we go. We got to push our way back through. And um, had had they attacked us, a lot of them would have got killed because I had a mini Uzi. <laughs> and oh, I just wow. would have started killing people, man, because... Um, but it was stupid to do that. It mm -hmm. was, we went back 
to that house we bugged out of to get our gear or furniture back and got in a freaking gunfight. Like it was just dumb. And it, it, a young man doesn't look at things like that. Mm. But when you look back now, you're like, what do we need? We needed our furniture. We needed like, uh, why did we go back there? It was just dumb. Like it, it, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but it was, one guy got shot in the hand. Nobody else got killed. Before I got there, about a week before I arrived in country, they were going on that ring road and they got stopped and pulled out of the car by children with AK-47s. Oh, wow. They put them on their knees, disarmed them all, mm. and they were going to execute them all. And the village elder came down and kind of defused it and gave them one vehicle to get out of there. Wow. And they lost all their weapons, all their radios, everything. So never again was the policy not getting stopped. Everybody dies if that's the case because they 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 were very close to getting executed. Um, that's great. I love all the stories. Like, are these executive outcome days? Like, uh, you know, the, yeah, the British military. Yeah. I don't even know if they called them private military companies it, they, back they then. They called you know? them, well, it was called Sandline International for a while, and then it was executive outcomes, okay. right? Um, it's amazing what a few motivated well-trained soldiers can do yeah. in a conflict like that um that the somalis were the un were pumping millions of dollars a day into mogadishu mm. by itself and all they had to do was stop fighting but they couldn't they couldn't help themselves it's so bread that our house where we were in our guards would be on the roof and we'd lock the door at night because we weren't coming in killing us because as soon as it becomes more profitable to kill you and take your shit and then mm. you know we paid them well but they, they were part of this clan, right? The Somali nationalized. The, the other clan would come up and shoot at that clan. And then our guards would open fire on them and draw fire in our house. And we'd yell at them and take their ammo off them and tell them we're going to fire them. And they'd be all apologetic. And then two nights later, they'd do the same thing again. They just couldn't help themselves. Um, strange, strange country, strange culture. Um, You're doing this for six months? I did it for like eight months. Eight months. And Are you I, married at the time? No, I wasn't married okay. at the time. Um, it was, I, I actually left as the, as the mission wound down. Mm. It, was it, was, it, was, it was grinding to a halt. Okay. And the UN were like, we're out. We can't do this anymore. We, 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 can't, uh, we can't help these people. So when I came back to Ireland after that, yeah. I had gotten a green card through the lottery system. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, because they applied. So you applied before you left. I don't even remember applying, but yes, I applied, <laughs> right? So, but I'd missed it. I'd missed the cutoff for my interview at the embassy in uh, Dublin. And I was like, damn it. So I went up there and I told them I was doing humanitarian work in Africa. Hey. This is almost true. Yeah, yeah. That's um, called a very fine line. So, yeah. So they, they, they made me pay a bunch of fines because I'd overstayed my visa before. Ah, okay. And thousands of dollars, but I had plenty of money coming out of Somalia. Okay. And, uh, they gave me a green card and I was like, Oh hell yeah. So now I'm going back to America with about 40 grand in my pocket and sky's the limit. Right. Um, so I get back. I, I think I worked, I did, I worked construction a little bit just to try to figure out what I'm going to do. Back in New York. Yeah. Back in New York. And then I worked for this like 95 or what is it? Uh, yeah. But 95 worked, uh, worked, uh, Worked for a moving company a little bit because I just didn't like construction, I didn't like painting. My wife came over, you know. Um, we were married at the time, but we got married shortly after. So now mm. I'm married. And then a buddy of ours were, uh, he was working with us in New York and he had moved to San Francisco and got a job in San Francisco. And San Francisco was liberal, but it wasn't the cesspool it is now. But uh, 
He was like, come out here. It's really nice. California's really nice, which it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're like, screw it. So we just jumped in the, in a, I had a Jeep Cherokee and we just drove out to, to, to um, California and I started working there. But I tell you, after you've done the kinds of things I'd done to that point, mm-hmm. very hard to paint walls and paint. Yeah trim and and get excited about it you know mm. so i was making good money they actually put me in charge of jobs because you know i really didn't know what i was doing i had leadership ability and mm-hmm. i could make people get the job done um but i just I, I i felt myself getting that black cloud over my head and i just could not see myself doing this for the rest of my life and i felt that draw again and i came home one day and i said to my wife i want to go in the army and she understood she was like do it so I'm back in the American Army in 96, March 96, as a private E1, starting at the bottom. And I was 29. And 29 is young, but it's old when Not you're with exactly. a bunch of 18-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. And they're all calling me pops, you know, yeah. like I'm an old man. <sighs> um, and where is basic? Where are you? Fort Benning, Georgia. Yeah. I just said I want to be in the infantry. Yeah. Infantry, boom. Um, I couldn't. I was a not a U.S. citizen. I had a green card. You can join with a green card. You have eight years to become a citizen or you have to get out. Okay. So after, if you do three and then you do three more, they will not let you re-enlist for three more unless you're a U.S. citizen. Okay. So I went in. I uh, I went to basic. I, 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 I told myself I'm just going to keep my head down and keep a low profile. Pff, that didn't happen. Oh. As soon as I ran my mouth, they're like, where are you from? Exactly. Blah, blah, blah. And then, <laughs> then they, they saw I was older and I was more mature and I kind of knew what I was doing, so they put me in charge. I mean, you're probably older than a couple... Maybe probably drill sergeants. the drill sergeants. I damn sure had more combat time than the drill sergeants, mm-hmm. especially at that point. Yeah. Um, but they treated me pretty good. They, 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 you know, my background come out. I talked to them a little bit. With some of them had been in Somalia with Tent Mountain Division. Okay. Um, they, they treated me quite well. But I did basic um, AIT advanced infantry training in Fort Benning, and then I I got sent to Fort Hood, Texas, my first duty station. Okay which was a crappy duty station. It was a horrible place to be, especially in the 90s. Clinton had gutted the U.S. Uh, military. As you know, you uh, were in at that point too, yeah. right? Um, he gutted the military and there was, yeah. were you? I came in 96, buds. Yeah. January 97. I yeah. came in 96 too, yeah. Um, but but Fort Hood, Texas was not a good duty station at the yeah. time. They put me into a mechanized infantry unit um, and it was, it was kind of crappy, right? It wasn't great. But my first kid was born in, in two. My boys, were, my first two boys were born in Fort Hood, Texas. Okay. Um, my wife was still a Swedish citizen, did not have a green card. And even though she's married to me, she doesn't get a green card. Interesting. And so she was illegally in the country. So I went to JAG <laughs> and I'm like, look, two boys, American citizens. I have a green card. My wife's an illegal immigrant. Let's let's do something here to get this done. But because I was private, nobody would help me. No way. Shitty chain of command. Um, I went to JAG, talked to JAG, and, you know, I didn't know at the time, but JAG's job is to protect the commander, really. Mm-hmm. And they said they'd look into it, and then they called me back a couple of weeks later, and they said, not only do we, can we not help you, we have a legal obligation to report your wife to the INS and have her deported. That's what they told me, right? Um, so, I, so I put in for a compassionate... Re- did they do it? No. They, they, I put in for a compassionate reassignment to Germany on the grounds that my wife's illegally in the country, and I got denied. Yeah, ridiculous. Like that's hmm. a, that's grounds for a compassionate reassignment. So it dragged on and dragged on, and then um, when my two year window, my two years in the army came up, my window opened up for reenlistment. So I reenlisted to go to Germany. I'm trying to get my wife out and sort that stuff mm-hmm. out, right? So I went to Germany. I spent four years in Germany. Where were you? In uh, Vilsack, in southern Germany, near okay. 
uh, and they're bomb holder and they're a lot of bases down. They're really nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. had a good time in Germany. Uh, did a lot of travel, went to Italy yeah. a bunch. Um, but all pre 9-11, obviously. Mm-hmm. So when uh, eventually I got my citizenship, and it was funny because I had to fly back to the States uh, from Germany on my own dime. I had to go to New York and do the interview and all that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Then I had to fly back to Germany. Then a couple of months later, when my paperwork's processed, I fly back to swear wow. in. So there was a guy in my platoon who was Colombian. He said, ask them to, where your class is, and ask them to do it right there and then, and they'll do it. And so that's what I did. And I flew back to uh, Manhattan in uh, January 2002, so right after 9-11. And there's this whole, mm-hmm. you know, U.S. military, you know, support going on. So I get back there in class A's. I'm standing in this big line of INS in New York. You can imagine the port of entry. Um, and the guard sees me. He comes walking out. He asks me for my ID card. I show him and he takes me in the back door. He's like, you're a Predator employee. You don't, you don't stand in this line. Wow. They take me upstairs. They process my paperwork, swear me in, boom, leave you a citizen. That nice. Day. Yeah, it was awesome. Okay. Um, so then I'm cleared hot for selection. So okay. I put my packet in for selection. Um, I get a selection date. I go to selection uh, for special forces. I pass and I go back to Germany. So you just have in Bragg. Yes, Bragg. I flew back to Bragg, did selection, three weeks. Um, flew back. I was like 35 at the time, right? But I was in great shape. And uh, that's actually, I, I think you're in better shape in your 30s and you're in your mm-hmm. 20s personally. But um, flew back, did selection, flew back to Germany and waiting for a Q course date. So I get a Q course date to come back to, to mm-hmm. um, the whole qualification course for like a year long. Um. I have to go to airborne school first, get my airborne school okay. days. I got... My so that's a requirement? You have to go to yes. airborne okay. Yeah, you go to airborne school first. Um, uh, my daughter's born in Germany at the time, right? And so now I have three kids. <laughs> uh, we get... Uh, I'm a US citizen now, so my wife can get legalized, right? We do all the paperwork, okay. we're waiting on it. It's coming... We turn in, we, we ship our car, we ship our household goods, we're turning over our house. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go to pick up my wife's visa and they tell us that uh, not uh, they tell us that she's banned from the US for 10 years because she overstayed her visa. Yeah. Oh, jeez. So I'm like, oh my God, what the <laughs> hell do we do now? I've got a Q course date next week. And your stuff's gone. I, and my stuff's gone, right? So uh, the, the battalion commander of that unit was really cool. And he got her a car through the, the family readiness group. Mm. They extended her apart, the apartment we mm. had. They got her some furniture. They, they took care of it. I had to go. I had to go. I went to airborne school, went to the Q course. Four months later, I wrote to congressman and, I, and I, I did a lot of stomping. And four months later, she got a, a, a waiver. And she could come back. And did I, all the writing congressmen and all that stuff, did that, that help? Or how, did, what was that yeah, route? It, okay. No, it, it absolutely did, yeah. Um, so uh, she could come over for the coup. While I was in Germany, I went to uh, Kosovo for nine months. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah. I went to Kuwait for four months. Oh, wow. And then I went to Kosovo for nine months. And we rolled into Kosovo right after that. The, you remember that whole bombing thing? We bombed the crap out of them. And then the Serbs eventually pulled out. And they, they sent a unit in there. And they were in there for about three months, I think. And then we rolled in. Okay. And we spent nine months in Kosovo. What was your mission over and, there? Uh, we were in a Serb village. And we were basically because... Like, the Serbs did horrible things to the Albanian population in Kosovo. But when the Serb military pulled out, some Serbs stayed there. Mm. And there was Serb villages. And 
but they were surrounded by Albanian villages and the Albanians wanted them out. So every time they stepped out of the protection of the village they were in, mm -hmm. they were getting murdered and they'd go hunting, they'd get murdered, they'd, mm -hmm. their car would get stopped on the road, they'd get taken out and shot in the back of the head and we were there to try to protect the, the Serbs and, and keep them, keep the Serbs and Albanians from mm -hmm. killing each other. Didn't really work, but um, that's what we did. We lived in a, we, we had a platoon and I was in E6 and I was staff sergeant at the time and, and a squad leader and we lived in a, in a, a village um, in Kosovo and we did a lot of patrols and checkpoints and all that kind of thing. My platoon leader in, in uh, Germany and in Kosovo was a guy called Nate Self. He left, and he was a rock star. He was a, he was a uh, West Point officer, and uh, he was really squared away. Mm. Well, when he left our infantry unit, he went to Ranger Regiment. He was handpicked to go to Ranger Regiment. Um, at the start of GWAT in Tora Bora, when, uh, was it Neil Roberts fell out of the helicopter? When he fell out of the helicopter... Nate Self was the platoon leader with Ranger Regiment that came in the Chinook in mm -hmm. Tucker Gore mm -hmm. and landed and got shot to pieces, lost four of his guys on the ramp and called in a drone strike wow. on the, the first drone strike ever from a, a Predator drone in Afghanistan. That was Nate Self, wow. war hero, like Silver Star, West Point of it, groomed, would have been a general, but went back to Ranger Regiment uh, PTSD destroyed his life because uh, he was one of the first to get it from Vietnam because that mission was so early on, um, there was no mechanism to deal mm -hmm. with it. And it, it it tore him apart. He wrote a book called Two Wars explaining oh. the whole thing, okay. um, which if you don't understand PTSD, it's a good book to read because I will tell you, this guy was a warrior and he was probably the best officer I've ever served with. Mm -hmm. And it tore him apart he suicidal, like he, he he recovered in the end, um, but but rock solid guy. Um, so I spent nine months in Kosovo, spent four months quit, nine months in Kosovo, came back, then came back to the Q course and went through the Q course. And I, because I had all the leadership done, stuff done, and I was uh, already staff sergeant, I went start to finish on the Q course in a, in a year, which is unheard of now. Um, SUT small unit tactics, like six weeks. Um, then the MOS phase, I was an 18 Bravo, a weapon sergeant. That I was, was like you. four months. I was going to guess. Yeah. Um, then it was seer school. Okay. And then it was language. No, I'm sorry. Then it was language school. What'd you get? Language. French. Huh? French, Africa, right? And I did French in high school. I was actually pretty good at it. And I came out nice. with a two plus, two plus. I was almost fluent, like right there. Mm -hmm. Then I never smoked it again for the rest of my career. I had a similar we situation to, happen. We yeah. were going to Africa at the time. Yeah. And then I just went to Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, that's, um, that's a very similar thing happened to me. I did French at DLI yeah. and I uh, graduated with a little above whatever they wanted you. I forget what the yeah. school yeah. was. But uh, then what I, I did, because they, they thought I was going to do some operations in Northern Africa, West Africa. And I ended up going to West Africa, but I had a terp the entire time. Yeah. So I, yeah. I was all excited to use my French and then I had a terp the entire time that I'd used. We get lazy. But, and, you know, the, the big seller for, for special forces, for Green Berets especially, is the whole language capability. Mm -hmm. Honestly, 7th Group, very good. A lot of them are Hispanic guys. They all speak Spanish. The group speaking Spanish. They can do it at that level. Mm -hmm. It's hard to teach somebody in Mandarin Chinese or Russian yeah. or Pashto or Dari. And then you've taken them out for some of those languages. Yeah. You've taken them out for a year, yeah. 18 months, yeah. I think, for some of those Perishable. courses. And then yeah. you're back in. Now all your peers are yeah. uh, ahead of you as far mm -hmm. as tactics, deployments, whatever, experience, yeah. that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can do some 
some, you know, some guys can you know pick it up or whatever, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an investment. It's that 18 different tasks, right? Yeah. Language is one. And then they realigned the groups later on and in third group had a different area and they changed all the language, made people go back to language school. Oh, and now man. they're back at that. Was original. your language school at Bragg? Did you guys do it at Bragg? I, yeah. I didn't have to go because I was a master sergeant. You didn't have to go if you're a master sergeant, but, um, and then they realigned it again. And what is back. your initial, your initial language training? Oh yeah. Yeah. Everything's, up, everything's most right. things. Or did our brag? Um, and then you did Robin Sage after your we language? We did Robin Sage. Oh, I'm sorry. We did SUT, small unit tactics, six weeks. Then we did the MOS phase, the 18 Bravo weapon sergeant course. Mm -hmm. Then we did Robin Sage, okay. which was phenomenal. And then we did language school and seer school. And okay. that, was, that was the end of it. Now, when I was done, I just want to go to war. It was 2003. And we just invaded Iraq. We're in Afghanistan. I'm like, woo, here we go. So because they pulled so many guys from the Q course instructors to send them back to their groups, because there was so much going on, they needed instructors at small unit tactics. So they took like 15 of us with infantry backgrounds uh -huh. and said, you guys are going to go back and be instructors at this, this month. And I was oh. losing my mind. And where's your family at this point? Oh, we're all a brag. Yeah, yeah we're all a brag. I, I eventually got my whole family over, right? When, when I'm four months into the Q course. So we're all a brag. But, um, so I'm like losing my mind. This is BS. I'm pissed. And I end up not, I only did, I was only there for two classes, like four months or something, five months. Mm -hmm. But, um, I had all my arguments why this is a bad thing. Cause we had to go see the, the training group command sergeant major. Right. And we had, I had all my arguments lined out. This is a bad idea, blah, blah, blah. And before I got to talk, you know, the, the, the command sergeant major started blowing smoke. Like, you guys were the best guys we could find. Handpicked. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh -huh. And uh, one guy said, hey, sergeant major, I failed small unit tactics when I went through the Q course. I had to recycle. Wow. And the sergeant major said, this is a good opportunity for you to brush up on your skills. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so oh, I was yeah. like, I'm not even going to speak. There's no, no getting out of this. So I, I did I did two classes there as as an instructor at Smolnia Tactics, and then I finally got to launch to Afghanistan. Okay. In two thousand four. So what group uh, are you with now? Third group. Okay. Yeah, and link up my team on the ground. Um, flew into to Kandahar, got a flight to Bargram, and then got a helicopter out to Organi, and mm -hmm. then we moved from Organi as a team with a bunch of jingle trucks and all the crap to a skin fire base. Been there too. Yeah. And so I spent like six months and about four months in skin. Uh, Skin's an interesting place because it's so close to the Pakistani border. We got rocketed all the time. But it was very cool to be able to do that that early in the war yeah. because later on it was all about the Afghan army. But back then it was militia. And we had yeah. what's called the ASF, the Afghan Security Force. And they're basically just mercenaries, right? They're okay. militia. They, so we, we had a small core of them, like five or six of them. And we rolled out to Shkin and it was about six of us. And we took over from like two companies of infantry and we, we re-secured the base. I built the base defense plan. And then we put word out to the local population, hey, we're, we're building an army to fight the Taliban. Come tomorrow for an interview and bring your own gun because we don't have any guns for you. Wow. And we took them in. We vetted them as best we could. We trained them in very basic infantry tactics. Yeah. We found a confidence target to start off with, something easy. And then we hit target and we built all our own intel. We did everything yeah. ourselves. And we hit another target. We'd get weapons. We'd re redo the issue mm -hmm. the weapons to our guys. Um, we'd hit another target. We'd find RPGs. And we, just came, we just kept training them and building that army. And that's the classic SF mission. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and before before nine eleven, that was SF's thing, right? Yeah. Then during GWAT, everybody was doing it because that's where the work was, and yeah. everybody wanted to do the work. Um, so everybody ended up doing that mission. But early on, that was that was a very very classic, austere, um, make it up as you go along. SF mission yeah. and it was great to be able to do that because later on working in Iraq and working with JSOC and all that everything's given to you assets helicopter gunships Spectre gunships you're out there you got nothing you might get mm. air if you're in a gunfight mm. uh, you might not it depends what's available right um, but to be able to start and build an army like that from scratch was actually really cool and very very interesting and I'm so thankful that I got to do it that early on in the war while it was still that kind uh, of very, very seat of your pants yeah. type stuff. Um, kind of it figuring was really it out. Cool. Well, there were just some lessons there from Vietnam, you know, working at the Montyards and yes. generating your own intel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's oh, interesting because I, it's like when you were training in the 90s, let's say late 90s, um, uh, you get these target packages that intel comes from somewhere yeah. cia it's yeah. just they make yeah. it up whatever yeah. boom and you go and do your thing but it's always intel pushed down yeah and then mm -hmm. we get over there to the first afghanistan then iraq and we realize very quickly that we have to generate our own intel yeah. Yeah. and when i read those vietnam books now mm -hmm. a lot of it uh, they're, they're talking about having to do that same thing yeah. back there yeah. they're yeah. generating their own intel generating their target packages putting together just like you would you know putting together like a, a crime family or something mm -hmm. you know who's related to who yes. and who all yeah. that stuff mm -hmm. very similar but uh, I mean, the lessons were there. We didn't yeah. do any of it in the interwar learned. years. We're bad at lessons learned in the military. <laughs> Not very good. And I don't know how. To, the only way you harness them, I think, is you institutionalize them to school. But so many things get lost. Like all the mm. lessons we learn in the GWAT, um, how many of them will be relearned yeah. in the next war mm -hmm. with blood, basically? Yeah, because e even Vietnam, or even now. Uh, Afghanistan, like the whole VSO thing, mm -hmm. that's the, the Hamlet. Village stability operations. That's the Hamlet thing they did in Vietnam. Yeah. It's the exact same mm -hmm. thing. And it didn't work there either. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Marines did a little, a little bit, what are the Marine platoons called? Uh, escaping me right now, but they did uh, that as well in Vietnam. But yeah, mm -hmm. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we relearned the same things. We drove into ambush sites in Afghanistan that the Russians drove into. Mm -hmm. Now, you're very limited in Afghanistan because there's no very few roads mm -hmm. and you're driving on riverbeds. And, and, and that country was made to ambush people, really. Mm -hmm. um, so th to get to do that mission was really cool. Yeah. And it was very austere. No internet back then. No freaking... That was the last trip. I wrote letters, physically wrote letters. Because oh, wow. after that, it was email and yeah. it was even Skype later on. Yeah. But back then, there's something cool about writing letters and yeah. receiving letters. Yeah. There's just something, I don't know, there's yeah. something nice about that, right? Um, yeah. But uh, to be cut off like that... With How long were you there? Six months, six months yeah. tour, right? So probably in, in uh, again, for about four months, mm -hmm. built the base defense plan, got rocketed a lot, um, pushed out that white space, cleared it, hits my IDs, um, Rolled up a bunch of bad guys, battlefield recovery, um, a couple of pretty vicious firefights. We, our team didn't lose anybody. The other team, there's another team with us on the firebase. They lost two guys in an ambush that we responded to. Um, difficult, difficult. Like, like you, can, you can respond to an ambush. The guys shoot. They, they know how quick our air. They have our air timed. Mm. Um They'll break contact away. They'll move into a village. They'll hide their weapons. And they'll pick up farming tools, right? And you can roll up there. You can gunshot residue, test their hands, and you can battlefield interrogate them. 
but you can't take everybody. You've only got so much room in your truck. And if, if you have no evidence, you can roll them up and send them back, but they're going to get released. They're going to be back on the battlefield in a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't have the assets to, especially all those guys we rolled up, they had to get a, put on a helicopter within 24 hours or something like that after you rolled them up. Um, so it's kind of difficult to... to move forward from that yeah. when they, they know how to play that game. And you're not a cop, you're not your soldier. And it's this whole argument between limited war and, mm-hmm. and you know, total, total war. war yeah. they, like um, limited war makes it drag on for decades and decades. Total war maybe shuts it down quickly mm-hmm. or maybe it just turns the population against you. You know, it, it's a very difficult fight. Yeah. And like we talked about earlier. So I, I was really happy to get to do that early on in the war. Mm-hmm. Came back from that trip, uh, quick turnaround. We were supposed to go to Chad to do a JSET, like yeah. a training mission in Chad, but that got nixed and we got sent to Iraq because we were ran- ramping up in Iraq. And we went to Mosul. Hey, there we go. So we met across fun. paths. We're probably in the same chow hall a couple probably, times. Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were, they had that new chow hall because the other, Not, chow the other got, got blown up, got right? Blown yeah. up, yeah. yeah. Was Esfest, was that guy that Esfest walked in? Or did it get uh, rocketed? I forget. Which one? The the nice Chow Hall in uh, in Missoula. It got detonated. The suicide bomber. Yeah, suicide. Yeah, guy, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we tried to take our indage in there mm. in the new, and they lost their mind. Man, mm. they were so paranoid. I bet about uh, Sfest, right? So yeah. Mosul. Uh, that was a nice chow hall they built up there. It was. That it was probably was the nicest really one. Nice. Yeah. The agency one was nice because it was small yeah. when I did the agency job. But uh, as far as like. Big army chow halls. Yeah, yeah. That thing yeah. was pretty legit. But, you know, people think, and that, that's kind of where it transitioned for me, right? That, that people think that you're you're living this hard life in Iraq, and you really weren't. The food was amazing. That, that, that one for sure. We were in uh, we were in Baghdad in 06, and I'll jump to this because I have terrible memory and I'll forget, but we were in Baghdad, and these kids who were on strikers, they were 12-hour shifts out driving around, mm-hmm. getting blown up. They, they took the brunt of the war. What they did was so much harder than what we did, oh, I, I think. For like sure. Just, and they, they came into the chow hall one day, and they're all covered in dust, and they're trying to get some food. And there was a cook there, a female cook, and she freaking kicked them out of the chow hall because they were dirty. And there was a guy on my team who went over and just crushed her. He said, how dare you, you know? Those kids are out fighting this war and you're hiding in here. Who do you think? He just crushed her. And he was right. They're the kids doing the brunt of the fighting. And they were on long deployments, a year, 18 months sometimes when the surge hit. And uh, yeah, brutal, right? But uh, I spent nine months in in, uh, Iraq, in Mosul building up the Iraqi army again that we'd torn apart, right? Again, lessons learned. Um, we take in, we take, we had a battalion, our company had a battalion and we would take in um, a company at a time. We'd train and equip them and we'd train them for, a, you know, a week or two and they were all former soldiers, right? And then we'd go hit targets with them and then we'd, Alpha Company's done, let's do Bravo Company mm. and then let's do Charlie Company, right? And then the American military was still, the American government was still paying, the American taxpayer we're still paying the wages of all the soldiers, right? And again, corruption is part of the culture now. Mm-hmm. Corruption is very, very Middle Eastern thing. But um, you would take Alpha Company in, and it'd be 100 guys, and you'd train them all, blah, 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 blah. And then they'd go do great things, and you take Bravo Company in, and you'd be like, you're the same guy, and you're the mm-hmm. same guy, and you're the same guy. They inflated their numbers so much because the American yeah, government was paying them. 
that it's all the same guys. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then we'd issue them all with AK-47s, really nice AK-47s. And they go home and leave, and they come back with a piece of garbage that they had at home, and they sold the other one that we gave them, you know? This was the problem. Where were those nice ones coming from? I don't know. They showed up on trucks. Got it. There's whole programs, and I know this through Force Mod, and I can't say too much, but there's whole programs yeah, yeah. for that type of stuff. Um, there. Um, so, again, we built up that army. We got our, a lot of our own intelligence. We used their intelligence networks. Um, we had a, an their S2 officer in that battalion had been a... Intel, for anybody listening. Yeah, Intel, I'm sorry. They're, you're used to that, right? You're, you can pick it up now. because So their Intel officer had been an Intel officer for Saddam. And um, we, we took a bad guy one time and we rolled him up and he was a big tough guy. And we started interrogating him and he told us to F ourselves basically because he knows we won't do anything to him. Well, we put a hood in his head and we flex cuffed him. We took him over to the Iraqi base and we took that hood off. Different deal. This, this guy was sitting in there. This guy's probably worked in the fingernail factory a couple of times, right? Mm. This Saddam intelligence officer was there mm. and this big tough guy pissed his pants when he saw him. And I never seen him put his hands on a, on a prisoner. He would whisper in their ear and they would spill their guts. Mm. Sheer intimidation, man. This guy, yeah. Different deal. And they knew who he was. Um... There, I mean, we, we can talk about the pros and cons of rolling into Iraq. Um, probably not a great, in hindsight, effort. But I tell you, the, the biggest success story that Army Special Forces took out of the GWAT was the Iraqi Counter-Terrorist Force. Mm -hmm. The Iraqi Counter-Terrorist Force are really good. Yeah. And not just good by Middle Eastern standards. They're right. freaking squared away. And they were they were taken by, not by me, they were, they were selected and pulled out of uh, Iraq and brought to Jordan for months by fifth group and third group and trained and selected and well-trained and well-equipped yeah. and brought back in. And to this day, them boys were pie-pitting. And when ISIS invaded Iraq, they were the ones who stood mm. and fought. Otherwise, ISIS would have took all of Iraq. They lost big numbers, but th those guys, and when you work with them, I don't know if you ever had any, any dealings. Yeah, some touch you, points with them, yeah. You did, yeah. They're like Americans, man. They're, they're freaking, a lot of them spoke English. Um, if you saw them with a bunch of SF guys, it'd be mm -hmm. hard to tell them apart, right? Um, but you're talking about, I, I used to laugh when young, you know, SEALs or Green Berets come in and, and think they're going to show these boys how to do mm -hmm. work. These boys have hundreds and hundreds of combat ops, mm -hmm. like really do. Um, very squared away force. And to this day, ISOF is doing great things in, in Iraq and, uh, just, just solid guys. I worked the ERU too. With the, the Iraqi, I, I talked that I was the next deployment, but nine months in Mosul with the regular army. And, and when we rolled out there, like later on working with JSOC, it was all night vision goggles, helicopters yeah. going out at night. But when you work with the regular army or you work with Afghans, you can't wear your nods because they don't have any. So it's yeah. all white lights at night mm. and uh, you just go with it. Or daytime ops. We did a lot of daytime oh, ops in 05. And uh, it is what it is. Um, is that where you met Mike Glover? Where'd you, where'd you meet him along the line? So... <laughs> When I had to go back and be an instructor at SUT, Mike was a student. So okay. I remember him vaguely. But so you taught well. him everything he knows. Not well, yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah. But I didn't teach him everything I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's the key. But no, when uh, between the 05 and the 06 trip, I got to go to Sephardic, which is our CQB hostage mm -hmm. rescue school, nine weeks of breaching doors and repelling out of helicopters, uh, not repelling, rescuing out of helicopters. And it's all the stuff you joined the army to do, right. right? It's the coolest school ever. And Mike was on that school with me. Nice. 
and the SIF companies in, in group, each each one of the five active duty group has a SIF company, which they're gone now, but th they were part of JSON. Are they gone or they just call them something different? Yeah, they, they call them something different, but I think, I think. For those yeah, listening, it's the, it's the uh, Commander's In Extremis Force, yeah, a uh, SF unit that, that uh, focuses a lot on uh, uh, close quarter combat. Yeah. Is that a well, good way to put time, it? At the time, the way it was set up was they were supposed to be forward deployed, right? So 7th Group SIF Company was in Panama. 10th Group SIF Company was in Germany, right? They're supposed to be forward deployed. So if something happened in Germany, yeah. they would respond. They would get an assault force together. They'd put their snipes in place. And if hostages started getting killed, they would go in. In the meantime, freaking Delta is on the way, right? right. Or SEAL Team 6 is on the way, and they take over the scene. No, so that was the concept. It really never worked like that mm -hmm. because, you know, C-37, the 7th Group SIF end up coming back from Panama. They were in but yeah, I went in with Charlie Third of the Seventh. I went into uh, to Haiti with them. Yeah, okay. It was yeah, pretty cool to yeah, see. Yeah, they were like, at very see them unit, yeah. yeah, they to see them like start with uh, essentially an empty hangar yeah. bay somewhere, yeah. and to come together and put together this huge rock drill and have all yeah. these different assets working yeah. through all these things. And I was just liaison attached to them to go in there. Yeah, and uh, it was really cool to yeah. to see that come yeah. together and work. So guys go to the. There's no selection to go to SIF company, right? There's you have to be Sephora qualified. Mm. And guys go there, and it's based on your reputation, if you can go there, right? And guys got drawn there at a certain point because they were the guys that were fighting most. And it was very offensive in nature. You know, you drive around Afghanistan, you're hitting IDs. You're, it's very reactive a lot of mm. times. But when you go to SIF company and were part of that JSOC mission, you were freaking going in, and you were going in hard, and you were bringing all the assets that JSOC had to bear and the intelligence, which was huge. So in 06, uh, I went to Sephardic and I went to a couple other schools and then I made the transition over from a regular ODA to the SIF company because I, I knew they were in the fight and I wanted to get in the fight. Mm -hmm. And that's me and Glover got there at the same time. Okay. He, was a, he was a staff sergeant, I was a sergeant first class. And um, we got to the SIF company and you needed two years of team time and uh, to be allowed to go to the SIF. And okay. Mike didn't have two years, but he's Mike Glover. And he used the charm. Yeah. And he got a, to Same Sergeant way you got Major. to be a Bravo. Yes. Like, oh, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. Some guys follow the rules and some guys make the rules, right? So he got the uh, Sergeant Major to let him in. And he was very young at the time. And the SIF guys are generally older, more more, more experienced guys, right? So we buy and we went to different teams. He went to an assault team and I went to a sniper team. Okay. And the, the snipes are also assaulters, but they're all sniper mm. qualified. And I wasn't sniper qualified there at the time. I'd been sniper qualified in the Irish Army. I mm. knew what I was doing, but uh, I went to sniper school later. But I went to the snipes um, and we deployed to Iraq in 06 to go to the ICTF. And mm. we were with the ICTF for a couple of weeks. And then they pulled six of us out and sent us down to the emergency response unit of the Baghdad police, and there were mm. SWAT team, and they were struggling. Now, they had SEALs with them, working with them. That's probably why they were struggling. Well, no, well, what, what the SEALs were doing, and it's understandable, is they were doing all the hits themselves, and they weren't <laughs> letting the Iraqis do anything. Yeah. They would put one Iraqi in each vehicle. I remember. Yeah, yeah, they would put one Iraqi in each vehicle, and then they'd all run and hit the house, and the Iraqi's job was to turn the vehicle mm -hmm. around. For mission approval, you had to say you had yes, a certain number. Yeah, it became did. a number, or it was a percentage yes. at some point, or yeah, something along those lines. And it got worse later on, where you had yeah. to put a bigger percentage, bigger percentage. And, so. and it makes sense. You're trying to let, you're trying to work yourself out of a job. You're trying to let them take over. They stand up, we stand down. Yeah, but the SEALs weren't playing that. They no. were like, no, we're doing it all, right? So they stuck us down there. 
and they they were like, look, we need to get these guys better. They suck. Uh, <laughs> they, they were not the, the Iraqi counter-terrorist yeah. force. They were not anywhere near that. Um, we were told they were the equivalent of the FBI HRT team, mm-hmm. and they were not. Um, ROTC, HRT <laughs> team, maybe. Um, so we went down there and we start training them. And that's where me and Mike really started working together. Because yeah. he was on an assault team, I was not, but we, we came to the yeah. same team for that mission. And we would uh, we train and train and train and hit targets all the time and train and train and train and hit targets. And we got them night vision goggles, like not great ones, but night vision, okay. got them lasers for their trucks. We got them gunning. They had la- armored Land Rovers with no chicken plates. We had turrets built. We had armor built around the turret mm-hmm. for their Land Rovers. Um, we started teaching them how to breach. We teach them CQB. We were, we were planning was a big one. Oh yeah. And we started building them and building them and building them to a point where we could step away. Mm. And the war was getting worse and worse at that point. If you remember, mm-hmm. um, it was worse in 06 than it was in 05. And it was way worse in 07. 07 was pretty much the pinnacle. And then it started coming down in 08. It, it, it started leveling out. So, um, I spent six months in, in Iraq at that point with Mike. Me and Mike were working together daily. Uh, it's funny, man. We were training combatives with the Iraqis. And for 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 people who grew up in violence, not real aggressive sometimes, right? Mm. And um, I saw that in Afghanistan too. Like we tried to show them videos in Afghanistan. They didn't want to see war movies. They want to see chick flicks like Made in Manhattan or something like that. Like oh, wow. Because when you think about it, they live that shit all uh. their life. They wanted an escape. I didn't want to watch Black Hawk Down or something like yeah. that. They wanted to watch something that's not their everyday life. But we were teaching them combatives one time, and I was a combatives instructor, and we, me and Mike were doing a lot of the training. And uh, at one point, those two big guys, and they had a boxing, trying to build some aggression. And they're like playing, you know, like, and I, I could speak enough Arabic that I could tell what they're saying. They're like, you don't hit me, and I wouldn't hit you. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, guys, check it out. You fight him or you're going to fight him. And I point the, point the mic. And Mike's a pretty tough guy. Yeah. And they won't do it. So I'm like, Mike, come over here. Fight this guy. Oh, and geez. now this guy's fighting for his life. And him and Mike beat the crap out of each other. It was awesome. <laughs> um, but they really liked us. We, we You know, that, that Middle Eastern culture, negative reinforcement does not work. You have to mm. be part of the team. You have to treat them as equals. You have to be very, very cautious about what you see. You can't embarrass mm. them. Uh, they just won't work for you if you do that. Yeah. They, they'll... Um, they'll just do nothing for you, right? Um, I, I picked up enough Arabic that I, I could function in combat okay. with, with these guys with right. me. Um, they needed a lot of guidance. They needed a lot of control. Um, they they couldn't breach. They had no breacher training. Me and Mike breached hundreds of doors that year, explosives and, and ballistic breaching. And at one point, I was like, I'm going to teach these boys how to breach. So I go to the captured weapons facility, and I find like half a dozen breech-loaded single-shot shotguns. Okay. And I cut the barrel off, and I cut the buttstock off, and I tape it up like gangster bank robbery mm-hmm. shit. And I'm like, okay, we're going to breach. And um, I have them all there, and they're all deathly scared of this gun. So I put a round in it, like double-odd buck, and I shoot it, boom, into the ground. No big deal, right? And I'm like, okay, you, the smallest guy I can find, because I want to prove a point. And mm-hmm. I did, but it wasn't the point I wanted to prove. Yeah. So I get, shoot it, and he shoots it, bang, and it recalls out, it hits him in the face. And like, bust, <laughs> I think there's some videos online that show Busts his just nose up, and yeah, uh-huh. wouldn't touch it after that. Wouldn't touch yeah. it. Um, oh. Pretty cool mission, rolling around in police vans and uh, white lights sometimes and working with the police force. It's actually pretty cool. Uh-huh. And uh, But being part of the SIF company, you got to do that type of J-set training, train assist, advise on a company, 
with higher tiered element units, right? Mm -hmm. Not just regular army guys with, with higher tiered. So really cool mission. Learned a lot. Got to do a lot of hits. Um, and, and I get a million funny stories. You guys are working out of Baghdad? Working out of Baghdad, yeah. There was a base. I can't even remember what it's called, but it was... Uh, it was me and Mike and Jason and, and Damon, really good team. And then Kent, who was our team leader, who became our XO next year and got shot and ended up lo losing his leg. And, oh, and wow. yeah, they um, so did that mission, came back. And again, you're back for a couple of months. You're going to schools, you're catching up. The family's on hold, basically. And I went to sniper school when I came back and um, went back to Iraq in 07. And then it was unilateral ops, no windage. And we're basically told, look, gloves are off. We're losing this war. We need to go in hard. Mm -hmm. And that's when the surge happened. And we basically flooded every street in Baghdad with soldiers. Um, we, we gave them nowhere to go. And at the same time, we had strike teams going in on kill capture missions every single night and multiple hits some nights. Yeah. And almost every night we were, not, we were in a gunfight. Our intelligence was perfect. The intelligence in 06 with the ERU was 50-50. Mm. In 07, it was freaking perfect. It was badass. And every time we hit them, it was a massive gunfight. We had some massive successes. Um, really, really effective. And, and to, to, to work at that level, to fly into a mission on the skid of a little bird with preemptive fires hitting, and, and it's just incredible the amount of what you could bring to bear on the battlefield when you, when you have those resources. Like guys would be in Afghanistan and in gunfights for hours and nowhere. Not available, right? But out there, we never left the wire without a Spectre gunship over our heads. And you can become very spoiled, I think. Um, missions with, with little birds and, and yeah, tanks. I mean, like, we went to Solder City, we knew it tanks and Bradleys. And oh, yeah. Of course, EFPs will still punch crew them, but we went in with heavy force and got in so many gunfights. Like, it, it was, and Mike was on that trip with me too. And uh, we, we've been in a lot of, of, of gunfights together. Um, yeah, but, Bradley's and Abrams, that's no joke. Oh, Some of those no guys joke. show up. Yeah, it was funny because those regular army guys got attached to us first. They weren't real, they were very reluctant to fire. Mm. And then they, they realized we're not the regular army chain of command. Mm. Like, you will fire. You're in Sodder City here. Mm. You're getting in a massive gunfight every time you go in. Um, yeah, so to be able to fight like that with all those assets, mm -hmm. We stacked the deck, and that's why I say it's harder. It was harder for those striker kids who drive around and and get blown up and get shot. And or how about the kid standing at the gate, yeah, eighteen years yeah, old, you know, standing yeah. there? All of a sudden, there's something heading his way. Yeah. Is, hey, wait a sec, is that is that just bad yeah. suspension on that yeah. thing, or is it yeah. loaded down? Wait a sec. Two weeks ago, there was a car bomb at the other gate. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. What do I do here? Is that a family, or wait, is it a trick, or is yeah. it? I mean, yeah. eighteen years old. Yeah. He has he's had Even some basic me, training, like, and he's standing there on that gate. I can't God. imagine an 18-year-old, because me, even for me in 05, sitting in the turret of a Humvee driving through Mosul, you 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 develop this imaginary bubble, like a, mm. a ring around you where anything comes in that ring is getting mm. shot because they used to drive vehicles up, crash into you and detonate them, right? So you have to keep them at distance. Now, if something penetrates that ring and you open fire on them and, it, and it's, you know, a woman and a couple of kids, you got to live with that, right? Mm -hmm. So... Where's the point where you can't hesitate, but if you overreact, you you and it's That's very difficult. Tough. That's it's, the toughest thing. And it's I very think. difficult for a really experienced guy like me. So for that kid who's afraid to do the wrong thing because he get yelled at, um, very difficult fight. Very very difficult. But to be on that 07 mission and be part of JSOC and be a strike team. 
that was just going out, stacking the deck, <laughs> hitting them in their bed down location. It was freaking phenomenal. It was the high point of my whole military yeah. career. Um, it was a, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Did you ever think about going to selection for that unit? I think I missed my window. Yeah. Um, and I, I think part of it, if I was totally honest with myself, was fear of failure. Mm. It's very difficult selection. If I had went early on in my career, because the, the selection... The land nav portion of that, it's mm -hmm. high mountains. It's I'm very good at land nav. I did a mm -hmm. lot of it in Ireland. That's kind of like land nav yeah. in Ireland. Man, that's, the they, that's where they got it. They got it yeah, from SAS selection. Yeah, they know? did. They did, right? And I, I I think I actually grew up with a lot of self-confidence problems that plague me to this day. Hmm. I grew up with always thinking people knew more than me. Hmm. And always thinking I could never do that. Like I and then I do it and I do well at it. And I was like, why do I think this was so hard? And it happens to me to this day. I, I think people are better than me at certain things. I look like when I got to my team, my first team in Afghanistan, I thought, well, these guys have been on a team longer than me. They all know more than me. And they didn't. Mm -hmm. I had more experience than any of them. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to realize that. Um, and then I, I look at, I, I looked at Delta. And when I was in sniper school, there was a, but because sniper school for special operations, where I worked later on, um, they trained Rangers, Green Berets, and Delta Force snipers. Um, there was a SEAL officer in my sniper nice. course, by the way. Um, I can't remember his name, but um, a couple of guys, a couple of operators there, pulled me aside. They're like, "Dude, you need to come over." Blah blah blah. But I was, I was like forty, and I was like, and they're like, "We got guys that are that age," and I'm like, "Yeah, but they're not starting off, you yeah. know." Um, I think partly I missed my window, yeah. but then I got to a point because I get into SF so late that I liked where I was, especially yeah. when I was in the SIF company. Right. Um, I just, I, it's, it's not something I, I dwell on, but it is one of the things that I, I kind of wish I tried at least once. Right. Well, I mean, you have Irish army, you have yeah. Irish special operations, you have contractor, yeah. then you have regular army, yeah. then you have SF. I mean, I know. so you, you packed a lot in there. You can only fit so much yeah, in, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so I, I, uh, yeah, I, I went to sniper school and then went back in, in 07 and then prepped for the 08 trip. And the mm. 08 trip, I was going to, uh, work with the Iraqi counterterrorist for sniper teams. Right. Okay. So I was pumped. And then the levy come down for SWIC. So SWIC is the special warfare center and school. Mm -hmm. And it's the training course for all the schools, right? The Q course, all sniper school, military free fall, so Fardak, language, it's Every school, it's like a hundred schools, or it's a massive wow. organization. So, what they do is they have GSs, like government uh, civilians, mm -hmm. that work at those schools, and they're the continuity year right. after year after year. But they filter in SF guys all the time. So uh, every year, a list will come down that these guys are the senior guys in the company, and they got to go to Squick. They got to, mm -hmm. and it's almost like you have to die to get out of it. Like it's very difficult to get out of. Um, and guys maneuvered a career certain ways to, to get out of it, uh -huh. but I wasn't that smart. So <laughs> I come down on this levy to go to Swick, and I'm losing my mind. I'm trying to get out of it, trying uh -huh. to get out of it. And my company sergeant major is like, no, they're expecting you. And I, I got a pinpoint assignment to sniper school to be an instructor, right? Because I was coming from a SIF sniper. Yeah. And, uh, you know, every, every team, every OD is supposed to have two snipers, but it's an additional duty. Yeah. Only in the SIFs is actually your job, right? Yeah. That, that's your main focus. Um, 
So I, I was trying everything to get out of it. I, I talked to my company, Sergeant Major, and he was like, no, they're waiting on you at Range 37, and they need you. So I went out to the Range 37 Sergeant Major, and there's a guy called Pete Gould, who, who uh, some people might know, and I didn't know him at the time, but I got to know him very well later on. And I'm like, Sergeant Major, I want to go to Iraq. And Pete said, go shoot fuckers in the face and come back when you're done, and your job will be here for you. And I went back to my company, Sergeant Major, and he still wouldn't change it. Mm. And he was, yeah. So... They basic, and I fought it and fought it and fought it, but actually I had a great time. I went and worked at sniper school for three yeah. years. Wow. It's a three-year tool. I ended up running the school. Is that brag? Is that it's a brag. Okay. Yeah, it's the Special Forces Sniper Course. It's a nine-week school mm -hmm. for special operations. Rangers, Delta Force, and, and Greenberry snipers train there. Um, it's a nine-week school. I, I was an instructor for two years. And I was dancing. I say I ran the school for a year. I started shooting competitively. Won the international sniper competition oh, wow. before Benning. Nice. Um, got shot at a lot of civilian comps. Won a lot of comps. Won a lot of guns. Nice. Which is always nice. There you go. Um, became a pretty decent shooter. Um, but got to teach, and teaching is very, very fulfilling for me. It, it's to get around students, and they're they're, they're energetically mm. just taking all that information in to be able to pass those lessons line down. I've been a sniper in Ireland and um, I, I it became a, a, a complete obsession with mine, a, a, a passion. Um, been to Todd Hodden at school in, in, for, in uh, Texas like nice. 15 times. Wow. You know what I mean? Me and Todd are good friends. Wow. Um, and I got there at the right time because things were changing. Plus the calculators were coming yeah. on board. The 300 wind mags were coming on board. The... the Three hundred wind mags just coming on board then. Three hundred wind mags, yeah, Jeez. they were. Yeah, they were coming on board as the the Mark thirteen that came through Crane, mm. right? Yeah, um, we we were getting those at the time because um, up until then we had like when I went to sniper school in two thousand six or seven, um, nothing had really changed since I went to sniper school in Ireland in nineteen eighty eight. Using like a Remington it, bolt action yeah, Remington seven hundred, a ten par scope, minute of angle adjustments, mill mill dot reticle. Uh, fixed 10 par bolt action 308. It really hadn't changed. Wow. Now, Even in 2006, that's yeah, wild. Yeah, it started changing then. And I was in the SIF, so I'd already been to Todd Hodnets before. But the ballistic calculator, like I don't use the phrase game changer much. The ballistic calculator is a game changer when it comes mm. to long range shooting. It's just such a, there was a lot of, like the data books and a lot of theory was put into it, but you can't art. A lot of art. I, I think of it as art versus science. Yeah, and blending the yeah. art and science, and up to you mm -hmm. know up to two thousand one, really, it was a lot of art from yeah. Vietnam, and yes. there was a lot of time yeah. between Vietnam and uh, so there was a couple. You know, you had some, you had Mogadishu, you had some mm -hmm. guys do some sniper stuff there, yeah. but uh, it was still a lot of that art. It was still like reading that wind yeah. and where's it going to affect the bullet the most? What are the yeah. what's what is the grass doing down there? Mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of well, art in the field. That. that art is still there and there's because, there was no yeah. calculator yet yeah. and then we start going then september 11th happens and then we start mm -hmm. doing this stuff for real yeah and then we yeah. have that mark 11 and mark 12 and mm -hmm. we're doing and now we're incorporating more science and yeah. more technology comes on board and now there's just mm -hmm. more focus on this yeah. moa mill okay here we go yeah. and then we're then we're starting to figure this stuff out mm -hmm. but uh but it was interesting to yeah. know how much changed yeah. between september 11th and and today i can only imagine I, what sniper school is like today I, well there was a lot of theory too that really was not based in reality like i remember a student at sniper school said to me you know I heard that a 308 won't kill a man at a mile. And I was like, okay, let's do the math. And that's what ballistic calculator is great for. So I pull up a 308, I build a 308 in my Kestrel, and I put it a mile. 
And then I go to, never mind retained energy, look at the muzzle velocity. At a mile, it's going 900 feet per second. Mm. That's a 1911 at the muzzle. Mm. That's going to leave a mark, right? Yeah, you don't want to get hit. So, yeah. With anything, get, and really. it's pointy. The bullet's pointy, right? So yeah. you don't want to get hit with that, right? Um, and there was a lot of theory that, oh, humidity, this and that and the other. And then the ballistic calculator gives you all the answers. And long range shooting's hard enough without putting mistakes before you get behind the gun and, and screw the shot up, mm. right? Or the wind call. The wind is our nemesis. We still can't do that. When I was in Force Mod, we're working on wind sensors that will read the wind and, mm. and I can talk about them later on. But um, I got there at the right time to kind of be part of the change to mm. modernize it. And uh, shooting in body armor and helmets off rooftops with gas mm. guns, running and gunning, because that's what we did in Iraq. Um, that kind of urban sniping versus mm -hmm. that the very, very long range. Mm -hmm. um, we were pushing people out, like uh, shooting clay pigeons at, at, at a thousand yards, you know, four inch clay pigeons. And it really did transition a lot over those three years. And I, I, I was a big part of that. It was really cool to see yeah. that. Um, did you still start them old school? Like we talked about learning how to land nav with a map and compass no, and then going, did no. you start them like, like iron sight M14 no. and no, then work you, up to did, a scope on 308? Iron sights were still happening when we got there. We actually changed that and put them on the scope three more days mm. because we, we just needed as much scope time as possible. Mm. Um, and then we, we started, instead of doing, you know, we looked very critically at what people were feeling for. Mm. And all the guys would feel for the stock, right? And the stock yeah. was three hours and you had to move, you know, whatever distance, like a couple of kilometers, move into your hide site, set up your shot. And then... We, we just started doing isolation training. Like if I'm training how to employ a flashbang in CQB, I don't hit the whole house. I just employ the flashbang and I employ it again and I'm, I isolate the piece that's giving you problems. So we started doing that with stalking. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing a three-hour stalk, we did what's called a camouflage and concealment exercise. And we just go out in the woods and go, okay, that VS 17 panel's left limit, right limit's there. The backstop is the VS 17 panel back there. 200 yards, you have seven minutes to get into position. Mm. And we'd turn our backs mm -hmm. and they'd run out in the woods, all non-tack, right? And they'd go and they'd set up, because that was the problem that was setting up their final firing position, screening, backdrop, natural vegetation. That's what was, wasn't the, the three-click movement. They had that down, right? Yeah. So um, we'd do that. We'd turn around seven minutes. Okay, and then we'd get on glass and we'd run it like a normal stalk, yeah. right? Trying to spot them. They'd take right. the shot. We'd try to walk on them. And then we'd pull them That's all so in. Cool. And yeah. then we'd go, okay, now we'd split pivot and we'd go left limit, right limit, backstop, five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then we'd do it again and again and again. And in the time it took to do three-hour stalk, you could do five, six, seven camouflage and concealment exercise. And you're just isolating the piece that was giving people problems nice. and working on That's that. Cool. And it really did help mm. with the, uh, I bet. The, the the graduation rate. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the graduation, the, the failure rate was high because... Part of it was like badge protecting, like, oh, it's difficult. It's not for everybody. Right. It's not that hard to school, right? It's really not, especially at Fort Bragg. The wind is not high. Mm. You're shooting fairly close ranges. So if people were struggling, we'd come in on Saturday and Sunday and give them extra mm. training to make sure they had the tools. Because we needed shooters in the force. We needed, and, and, you know, as a Green Beret instructor, your job is to train indage, right? So if you can't train Green Berets, Delta Force operators, and mm -hmm. Ranger Regiment guys, some of the most top functioning soldiers in the U.S. Army, right. then how are you going to train Indige, right? Yeah. And so if you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I did everything I could to get this guy to pass. And yeah. some guys, people just don't get it, right? Mm -hmm. But you, you, you have to have, you have to build pride of ownership mm -hmm. in instructors 
So they almost take it personally if that guy fails, right? Yeah. As opposed to this guy's just dumb. He he can't right. go in, right? Well, it's a reflection of your teaching. Uh, if you're a high school teacher and you oh, half your students <laughs> failed, um, maybe right. not now, but you would have been how yeah, terrible yeah. before. Right. So it was a, it was a mindset change for instructors, and it it was it was part of that transition, and that that's the the that has kept because new guys come in and that's just the way we do things. Yeah. Hey, it's not okay for your students to fail. They're a reflection of your teaching ability. They are top performing guys. Mm -hmm. So go give them the knowledge they need to go fight our enemies, right? Um, so it became more about mentoring and teaching and getting them to the standard they needed to get and less about filtering them out. And and, uh, yeah. and that, that that's an important point. What rifles did you have those guys on? What did they, what did they cycle through during their so time So we there? started with uh, M24s. Mm -hmm. And then we went to SR-25s mm -hmm. for gas guns, for mm -hmm. shooting urban stuff, uh, running and gunning type stuff, all in body armor, all alternate position. You zero on your belly and you'd never shoot on your belly again, all kneeling. Because mm -hmm. if you can hit it from a knee, you can hit it from your belly all day long, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then like, you know, shooting side prone, shooting through loopholes, mm -hmm. shooting from cover, alternate position, building that position quickly. Um, 300 wind mags after that. Uh, we did a little bit of 50 cal stuff, but not much. Um, but then sniper school's not just not just shooting. It's about half shooting, and it's mostly a lot of reconnaissance and photography and field craft and stalking mm -hmm. and urban hides and rural hides, and there's a whole lot more to it than shooting, but there was a lot of shooting done. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, uh, I did a sniper exercise. I'm sorry, I keep jumping back and forth. It's how my brain works. I did a sniper exercise in Ireland one time when I was in the range wing, and... Uh, we came in, we infiltrated, we walked for a long time, we dug a subterranean hide, and when the sun came up, we're on a range. And it was the KD range with the, you know, the target boards and the, uh -huh. the snaps, the guys in the pits with the uh -huh. snaps and all that, right? And we were settled in, there's two snipers, and we're gillied up and ready. And we were in that position for 12 hours. And in that 12 hours, at any time, our target could come up with a balloon on it. Wow. You had to shoot it, right? It's fucking hard, right? Yeah. So <laughs> now there was like six teams yeah. dug in in different positions, and each team was assigned a color, right? Um, so let's say our, I can't remember, I think our, our let's say our color was blue, right? Yeah. So you're looking for a blue snap target mm -hmm. with a balloon on it for 12 fucking hours. Like it was brutal, right? Yeah. So we're in there, and it's freezing, and it's raining, and it's shitty, and it's horrible. And... You know, you're watching and watching, and, and you know, observation will burn your ass to the ground. That's why I always observe with my non-shooting eye, mm -hmm. so I can shoot my shooting eye, so I'm not mm -hmm. burning my shooting eye at the time. So anything on glass, I'm in mm -hmm. my non-shooting eye. So we're watching and watching and watching, and I'm like, this sucks, man. And then I, 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 I come to think that the guy running the exercise is like the most senior NCO we have. And we're thinking, there's no way he's sitting in the pits right. running this. Because it was cold hours. and it was raining for 12 hours. We were talking, me and my sniper partner, we're like, I bet that fucker is in the, the rain shack at the fire drinking coffee and mm. coordinating with them on the radio. Mm. So we're both wearing radios. So I keep on my radio and my buddy uh. starts flicking through all the channels uh. and he hits the channel where he's telling them uh, what target nice. to put up. 
right yeah 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 so we're chilling we're laughing and joking and chilling because we can hear him okay next target's going to be red and it's going to go up to position 12 nice put it up for three seconds and then move it and then eventually it's like okay we're going to go blue next and i'm like okay let me get ready it's going to be in position four boom i'm lined up and you're going to put it up for three seconds they won't get a shot at it pull it back down and then put it back up position eight so it comes up position four Boom. Nice. <laughs> Crushed it. He must you have know? been like, what the? Uh, they knew in the end yeah. what we did, but they couldn't prove it. And, you know, <laughs> some people call it cheating. I call it leveraging technology hey. to gain a tactical advantage on the enemy. There right? it is. There it is. There it is. Solid. Um, Got to outthink those. the instructor staff. Well. Got to outthink the instructor staff. You have staff. to. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. Um, I love those innovative ways of training, mm-hmm. exercises like that. It's kind of cool. Another thing we did was... Uh, when we did a coordinated shoot, like if you had multiple snipers shooting, you know, on a countdown, they took this, uh, you know, like, like the burlap, like that Sam mm-hmm. Radio, they had a big massive roll of that. They stood it up on the range and it had windows in it. Okay. And they, they, so it looked like a facade, looked yeah. like the side of a house. And guys in the pits would put up snap targets at all the different windows, uh-huh. right? So if your team are on this window and this team, then you're going, hey, um, Team one, green, right? That means I have a shot. And the goal is to shoot all the bad guys before the assault, or as many mm. as possible before the assault goes in. And so you're up there and you're in, you're in window five or whatever. And nowadays they have like little clickers here where when the target comes in, you click the button and it lights up on a panel so they mm. can tell how many snipers have a target in their scope. Mm. Back then we had cards with green on one side and red on the other, okay. right? So you go team one, green, green. Team four, green. Team three, green. Mm-hmm. Team one, red. The guy walked away from the window, all right? And then ideally, when you have all four green, you go, snipers, ready, fire. Here you go, five, four, three, two, bang. Yeah. Shots go off, breach goes off, it all goes in. But they, they would stick it up in front of the window and then take it down mm-hmm. periodically so you could work your coordinated shoot piece. Mm-hmm. And it was actually really good. And it was really, uh, but it was innovative when you didn't have all that tons and tons and tons of money yeah. to train. I think what I got out of that portion of the Irish Army was a very healthy respect for it's about the training it's not about the gear it's about training will trump equipment every time i had a commander at range 37 when i was a sniper instructor there and he was a shooter he liked to shoot he ended up going i can't say where he went but i'll tell you offline but um great guy freaking solid they did a running and gunning exercise as part of the stress shoot Mm. in the body armor pistols sr25 one right running along, climbing up buildings, going mm-hmm. across buildings, shooting. But it was all kind of close range, 400 men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was designed to fighting and running a gunning in the city, right? Well, the commander wanted to make a point, and he ran that event with an M1 Garand in a 1911. Nice. And he beat That's a awesome. bunch of the students. That's awesome. Yeah. It's about, That's cool. Yeah. I mean, of course equipment helps, right? But I know guys that I could put anything in their hand, and they'll crush most yeah. people with a rifle. It's just... Um, and I, I think we have a tendency to try and replace training with equipment. Yeah. And it doesn't work like that. And I saw it in Force Mod again and again and again when I was there. Yeah. Um, but working at sniper school and guys fight going to SWIC, going to that. And it's a great model. I learned a ton. As an I did learn a ton. I cra- I, I mastered my craft. I, I trained in, I was in Todd Hodnett's later on with 
uh, fifth group, and they had Israeli snipers there who mm. taught at the Israeli sniper school. Oh, wow. And they go through sniper school to become a sniper instructor and stay there for the rest of their life. And they were like, your model is so much better nice. because you're constantly getting guys back from the fight who yeah. are bringing new stuff back every time. You have your civilians there as a continuity, but every year you're getting new instructors. They're constantly rotating out yeah. and you're getting guys straight out of the fight going, this is what we're doing now. Revolving, yeah. And it, it's actually a, quite a good model. And it's across every school is like that. What were the Israelis shooting? Uh, I don't think they had guns with them. They were okay. shooting our guns when yeah. they were there. Um, but uh, yeah, three years of sniper school, NCIC, um, learned a ton. I'm sure. Got to, got to shoot competitively. And then I went back, when I finished my, my time, I went back to the same team. So I went back to be a team sergeant in a sniper team in the SIF company. Oh, wow. And uh, it was it was easy. You know, was, uh, all my guys were all senior E7s. They were all freaking okay. rock stars, man. It was the easiest gig ever. Like, I just... Did you deploy again I, with those guys? I, I, I did. I did a couple of deployments with them. Back to Iraq? Um, no, we didn't go to combat. We went to some contingency operations for some other stuff. And we were in multiple countries training people. Mm. I actually went to Jordan for a month. Mm. And... Uh, they, they linked us up with these Jordanian Special Forces guys. Now, there are Jordanian units that are actually really good. Yeah. The guys we were with, not so much, man. Yeah. We did a training exercise out in the desert, and they were like, these guys are going to go with you, two of them for each of your teams, right? So I have, I'm a, I'm a, a, a team sergeant, and I have two teams, right? Uh, two cells. And um, we're going in, we're doing a free-fall operation, jumping out of a freaking C5 or something, jumping into this place in the desert we're setting up an overwatch on a village and we're setting up a, an urban hide in the village mm -hmm. i'm setting up an overwatch up on top of this hill so we we freaking drop razors we parachute in and they're like these these jordanians gonna jump with you and i'm like no they're not i'm not jumping with them no i don't know their capabilities i'm jump master no i refuse right so free we fall jump, or static line well free fall or static free fall, line. free fall mission right um so I'm like, no. I mean, you can do a second pass if you want. And, um, but no, I'm not doing that. So um, this this commander wanted us to jump from 25,000 feet and do a, a hey-ho. And I'm like, not going to happen. He's like, you'll do it. I'm like, you really want me getting out of the bird in Israel? Because that's the only way that's happening, mm -hmm. right? Because the wind has a say. Because you have so much drift, right? Wherever you get out, you open up. You jump out of a bird at 25 grand and open up right away. It's like you're in an airplane, but you're outside and you're flying for a long time. The wind is pushing your van. There's no way to do this in in, in the place we were in, you know? Mm. But uh, so we jump, we land, we get our razors and freaking put them up. And we drive up into, over this, the day meet us on the ground, we drive up into, into this overwatch position up on the hill. And I have a team in the village and I have a, I have a cell in the village and a cell with me on top of this hill. And these guys are with us. So they come to this tree, they exercise with a bag of candy, no gear. <laughs> like, yeah, they ate every MRE we had. They slept the whole time. The guy in the urban hide that was in the middle of the village, which the guys are like whispering and being super tactical. He had night terrors. He woke up screaming in the middle of the night. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, at one point, the guys on the hill, the guy stole my glasses, my sunglasses. I was like, you son of a bitch, right? Um, it was a complete mess. Like it was horrible. Uh, it just, they weren't taking it seriously. They were terrible. Now there are, I did work with some other units. Jordan's a very weird country. It's, it's on a powder keg. Like you feel like it's about to explode. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Zarkari was from Jordan. Like mm -hmm. we drove through some of those villages and just poverty and horrible conditions. So we did that. And then we went out and did, uh, 
we did that combat kind of top tier J set type thing in about mm-hmm. three other countries. One of them was Oman. I was very, I was very impressed with Oman, you know. Oman, beautiful country. And uh, we went to the Oman SAS officer corps and we taught them leadership and we taught them, I actually taught them VBSS, right? Nice. Which me, and we had some young SEALs with us and I was like, mm-hmm. you guys want to do this? It's kind of your thing. And they were like, no. So I was like, I'll do it. And I had, a, I, and I, I have never. Why didn't they want to do it? Yeah, I, they're just young and inexperienced. They didn't uh-huh. want to be put on the spot, I think. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I don't know, but I, I did it. Uh, we taught them leadership and planning. And my, my captain had been a Ranger Regiment officer and then he'd been an SF. He was a great yeah. guy. He was solid. And between me and him, we, we did uh, this planning and all that kind of thing. Uh, we had some guys in, I'll just say it, we had guys in Kuwait teaching their guys, breaching and long-range shooting and all kinds of stuff. We had guys in UAE, we had guys in Jordan, we had guys in uh, Oman um, as, as part of this bigger operation. And it was actually pretty cool. It, it, it was a pretty cool mission. Um, two years as a team sergeant. Then I, I wanted to do a third year and they wouldn't let me. And the way SF is, if they're grooming you to be a sergeant major, they want you to keep moving up the chain, uh-huh. which is, uh, and they, they want you to be a first sergeant. So a first sergeant is just a master sergeant with a freaking extra thing where you're in charge of troops, right? And only a few of the, a lot of master sergeants go through to be team sergeants, right? But only a few become first sergeants. And the ones they make first sergeants are being groomed to be sergeant majors, right? Okay. So they give me a first sergeant job and they sent me out to, to uh what was called the Warrior Leader Course. It was a leadership school at Swick mm. for young uh, soft. Okay. Going, so they go through, they come in off the street, 18 x-rays. Yeah. They go basic training, AIT, advanced training, airborne school. They come to brag, they do this preparation course, they do selection. If they pass selection, they'd come to me for three okay. weeks of leadership training. And uh, I had like 14 Green Beret instructors working for me. And I, I ran that school for two years mm-hmm. and I did a lot of stuff and changed a lot of stuff. One of, one of the classes that was mandatory was law of land warfare, mm-hmm. rules of engagement. And I used to bring a JAG officer in and he or she would talk through the whole thing, right? And they'd say, can't shoot kids, can't shoot unarmed people, all these very, very rigid rules. And I always felt like it was a disservice to these young soldiers because the world is not black and white. The world is gray. And once that JAG officer left, I would say, look, everything that JAG officer told you is absolutely true. However, the world looks different through a set of night vision goggles on a roof in Baghdad than it does from mm-hmm. a JAG officer's ring, right? Can't shoot unarmed people, right? I get that. We're not them. We don't do that. However, what is an unarmed person running towards your blocking position in the middle of a curfew in a place where there's suicide bombers? That an enemy soldier, do you let him run up in your vehicle and detonate or do you shoot that person, right? Um, they catch you in on people. What's somebody with a phone on a roof as a spotter in a gunfight? Is that a legitimate target or is that not a legitimate target, right? Uh, what is somebody digging an IED on a road? That a leg- like, there's so much gray there that giving people this very black and white version of mm. the world is a disservice. And a, and a JAG officer, a military lawyer is always going to, cover the rest, right? They're always going to err on the side of caution and say, you can't do this, you can't do that. One of the common misconceptions that used to come up in every class was, and the JAG officer would ask it, um, was who here thinks that we cannot shoot back 
with heavier weapons than we're shot at, right? So if they shoot, and this was in the UN, it was like this, but if they mm. shoot at us with rifles, we can't use a 50 cal on them, right? Mm. And half the class would put their hand up. And I was like, where do people get this idea? Mm. We shoot drones into cars with no guns in them at all. Mm. <laughs> like, that's just not true. We're going to mm. bring to bear everything we have on the enemy. That's just fake that we cannot shoot back with heavier weapons than we're shot at with. Um, but that was a really cool job. Mm. And when it was over, I kind of came to the realization that I don't want to be a sergeant major. Yeah. I just don't. I saw where sergeant majors go in the army and they get completely pulled away from soldiers. Mm. Um, while I was a first sergeant, I went back to Afghanistan for about three months and worked in a, in a operation command kind of position. Um, basically watched drone strikes so and the, coordinated the stuff. Yeah, in a jock, yeah. Uh, watched drone strikes and coordinated medevacs and stuff like that. Um but I, I, I got a bonus to sign on for under six years when I was at 19. I took it because mm -hmm. I, I thought. So they're, they're handing out the big money then. That was the big money. The uh, devil's money. And yeah. it was not. What a, was it like 120 or something like that? What are they? 150. Okay. Yeah. And, and being overseas, I got a tax free, right? Tax -free. So, but it seemed like a lot of money. And it's actually not. Well, it is a lot of money. It's all relative. But it goes quickly. And especially when you get a lot of debt. Um, not that I had, but I had some. Yes. Um, so I signed off for six more years. And. Not a great program because it's six years after your fun time, after yeah. your team time. Yeah. So it's six years of staff time, basically, oh, right? Brutal. brutal. Oh. And especially when I, I didn't want to be a sergeant major, I said, yeah. I'm not doing that. So I declined my record review for sergeant major a bunch of times. Uh, but then I got to go somewhere. So I was offered to go back to range 37 to be a sniper instructor, huh. get, to run, not to be an instructor, to run sniper school. Yeah. But that was like a year, two years, and I had like six years to kill. And I was like, ooh, what am I going to do? So a job came. Did you ask them if they had that buyback program like the Irish Army did? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a lot to pay back at that point, though. Yeah, that's a lot. I didn't have it. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so I... I a job opened up in the force mod office okay. for a weapons guy, weapons and ammunition, night vision, goggles, all that kind of yeah. stuff that I like, right? This is at Bragg or is this down in Florida? It's okay. Yeah, it's at Bragg. So the way it works is um, within USASOC, like if there's a requirement in the army, when they get new equipment, it comes to the Pentagon. Pentagon goes, we're going to give you a new rifle. It's going to be 6.8. It's going to be this, this, this. Soldiers really have no say. Mm. In SOCOM, it's a so it's top-down driven in the army. In SOCOM, it's supposed to be bottom-up driven. SEAL team goes, this is what we could not do. Yeah, with here's what the, we need. This is what, yeah. we, this is what we can't do with the equipment we have. And this is our requirement, right? SF team and all that kind of, same thing, right? So it gets pushed up. Now, if an SF team come up with a requirement, it gets signed by the group commander, it gets pushed to me. And the force mod office, again, I had a dozen E8s, E7s working for me, Green Berets, right? It gets pushed to me. We rated up a validation document that, two-star general science and it goes to USASOC and they start the whole process. Now it's a five-year process to get anything done. Mm -hmm. um, partly because there's extensive testing with stuff, but partly because it just, it does this staff circle where it just goes round and round and sits on somebody's desk for 90 days. Oh. And then it goes back for a spelling mistake. Like it's just an inefficient system. Yeah. Anybody who thinks the government can run things has never worked for the government. Right. Um, and it's very, I spent five years in that job, right? It was in some ways very satisfying because I got some great programs through. And in a lot of ways, it was the most frustrating job I've ever done in my life. And it was exhausting. You're surrounded by GSs as well? Yeah, I had some GSs, but the ones that worked for me were very good. Yeah. Um, there was other ones there in the same floor that were terrible. But so it's mostly Green Berets, some GSs, and uh, 
each group has its own little mini first mod office, but mm. they don't really do anything because every program is a joint program in SOCOM. So when you start something, you get the Navy on board, you get MARSOC mm. on board, you get everybody on board. And we go there with a, with a united voice mm. trying to get systems pushed through. That's the only way you get anything funded, right? So I had a great relationship with the Navy guy, actually. Mm. Um, great guy. And uh, we did work really well together. And we always try to bring the Army along too because for us in SOCOM... In, in USASOC, if the army pay for it, um, mm. that's money we don't have to use of or our SOCOM money, right? Yeah. And that was the, the, the Barrett MRAD that's fielded now. We, mm. we built that program from the ground up and we included the army because it's not even about the army buying the guns. It's the three calibers of ammunition for the next 30 years. It's billions of dollars, right? Yeah. But because we included the army very early on and we got their buy-in and all nice. that, that started as a SOCOM so gun. one of those. Yeah, me too. Mm. Uh, it started as a SOCOM gun and became a big army gun, which the army feel it, right? So um, so when the, when the requirement would come up, then we would work that system. Now, the problem is when you spec, so you can't go, hey, we want to buy that gun or that optic. It's illegal. There's federal regulations where you have to do an open competition for mm. everything. It, it, and that's what drags it down and, and makes it very, very slow and cumbersome. Um and then you, when you spec something, if you say, I want a new optic, or I started the one to six optic that SIG ended up winning um, because I wanted to get rid of I the love that kind. optic. Yeah, it's a great optic. Yeah. yeah. So we wrote, we, you know, we wrote the specs for that. We said we want it to be this radical, this focal plane, this power range, this. We read all those specs and then we push it out to uh, uh, industry. And then they all submit mm -hmm. and it gets tested against those standards and whoever wins, wins. Mm. Um, that's how the regulations work. But you can't, you can't write that spec unless you know what's what's possible, right? Mm. Because if you make your standards too high, right. the documents will all get written, the money will be spent, and then a year later, all the scopes will come in, they'll all fail. And you're right back to where you were. Now, if you spec it too low, you already have something on or, the show. Or you get the HK uh, Mark 23, yeah. uh, that pistol, that 45 know, pistol that's like as big as a rifle. <laughs> there was a guy in... I want to get one, though, anyway. When we worked with ERU, me and Mike Glover... Um, there was one of the SEALs carried that. No on, way. On his hip. This is the first he, person, this is the first I've ever heard of someone actually carrying one with down range. With the on. That is wild. It was, it was down to his knee. With that big Safari Land holster, I think it yeah. was. It was specially made for it, maybe. Yeah. That, that, yeah, I've never it, heard of somebody yeah. Yeah. using that I, I down range. If you hold that up, I think it's longer than the MP5. It's if pretty. It collapsed the buttstock on anything. It's close. Um, he carried it, yeah. What? Um, yeah. Was he a giant? No, he wasn't. You know what's funny is, wow. you know the cubbies I've we had never heard of that. And for everybody who's listening, so the HK-23, I think it came from a bunch of requirements that it has to, pistol has to do this, one, two, three, yeah. four, five, six, yeah. seven, eight. And so they combine them all into this thing that might as well have been a rifle. Well, what people do, and it's illegal and it's stupid, is they write a requirement around what they want. Right, right. So if they say, that's the gun we want, well, it has to be, you know, 18 inches long and weigh this. And yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So there's only one gun right. that can meet that. Yeah. Well, the problem is that company has you by the balls now because yeah. you can't buy anything else and you're tied to that program. And it's just, it's a really bad way to do things. Um, but we were, we were in Iraq in 05 and the guy who had that, H&K. I cannot believe that someone had that. I, I know, know, right? I learned about so it for the first time. It was in his cubby with one of those disposable cameras mm -hmm. and the guy was leaving the next day to go home. And Glover took his disposable camera and his HK 
and did some vile things with it around his genitals <laughs> and took pictures of it and then put it back. Uh -huh. So I'd love to see his face when he got those developed. <laughs> oh, yeah, a classic. Yeah, you can't leave your camera. It is. Yeah. It's, 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 it's mean, a classic, yeah. Uh, hey, if you leave a disposable camera laying around, you deserve what you get, right? Oh, man, it doesn't um, surprise me that the guy carrying that uh, pistol yeah. also left his camera next to it. <laughs> that, uh, it's not shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Great yeah. pistol. I mean, I do want that pistol just to have I for historical yeah. purposes, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but that that's how those programs are written. Yeah. And if they're done right, they can be great. Um, and if they're done wrong, uh, like the, the SCAR was a top-down driven program from mm -hmm. SOCOM. Okay. And pretty much a disaster, that gun. Uh, over you know, people I talk to, people like if it, whatever their first experience was with it is it forever, which is a yeah. lot of things in life. But yeah. if they got like an early one or something like that and they hated it, they put it away and they never used it again. Yeah. But then I've talked to a couple of people that used it. I don't know what, what point in time or if it was any different and they liked it and they, they used it. I don't know. What do you think? I've never even used one. I, I, I didn't. I got out before that yeah. came on. I the problem is if you ever pick one up, it's like as soon as it's you pick big, it up, it's right? so awkward, awkward, and it's like picking up this chair, right? Yeah. I, at one point in SOCOM, we had seven six two scar heavies in the yeah. inventory, and nobody used them. Right. And I was thinking, why don't I put a a, a six five barrel on it? If I rebarrel it in six five, it gives you a better capability. Mm -hmm. It's a better round. So I wanted to take a look at it, and yeah. I could have spent the money. I had the ability to spend the money. It was about a million dollars, and so I, I I had them bring me a couple of scars, and as soon as I picked it up, I was like, no, I, I, it's over gas. Like you, there's specifications for every piece of kit for recoil, right? Lasers and optics and all that, and the specs are all written that it has to be able to shoot on the scar heavy because it's the worst recoil of any weapon system we have. So no, if the, if it doesn't break being shot on the scar, it'll yeah. survive anything. So how did that one come about? And do they still use it? Is it still out there? It's What's in happened? the inventory, but nobody uses it. No, it's it's oh. very very minimally used it's that was a top-down driven program that was not uh operators going we want uh, uh and and during the early GWAT, there was a lot of money mm -hmm. and the whole requirements process was completely shrunk one document could buy a ton of gear mm. um the uh so a lot of stuff came across some of it was good and some yeah. of it wasn't so good um uh, and I, I used to fight with the groups all the time because they just didn't understand the process. They'd come to me and go, we want a new trigger in our carbine, right? Mm -hmm. And I go, you have a Geisley trigger. It's a really good trigger. Yeah. And they're like, well, we want this because the company would come to them, give them a bunch of free triggers. And then they'd come to me and like, we want this trigger. I'm like, let me explain how it works. I can't just buy that trigger. I have to put out a full and open competition, right? Uh, now I'm going to get a trigger from everybody who makes a trigger in his in his basement. Yeah. And I have to test those triggers. Yeah. And I have to test. I can't test a sample of one. Let's say I get five submissions. I have to test five or ten of each trigger. Mm -hmm. And I have to fire thousands of rounds, whatever the requirement says. Now I have to buy all that ammo. I have to pay contractors to shoot all those bullets. In a year, we probably spend a million dollars to get something or two years to get something that you think is incrementally better than what you already have. Yeah. Not going to happen. And they'd be like, well, my group commander says, I said, I don't give a fuck what your group commander says. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I was very blunt and very honest with people, but I ended up fighting with people every yeah. day because they didn't want the truth. They, they just, and they knew that the, the, the general would throw some shit out and, yeah. and he'd be gone in a year. So just right, play him right, out. Right. Just wait him out. It became an exhausting <laughs> fight. Every time a new general come on, he'd go, oh, I want this and I want that. And I'd just be like, here we go again. You don't have the freaking money. It's yeah. $20 million that you don't have. Right. And, but the GSs would tell him whatever he wants to hear <laughs> because 
he'll be gone in a year. Right. And the next day I'll come in, we'll do it again and again. It became exhausting. And I ended up fighting with everybody. And it, it I, I ended up getting angrier and angrier and angrier at work. So when I had two years left in the army, everybody was telling me, you need to document your injuries because I have a lot of injuries over a very long career. So I started going and getting x-rays and stuff. And it wasn't long before they said, you can medically retire. Wow. You are fucked up. Okay. Because the standard to be a Green Beret or a SEAL physically is so high, it doesn't take much not to be able to do that. Huh. You you have to be able to pick up a 200-pound man and run fucking whatever that standard is. It's not easy. Yeah. And it's higher than everybody else. So I, I knew I had injuries, but I'd never really done anything about it. So I started right. documenting stuff and documenting stuff and... It wasn't long before they were like, oh, my God, I have two bulging discs in my neck. Both my rotator cuffs are torn. I have a fractured back. I have a bunch of injuries. Still. Like 60 injuries, right? Like all small things. The, the traumatic brain injury, they can test with, a, with an MRI. And they have white spots in your brain. And I 50% of my disability check is, is TBI, right? Uh. And it doesn't really affect me. My memory is a little... My old memory, I can remember my serial old number, stuff. my rifle in Ireland. Oh, wow. And I can remember what happened last week sometimes, right? So... It, it's it's kind of weird, but once they started going down that rabbit hole, um, they're like, you can medically retire. So I ended up medically retiring like a little, like a year early. Yeah. And I got out and as I was getting out, I was trying to figure out what I would do. And I hadn't talked to Mike Glover since we shot a sniper comp together in 2014 up in West Virginia. I hadn't yeah. really talked to him since. Now we were really good friends, but... Um, People were telling me, oh, Glover's all over the internet. And, and I had no Instagram. I had nothing. Yeah, I, I barely had either. an email address. Yeah. So I started looking at stuff. And I actually liked what I saw. And I liked the positivity of it. And yeah. I, I liked the, 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 the company mission and the way things were framed. And I really enjoyed teaching people. And I really enjoyed teaching civilians. Uh -huh. Sometimes these army guys, they, they, they think they know it all already. But... Um, I really enjoyed teaching civilians. So I came out, even when I was still in the army, I flew out to Arizona when he was mm -hmm. there. I taught a couple of long run courses for him and I came back and then I ended up coming on board full time. And we, So you did do the medical retirement whole I thing? I did the medical retirement, yeah. yeah. I got out and I'm 100% disabled. The um, I'm actually, you know the way the VA works? The, the, you're, I don't even. It's very complicated, but. I couldn't deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, I ended up working for Mike a little bit and then teaching more and more and more. Then we moved to Utah and we did all that. And then at one point I was just like, my wife and kids were still in North Carolina. Oh, wow. I was back at Fort, back at Fort. And I was like, I... I they didn't I, want to come out here? No. And, and my kids were still in school. And, and I realized I was repeating the pattern I did in the army. I was putting work before my family. Mm. And I did it for years. And I carry a lot of guilt because of it. I, I just wasn't there. Um, yeah. And even when you're home, you're not home. Yeah. You're mentally, oh, you're yeah. not home. And even when I was in sniper school for three years, which would I worked my ass off. I worked every fucking. I, I worked way more hours than I needed to work, and and I, it, it, it's just it, it's who I am in some ways. But I, I just got to the point where I, I can't do this. And I went to Mike, and, and we come up with a solution. I'd go and I'd open up North Carolina, and I'd run all the training from North Carolina. So nice. in North Carolina, we have a small office, podcast okay. studio, um, classroom. And I use local assets because there's so much there for special operations. Yeah. And I have so many contacts that we use right. local ranges and shoot houses nice. and stuff to train. And basically that's where um, all the training is run out yeah. of. So um, that, that, that was... Well, that's a solid move. Have you tried the, uh, the Rise triggers? Do you know Rise? Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard of them no. before either. And I, yeah. I just tried them out the other day. 
I'll tell you nice. what I tell you what I just really recently nice. tested. The X95 Tavor. Full pop. Yeah, I saw you on your on your Instagram. You Amer- held it up, Ameri- right? Americans hate Americans don't like full pops. I was going to ask you about that actually. It's freaking nice. Did you it's, use them over in in Europe uh, yeah, at some point? We had styers in the Irish okay. army. Had styers. Now I was in soft. Mm-hmm. We used eight Ks, but when I went to Lebanon that second trip, I carried mm-hmm. a styer for six months. Okay, I liked the bullpup configuration. Yeah, but I could never. And the styer is a good weapon, but mm-hmm. I could never really find something I really liked. Now. You get that long barrel and that short configuration. Yeah. It's shorter than a 10-inch M4, yeah. but it's got a 16-inch barrel. Yeah, I remember you explained it on it's your Instagram. It's very yeah. comfortable to shoot. I like it. Now I, I need to get I, one. I need to get a I couple tested different ones. It. I tested it side-by-side side with a, a 16-inch BCM. It does not shoot as well. Okay. It was not as consistent. The BCM shot some inner angle. I do like this my was like companies. a 1.2, 1.3, but it shot, like, what's acceptable for a carbine? Like, if it shoots, let's say it shoots two minutes of angle. That's a six-inch group of 300. I mean, that's not bad for a carbine. Mm. Um, I liked it. I love the way it feels. I love all the weight in the back. I can yeah. shoot it with one hand. Uh-huh. I like how compact it is. Yeah, it was cool I'm hearing you explain it. I was watching that video. <laughs> I'm a fan. Yeah. People hate it. I like it's it. Mar- it's like back in, let's say, uh, mid-80s. Yeah. Uh, even even mid-90s, like a P7. Like, wait a yeah. you got you to gotta engage this, uh, yeah. disengage the safety yeah. by squeezing. Yeah. It's just different. It's not a 1911, yeah. and it's not a Glock, you know, and it's different. not a 226. It's it, it's too different for Americans, yeah. similar to, I, to that kind I, of So I did rifle. a video on it, and it's not out yet. My wife's editing, but I, I side-by-side them, because seeing it does this, to a lot of people, doesn't mean anything. But if I compare it to something, mm-hmm. right? Now... I said, people don't like it because it's different. That's why I like it. If I wanted yeah, another yeah. M4, I'd just buy another M4, right? Right. Um, <laughs> it is. And, and then the They multiply the, quickly, those M4s or yeah, those AR type of systems. And I love the M4. It's a classic. But I wanted something different and something kind of unique. Now, the arguments against it are, you know, you can... It, it, the ejection port's here, right? Yeah. So if you switch it to your left side, the yeah. ejection port's right here. It can be configured to move to your left side if you want. But people will say, well, if I shoot right side of cover, I'm like this, and I'll switch hands to go left side. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. Right. I'm saying I've never done it. I've never seen anybody do it. And in Sephardic, they pushed that hard at one point. For a point. while, they were pushing that hard. For a while, yeah. they were pushing it hard. So they had students on this range for weeks, shooting right side cover, switching, shooting left yeah. side cover. As soon as they went into simulation, nobody ever did it again. No, no, nobody uh, ever did it again, right? They just leaned out and yeah, yeah. shot, you know? So I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying it's not as yeah prevalent as people not saying it's not a bad it's not a great idea yeah but if i'm in real life if i was posted on the left side of cover for a while yeah i'd probably switch Mm. but running up there to shoot three rounds and run i wouldn't do it i just Mm -hmm. i i I have more things on my mind remember lethal weapon 2 mel gibson going through the house switching hands yeah i know yeah yeah it's good you're over looks good on film it looks good on film (laughs) so i liked it tavor and and that video is being put together now I like the compactness of it. It's very concealable. And in this world where the NFA and, and the, the the brace is going to get, you know, the ATF are going mm-hmm. after the brace so you can't have a, a short barrel rifle and mm-hmm. all that. This is a short rifle mm-hmm. with a 16-inch barrel, which gives you that muzzle velocity, right? It gives you the high muzzle velocity, yeah. flatter trajectory. I don't know. I like it. People yeah. hate it. But a lot of the people who hate it have never even fired it. They yeah. just don't like right. how it's come. No, right. I did reach for the wrong place to change the mag a few times. That's going to happen. Yeah. It, it I is. mean, you've done it for how many years now? How many yeah. years did you have? Oh, uh, total? overall, 35 or something in military, right? So I did reach for the wrong place a couple of times, and then I caught myself. Um, Especially under stress. Like, yes. give somebody that yeah. thing, give them a fam, and then mm-hmm. do a stress course. Like, yeah. it's, you know. But I tell you, my wife held it, and... 
for her to hold an M4. Yeah, yeah. Kind of front heavy weight. It takes a little. Okay. But back here, it all all the weights back here. She could hold it very, very comfortably. I have to get my wife one. It'd be another yeah, excuse. Yeah. It's, really, it's like for you. It. I don't know. I yeah. like it. I, I think it's a, it's a very comfortable rifle to shoot. Yeah. And okay. Very, yeah. Uh, I'm a fan. They're, right. they're uh, I never really. I pick one up. And the style was okay, but um, cool looking, die hard. It does looks looks uh, yeah, die mm -hmm. hard. When they needed in the movies, when in the eighties, when they needed, needed a, a bad guy, they needed yeah. a futuristic weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They put exactly. a style in there because uh -huh. it looks different. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to the force mod office. I thought I was going to see all kinds of cool weapons and lasers yeah. and all. It hasn't evolved like. Bullets are still lead and gunpowder and brass. Like, yeah. you know, Brian Litz, you know, Brian Litz is a ballistician. And he said that uh, brass or lead was put on this earth to make bullets. Mm. There's nothing better yeah. right now. The, the whole push now is, and I'm not giving anything away. It's all, it's a lot of technology, right? Augmented reality pushed into your night vision goggles. Yeah. So you can see these whole patterns right. eventually into glasses and yeah. eventually into contact lenses, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the all the communication stuff, all the GPS denied environment stuff, drone and counter drone is a massive thing. Like counter drone in itself, I've seen fifty different counter drone systems, and I've I've been at tests for them, and it's it's a twofold problem, right? Because you have to detect it, and then you have to interdict it, mm -hmm. and they both have unique problems. Um, and it's a tiny little thing that's out there, way out there. And you can have acoustic panels that pick up the sound, but they don't work well in the city mm. or anywhere there's any noise, right? You can have all these things, pixel trackers and all these things, and, and trying to, to locate it and then trying to interdict it. Ideally, you'd, you'd kill the operator, right? But it's a massive problem. You know one of the best things that they've ever come up with to take down a small drone? A net? A falcon. Oh, wow. A falcon. Hunts on command. Wow. Awesome eyesight. Yeah. Strong That's talons for the props. Take that thing. Problem is, can't fly at night. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, that's give one them those of the, contact lenses. Give them little nods. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was talking to somebody the other day about uh, about hunting with uh, with falcons out here. Someone has a, a yeah. setup here in really? Utah. I've always been yeah. uh, fascinated yeah. with that. I wanted to get out yeah. to to, it, to do that at some point. But it's really the training. This yeah. the this how they uh, just just living with this thing. I mean, yeah. it's pretty impressive. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the other problem with drones is that, you know, you can shut off the signal to the drone. The drone's just going to, it'll rise and it'll go back to its operator, right? Mm. It, it, you're not stopping it. And then the number of places in America where you can test counter drones yeah. is very limited because there's commercial aircraft. You don't, yeah. you can't interfere with their signals. You can't interfere with communications. It, it, there are very few places. So that's a massive, and it's not just an American problem. It's a worldwide problem. Yeah. And it's not even the, the whole threat of flying over our troops and dropping something it's the whole reconnaissance element of mm. you can't have the enemy saying everything you're doing um it's so funny the next war like the the I think there's, when, a, there's what the iranian drones i'm reading about that are in ukraine yeah right now, right? the everywhere. russians are using they're everywhere there, there's drones you can send down underground bunkers and caves and it'll map the whole thing out and it, it, it it's crazy but in this day and age where you can get on a computer and and you know blow up centrifuges in an Iranian nuclear facility yeah. from a computer in Langley. You know what I mean? It, it, it's a whole new world. Yeah. Um, they're, they're starting to strap a lot of gear on soldiers now and um, equipment technology does not reduce the training requirement. It increases it. Yeah. And Something we, else we to learn. Tend huh? to, we tend to try to 
replace training with equipment. It doesn't work like that. And an example I used to give is uh, I was on a sniper team in a SIF company, all that. When I went to sniper school, we had those Viper rangefinders. Remember those big I green do. ones? I do. So they have a GPS in them and everything. Now, I didn't know. I was using that on a team as a rangefinder. 400, 395, 261, right? Um, you can actually shoot that laser, drag it, and you can measure like an HLZ with it. You huh. can almost measure a doorway with it. Okay. But I didn't know that until I worked at sniper school. So mm -hmm. there's a piece of equipment that we had that we weren't using to its full potential. And that that's very common across SOCOM. They have so much equipment, they're not using it to its full potential because mm -hmm. the training kind of gets, it gets blown over and it's a huge piece of it. Mm -hmm. You know, new equipment comes down, they send... They're supposed to send 10 Green Berets to this new equipment training and, and three mm. cooks and a driver show up, you know, and it doesn't mm. get utilized properly. Yeah. I, I tried to do that under a closed network at SOCOM where we built YouTube videos for every piece of equipment and it was behind a, a, a cat card sign-in thing so soldiers at least could go on and watch a video because that's how people learn now with the YouTube uh. model. So that was, that was one of the things I started to try to get better training out there for guys. Yeah who are not utilizing their equipment to its full potential. Um, but it, it's, uh, we had, in that force mod office, I had eight commodity areas that I managed, right? I had target engagement, which was guns and optics and bullets and anything gun-related. Um, mobility was vehicles. Um, uh, the SIF had its own separate one. Uh, soldier systems was the body armor, the helmets mm. and the clothing and all the spear gear and all mm -hmm. that. Uh, communications, robotics, psychological operations, and uh, yeah. oh, Intel systems, oh. all the tracking devices and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it was hundreds of programs, and and it was balancing yeah. them all. And uh, but I had really good guys working for me, and they managed them. They were the experts. I was an inch deep and a mile wide on everything. Yeah. But it really did educate me on on the whole acquisitions process, and right. and I did a lot of studying when I get there because it's boring as hell, but. I had to know the rules so I could circumvent them, yeah. right? And I, I, I had to know the regs so I could yeah. move between the lines. And and uh, me and my guys, we got a lot done. And uh, it, it's kind of coming to fruition now, even mm. though it's been gone. Yeah. The ASR, the, the new sniper rifle, the 6.5 Creedmoor. Which is the ASR? Sniper. It's the Bar Barrett MRAD. Okay. It's so. the three caliber switch barrel system. Okay. Um, What's ASR stand for? Advanced Sniper Rifle. Okay. Yeah. That's it was just, we needed a name for it, man. Yeah, we need a name. Um, and what's the eight. next, what's the next iteration of the, of sniper weapon system after that? So the, the smart scope is coming, right? Where you laser the target and it drops the, 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 uh -huh. the thing. But again, you have to be able to revert back to an optic if you have to. Um, they have wind sensors now that will shoot out and it will pick up the dust particles and it'll oh, give wow. you a wind call. Now they're, they're slow to return. They're only good to a certain distance that the, the they're not there yet. You have to be very, it has to be on a tripod. It can't be handheld mm. because it's going out and coming back. And if you yeah. move where it's coming back and yeah. false read, wow. but they're getting there. But eventually. Right? Yeah. Eventually it'll be built into the scope where you lose the target. It'll go out and come back and it'll give you the drop for elevation and the wind call. Mm -hmm. And you'll be able to shoot. Um, the, the whole sniper thing, people think sniper stuff's going away. It's actually not. In Syria, Why do you think it's going away? I, I heard an officer one time go, oh, it doesn't... There hasn't friggin' officers when, yeah. when, when, when Operation Red Wings yeah. kind of those not a risk averse commanders were very reluctant to put sniper teams on the ground after that mm. because they can fly a drone, right? They can fly a drone in there and, and they, they don't want to do it. However, on the on the 
flawed on the forward line of own troops in Syria. There was a lot of long-range shots being mm -hmm. taken. And the capability of snipers has advanced so far. Mm -hmm. What used to be a very difficult shot is not as much anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, snipers are capable of hitting precise yeah. targets at extreme long range now. We have prisms and all kinds that line a lot of mills to it and, and just like that. So it's not going away. And it's such it's such a powerful weapon in the hands of the right guy. Yeah. It's... Um, it, 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 I think as as technology grows, or it gets better. Like the the, the Anand Block Three that we have now in SOCOM for the thermal weapons site. Mm. You ever shot that thing? No. I'm gonna get one and I'm gonna let you shoot it because oh, you. you'll get behind that thing on a and you'll shoot it at a mile, let's say, at a heated target. Bang! No way. And you watch the bullet fly because you're seeing That's the heat. That's crazy. You watch the heat of the bullet fly uh -huh. all the way to the target, and you see it hit a foot to the left, and you adjust back, and you watch that bullet fly all the way. It's insane. That's pretty cool. It's really cool, yeah. Okay. Um, Dang. So, you know, technology's cool, but you'll never replace training yeah. and soldier skills, like just being good at, at what you do. Yeah. I, I think sometimes we, we lug so many different tasks on special operations guys yeah. that we take away somewhat from, from each one. You try to be good at everything. It's like a piece of equipment, right? You try mm -hmm. to make it do everything. It does everything badly. Right. Um, but the, the training piece really, I think the biggest gap in the U.S. military right now, at least in the U.S. Army, is actually training. It's not equipment. They're very well equipped. I think the training gets pushed to the side for other BS tasks a lot. Whereas, like, if you're an infantryman, you should be training every freaking day mm -hmm. and hard, realistic training. Like, if you look at the mouth sites, like the, the CQB sites on some of these bases, they're absolutely crap. Even Fort Bragg. Oh, really? Oh, they're terrible. Yeah. They're team Fort Bragg, like range 75, range 68. They're just shells of buildings with no floors mm. in some cases. Um, th that's where money should be put, I think. And I, I watched in the Force Mod world millions and millions and millions of dollars being sunk into programs that just not realistic requirements. Mm. Um, and I, I'd love to see that money get filtered elsewhere, especially to training. Yeah. What about but, recruitment? They're the all that you know recruitment goals, not hitting recruitment goals, yeah, and you wonder why. Well, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think a lot of problems with recruitment right now is there's not anything really cool going on as far as they know. And that special ops are always going to do cool shit around the world that people don't even know about. Yeah. But that drive... Um, the people you know, think they missed it? Like, I oh, think man, they missed it. I yeah. don't know. Because they'd be like, oh, I wanted to be a SEAL. I wanted to be SF, but the war's over. So I would have gone, but the war was over. I think over. they're making like, excuses exactly. to themselves, you know? And I've Just said that. that to people. They're like, well, I want to go, but I got this and that. And I'm like... Look, man, be real with yourself. You're making excuses now. Go or don't go. Just don't yeah. be don't be trying to talk yourself into not going. I can guarantee you you're not going to get a shot to go and test yourself downrange somewhere and be part of a team if you don't go. <laughs> if you don't go. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Can't guarantee even yeah. if you go and go through all that training, there'll be something yeah. that happens. Yeah. But I how can old, guarantee if you don't go, How old were you be. when you were in the Navy? Uh, 21. Okay, yeah. I, and I, these guys are 30 or 35, and they're like, well, I really want to do it. And I'm like... Look, if you don't do it now, when you're 40, you're going to look back and go, oh, when I was 30, I should have went. So if it's in your system now, you might as well just go knock yeah. it out. And the guard is a great one for SF because some guys, oh, I have a really good job, but I want to do it. If you go to the guard, you go to the same Q course, the same selection, mm. you have access to a lot of the same schools, and you just go play on the weekend. Yeah, the Army has it, that part figured out. That's really cool. It's a good yeah. deal. You get the best of both worlds. Yeah, that's you know? definitely a good deal. So, but then, um, how much do you think of it is uh, them watching, or just people watching, parents watching uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and 
not really encouraging. Or if their kid comes and say, Hey dad, I think I'm going to join the army. And then what does he initial, what does he think of immediately? Yeah. Like right now, like, Oh wait, I just saw, I don't have any, I don't have no touch point with the military, but guess what? I could have done that better. Yeah. Well, you, you, you look at all these generals who make massive paychecks and they spend their whole career in these leadership schools and planning schools. And this was the, the best you could do. This is it. This is my what we have to show for yeah, it. My son's in the army. My, mm. my oldest son's an intel analyst in the army. Oh, my it? daughter's in the army reserve. Oh, wow. She's an MP in the army reserve no in, in Colorado. Yeah. Um, he's like, uh, 25 yeah, okay. young. Um, but I didn't push either one of them into yeah, the yeah. army. You know, they 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 chose that path on their yeah. own. And they were already in. They, when they that were, happened. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean that's a point, right? You look at the the Afghanistan debacle after twenty years, and 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 yeah, that's blood. the other point. You had twenty years to plan for this. Yeah, and a lot of blood and a lot of money, and you look at that withdrawal, and we left we left it maybe worse than we when we armed them with. So much equipment. You know, it was bad. When I was in Afghanistan in 14, um, a buddy of mine was the first sergeant on that Camp Sather there, and he was going over one day. They they had whole systems in place to destroy equipment over there, big mm-hmm. screen TVs, military equipment, mm-hmm. chopping up vehicles, because we had so much gear there, and we knew we were leaving, and we didn't want to leave it there. Um, and he was like, do you want to come over? I got to drop this stuff off. And I was like, I can't. I can't go over there and watch that conveyor belt mm. that's putting all kinds of equipment and just shredding it. Wow. And, uh, but if a soldier lost something, he would be charged. Oh, And yeah. then they'd get was it back it, uh, and Colonel, what Paul Yingling said back in, probably let's say, I might get this wrong, let's say 2005, 2006 maybe, uh, that a, a private who loses a rifle gets in more trouble than a general who loses a war. Yeah, that's true. It really is. Um I, 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 what do you think, let me ask you this, what do you think a lot of veterans become very disgruntled with the government? Yeah, it is a thing, isn't it? You know why? It was in Vietnam too. I, it is. And I'm not, look, government has its place, but I think when I worked Force Mod, I sat at the table weekly with the generals and all the staff. And I think I seen behind the curtain and I saw, I wasn't impressed I yeah. saw a lot of people who made a lot of decisions that were better for their career and not for the force. Yeah. And it pissed me off. Yeah. And when you're lower rank, you don't see any of that, right? You're in your little bubble and you're mm-hmm. doing great things for the war. Um, but as I climbed up there and I saw what was going on, I, I got pretty disgruntled near the end. Yeah. And I'm glad I left when I did because I was getting in freak, I was getting straight up disrespectful mm-hmm. to generals. Yeah. Like Good. like Things that would people are like, dude, you can't say that to the general. And I was like, oh <laughs> fuck, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad I left when I did. And I didn't want to leave on bad terms because yeah. I, I really do like the military. Really, the special operations community. I had a great time. And I wouldn't change anything. But I, I got to look behind the curtain near the end, and I was like, man, the government, the the the, the fraud, waste, and abuse, and the expenditure of money of taxpayers' money mm-hmm. used to drive me crazy. Crazy, you know, mm-hmm. if it wasn't a million dollars, like if you had a bill, nobody cared, nobody batted an eye. And I always looked at his taxpayers' money, and and it uh, it bothered me greatly that people would just sink this money in here for no reason other than to advance their career. And uh, it, it 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 did, and and that is a very common thing where these vets come out and they start bad mouthing the government they serve for many many yeah. years, you know. Um, yeah, because there's, well, the other part of that is there's no accountability. No, um, there's not. And, uh, and yeah. we, we saw it for 20 years. Yeah. We saw no one held accountable for yeah. these well, decisions well, and, when, and it's out there for everyone to see. It is. Yeah. 
Well, the, when the invasion of Iraq happened and all these media outlets, which are super biased, were talking about, you know, Cheney and Brandon Root and, and financing all that. And I dismissed it all. But now when I look back, yeah. it wasn't right. all propaganda from the left, you know? Yeah, there's um, big business. There's, there's big business there. There really is. Um, yeah, the military-industrial complex is yeah, a thing. It's huge, mm-hmm. huge. It's a really they got to show profits. Yeah. Got to show profits each quarter. Mm-hmm. And when there's no war, guess yeah. what? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. war, war is pretty profitable. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, that's wild. That's wild. So what are you doing now? Then you got uh, you got the podcast. <laughs> I got a YouTube channel. You got a YouTube channel. Man, got I'm feel, heading up Fieldcraft in in um, yeah, North Carolina. Training. And um, it's not just firearm stuff for people that are listening. It's not. No, uh, it's, it's not just firearm stuff. No, You're doing it's survival, bunch of stuff, canning, yeah. jarring, and medic. I tell you, people ask me okay, I want to start training. What's the first course I should do? And I'm like, medical training. If you don't know how to put a tourniquet on, mm-hmm. you really don't need to worry about CQB, right? Tourniquet um, right here. Yeah. Um, medical training is phenomenal. And we have some great instructors. We have, uh, we do all kinds of stuff, kind of jarring. We do edible medicinal plants. We do, we do some personal, we do personal security now, which is, uh, it's a very popular course. It's basically, it's for people, it's for all the millions of people out there who are, carrying guns who've never mm. even thought about when to use that gun. Mm. And we start with mindset. We talk about the law. We talk about castle doctrine, duty to retreat, hostile intent, imminent threat, uh, all these things, right? And then we talk about carry options and guns and tools. And then we go in and we do scenarios in the afternoon where we put you in scenarios, scenarios at a so gas key. pump so where key. creepy guys asking you for yep. gas and you know people pull that gun and we have simunition guns. And so you can pull that trigger and you can shoot that guy, but you better be right, you know? And I'd hate to see people try to defend themselves and go to prison. And then we teach you what to say when the cops show up because you can do the right thing and say the wrong thing and still get in trouble. And you have the right to self-defense, but in some of these states, you will get in trouble, right? So we run a bunch of scenarios in the house, home invasion, uh, burglar in your house, creepy guy in your house. We run gas station, road rage, all these scenarios. And if you're not actively in the scenario, you're watching and you're still learning, we do grade ARs and it's a very popular course and a lot of people need to take it. And we do, we do a Great. women's course yeah. usually on Saturday. We do a co-ed course on a Sunday and the co-ed course, we encourage encourage couples to come because yeah. we'll put them in the car together yeah, yeah. and it changes the dynamic oh, yeah. completely that's a really good course yeah. um i'm doing a bug out planning course a two-day bug out planning course at the end of february just for planning well, i've seen some of the videos out. for those things those things seem pretty wild yeah well the, the breakout one is yeah just, the breakout one yeah, that's what i'm talking about that, that's crazy yeah that, that's a robin sage basically <laughs> yeah. and a scenario exercise for a week and you guys do that in north carolina and here right no something? well i ran one here about two years ago, ago but yeah. i ran them in north carolina because i have the assets there and i have the structure yeah. And I have all the facilities and uh, it's basically, it's leadership training, it's decision-making, it's planning, it's resilience, it's it's all these things, but it's done under the umbrella of a scenario-based exercise where you're yeah. trapped behind in a foreign country when there's an invasion and you're trying to get out basically, that's right? Cool. Um, so that's another one. The, the, the breakout, the bug out planning one's just a planning exercise and I'm pulling in like senior special operations guys to help me teach that. It's, yeah. it's just planning, right? Um, got a lot of stuff going on. It, it's, um, it's all, it's hard to market training sometimes and people are hurting. It's yeah. hard to get them to spend money on training because training is like a, it's a want, not a need, you know? But, uh, again, training Trump's equipment, there's no point in having a medical kit in your car if you don't know how to use it. Mm-hmm. And we've reduced the cost of a lot of our classes to try and accommodate people. Mm. Um, but we're, we're chugging away and we're, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff. So yeah. I, I have my own YouTube. I have my own, my Instagram is kevin.p.owens. And then my, uh, 
my YouTube is connected to the top of it. It's just Kevin Owens. I have a bunch of videos on there. Um, and I'll just keep plugging away at that. Yeah. Well, very um, valuable. All that stuff you put out is uh, extremely valuable. For a guy who had no social media like a couple of years ago. Yeah. I, I started working for Glover and I'm like, Mike, can I work for you and stay anonymous? And he was like, mm, no. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, damn it. But, you know, I, I, it wasn't that I thought I was a ninja or something and I was a secret squirrel or something. I just kind of a private person. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. But then I posted do. a few Instagram things and my whole world didn't come crashing it. down. Yeah. And I was like, eh, what the hell? Yeah. Um, it's actually a good reference for my kids to, mm. to hear me talk about things that I never talked about growing Interesting. up. I completely sheltered them from it. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted my, my, my wife to think I was in Iraq playing video games, you know what mm. I mean? And, and then you know, somebody on your team gets shot and she hears about it and she's like, oh my God, that that's, uh, mm -hmm. this is real. But um, I, I, I think my career was very long and very varied, but it wasn't planned. It was just, it was for the lack of planning, really. I, yeah. I just kind of went with it. I don't think it's any different. There's a lot of guys out there that did more deployments than me to Afghanistan and Iraq, guys in third group, guys in Delta. That, that did it year after year after year and did some very brave shit and did some fucking, and that you'll never hear about. Yeah. So it's not unique. It's just, it's only different because I was in a foreign army, right? And it's it just it varied that way a little bit. Um, and it, it, it wasn't planned. It was just kind of unfolded that way. And, uh, you know, I've had bullets fly right past my head and it just wasn't my time. And it was, and, and, I'm sure you're the same. Like you, you go into combat and you're just like, if it's my time, it's my time. And I, I accept to, that. Yeah, yeah. That it helps actually. It does. And I think it's the only way you can function. Yep. I think it's the only Agreed. way you can step off that helicopter Agreed. in a gunfight. Um, and it, it is very, very. Otherwise your attention is not where it should be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're worried it, about, is that an IED right there? Is there yeah, a sniper in that thing right there? Yeah, Guess what? Yeah. No, my job right now is to do X, Y, or Z, yep. whatever that job is, yep. not to be like this, yes. you know, so you just got to. Except I can't imagine fate. functioning if you're yeah. if you're scared of dying. I, yeah. I I just can't imagine it. I remember, and I don't I don't say this much, but I remember sitting in the chow hall with Mike Glover in 2006 after a big gunfight, and we were eating, and he said, "I feel nothing on target," and I was like, "I don't either." We were so used to it at that point. I feel nothing. I'm like, my heart rate doesn't raise above what it is now, mm. but other things will stress me out. I was freaking on their investigation in Iraq for misappropriation of funds. Mm. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep for weeks. Mm. I was destroyed at the thought of my reputation being damaged. And, and, uh, but it, it ended up all going away. But that crushed me. Yeah. Combat? Don't care. Didn't yeah. bother me in the slightest. Um, but it, it, it's funny. But people are like, oh, you, you've had a great career. It, it wasn't planned. It was just kind of reacting that mm -hmm. way. And it, uh, th there's, a, there's a price to be paid for deploying all the time. And there's a price to be paid on your family. family. And yeah. you don't realize at the time, and I think it was Andy Stump said to me, the job suffers last. A lot of times with guys like us, the job suffers last and it, the family gets pushed to one side. And, and it can be, luckily I, I, I survived it, but it can destroy families. It mm. really can and does often. Yeah. And by the time you realized what you did, um, it's too late. I, 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 I don't know if there's a way to strike a balance in that, yeah, but yeah. Um, do you remember? Uh, if you strike a balance, something's, that's, that's the weird part about the balance. Something is going to, uh, uh, to lose out. Something's you know? got to give. It's allocation, if it's the guys, it's, it can't be. It's it allocation be. of resources, right? If it's the guys, you're taking do down you remember, range. Uh, 
remember the Mel Gibson movie, We Were Soldiers Once and Young? Mm -hmm. I read that book too. But yeah. um, he's, in, he's in a scene there and the guy, the young guy says to him, how do you reconcile being a soldier and being a father, right? Mm -hmm. And Mel Gibson says, I like to think that being good at one makes me better at the other. Yeah. I, I almost think it's the Very opposite. Mm -hmm. I, I think being good at one takes away the other. Ah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because if you're really good... I guess it depends on the perspective because you can uh, uh, you can put everything as life or life or death, or you can be like uh, something that is of really important, let's say to to you or to let's say a spouse. Well, it's not life or death, so it's no big deal. Well, yeah. to them, it is a big deal. Yes, and you have to realize yeah. that that yeah. it is a big deal to them. Uh, be empathetic, and mm -hmm. you know, not everything is is uh, is the military. So it's so yeah, you have to. I guess it's maybe a too simplistic way to to put it, but. Uh, but there's something to it, I think. But I think so. if you pour your heart and soul into the military, which the military doesn't care. When you leave, they'll say, don't let the the door hit you on the fucking ass on the way out, yeah. right? You're not, everybody's replaceable, but you pour your heart and soul into the military. And there there is something that falls off in your family, right? There is, even when I worked at sniper school, I I worked way more hours than I needed mm. to probably. And uh, anyway, you don't look back, right? That, that, that road leads nowhere. But... People should understand that that there is a price to be paid, and uh, no. especially when you're in combat, year after year after year after year, it does yeah. take a toll on people, and it, it takes a heavy toll on people who have actually been very very heavily engaged. Yeah, I, I actually manage that quite well. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't really talk about killing people much, but I, I think being able to 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 manage that, I think part of it's baked in your DNA, honestly. Yeah. And I, I don't know that training helps. Uh, it's not... Now, I have absolutely no regrets about anything I did. And I, I've been in a lot of combat, right? So people I shot needed to get shot, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think if you look back and there were some things you did that you regret, it would be harder. Yeah. But that I'm not there. So maybe that's why it doesn't bother me at all. I, I did an interview on my way out of the military with a psychiatrist. And I was like, I have absolutely no regrets. Did you see people shot? Yes. Did you shoot people? Yes. Did you see friends get shot? Yes. Did you see this? Did, yes, yes, yes. No regrets. I'd do it again. Yeah. Now you put me on that roof right now, I'd do the exact same thing. And I I, I think that is what helps me process it. Because guys who do stuff or see stuff, they compartmentalize it. They put it mm. away so they can do their job. And then mm. it comes back later on, especially when alcohol gets involved. And, and that's the one. Alcohol, ambient, sleep cycles, yeah. marital problems, it's, TBI, PTSD. Yeah, yeah it's it, a, it all... Like you get these guys, especially at the top tier, they go at a hundred miles an hour for years and years and years and years and years, and then they retire, and they have nowhere to go. They're sitting at home watching TV, Need and then they pour alcohol on yeah. top of it, and it crushes them. Right? People say, "Oh, when you get out, I'm going to take a year off." I, I wouldn't recommend that. I think you keep working at the pace you've been working. Yeah. And it, to me, I, I can't imagine. I can hardly take a day off. It, yeah, yeah. Not a year off. Oh yeah, there's um, no days off. There's no days off. Yeah. Let me yeah. ask you something. No, I have your writing for you. Mm -hmm. Is it, it seems like an overwhelming task for me because people are like, you need to write a book. It seems like an overwhelming task. Is it, is it relaxing for you? Is it stressing or is it just something that happens? Cause you've written a bunch of books now at this yeah. point, but let's see the first book. Yeah. No, because I've been a reader my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so I always thought I knew what I was going to do mm -hmm. next. Um, so it wasn't like, Hey, I'm going to give this thing a try. Yeah. Um, and because I wanted to do it from such an early age, uh, I never thought that I couldn't. Mm. Uh, so I didn't see, I think I can't. No, <laughs> right I mean, and that, that's, that's that 
that piece I talked yeah. about internally in me, I'm very self-doubting a lot. No, I mean, you sit down and it's, uh, it's you know, that, that whole thing about how do you eat an elephant? Yeah. Know, one bite at a time. Yeah. And it's uh, 100,000 words, let's say, ish. Uh, and so you just start. And if you think about that 100,000, that's like looking at the whole elephant yeah. and being like, how am I going to eat is. this whole thing? Yeah. But yeah. if you're like, hey, I got 400 words in today. Perfect. I got 1,000 mm -hmm. words in today. Great. Yeah. Yesterday I did 5,600, which I think is my record. So I did that. That, mm -hmm. that was a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. A thousand is good. You're not getting that today because you've that been talking was, to me for like three yeah. hours. <laughs> that, that's why I had to do it yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but that was crazy. I went and looked at my word count afterward and I was like, oh my goodness. I thought I was going to say three. Yeah. And it's a 56. I'm like, holy mm, mackerel. Okay. That's a lot. That's yeah. my, my, before that I'd done like 52 before. Um, but a normal day, let's say is like 700, 800, 900, 1000, 1200. Yeah. Like that, that, yeah. that range. Like that's yeah. all good. Yeah. Uh, but that's the one bite. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you, you do that enough days in a row, mm -hmm. and then eventually you're gonna have that hundred thousand word. Eventually, that elephant's gonna be gone. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I look at it like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, does it get easier each book? No, because the expectations get higher. Yeah. But I don't really think of it in those terms because yeah. then I'm wasting bandwidth. Yeah. Um, worried, oh, is this gonna be as good as the last one? And for me, it's it's got to be better. Yeah. And so then I just go mm. and I write for really, you know, for me, for the bedside table, just telling mm -hmm. a story, not, mm -hmm. Oh, what, what's in the market right now? What's hot right now? What's so-and-so mm -hmm. doing? I pay no attention to those sorts of things. Um, David Morrell gives some great advice. He created Rambo back in 1972 with first blood. Uh, and he said, be a first rate version of yourself rather than a second rate version of another author. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I just want to tell a good story. Yeah. And if that's a hundred thousand words, 115, 135, I think that's my longest book, 135, I think, um, was the devil's hand, the fourth one. Um, and and, uh, but it's just, just telling, it's however long it takes to tell that story. Mm. And, uh, and people are trusting me with their time. So I'm going to do, put as much of, that's my, all my heart and soul in there. It's very therapeutic because I get to revisit some of these feelings and emotions behind certain things downrange and apply mm. them to a completely fictional narrative. Yeah. So I'm yeah. taking that and turning it into a positive, yeah. um, and moving things forward, but I'm attaching emotion yeah. to things, yeah. uh, which, which is a, a very, uh, therapeutic and positive way to take that foundation of the past and use it going forward. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, so I love it. I yeah. love it. You should, I mean, you have a very unique story. Yeah. So if you fictionalize yeah. it and uh, just say, Hey, I'm going to do 300 words a day, 400 yeah. words a day. Yeah. And maybe not even a day, like, Hey, every Tuesday and Thursday, I'm going to do 400 mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, eventually you're going to have your story written there in a fictional way yeah, uh yeah. And maybe telling it that way is is uh, an easier way to do it or yeah. not easier i don't like the word easier is a uh is maybe a more compelling way for you to tell your story yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i think that would be the way to do it yeah if i could get and it there. sounds like fiction like you're like what this guy you pick if i was to pick up that book yeah and it was a, a novel if it was a work of fiction mm. like what this guy in ireland what the yeah. and then he does this <laughs> yeah that's yeah. all made up but i'm gonna go with it you know yeah. but it's a, it's a we, fantastic we, we story skirted through a lot there like and and i i felt like i was taking up too much time so we skirted kind of fast near the end and, and that's why with the podcast now i'm taking each block each nice like one podcast is one that yeah. i'm in and but i still skirt around certain things i i i'm not comfortable talking about because uh of those reasons i i, I talked about earlier on but if it's a fictional book i can tell them all and i can just yeah. say yeah it never happened you know what's a funny story i, don't know if I should tell you this on this in in uh, do you have to ever do shooter statements? Oh, in, yeah. in Iraq, right? Oh yeah. CSI, so in, in CSI Ramadi, CSI Baghdad. Yeah. Yeah. So shooter statements are basically you're in a gunfight, you gotta write what happened and all oh, that. Yeah. I remember doing shooter statements in 06. That's yeah. and as I was doing them, somebody on my team said, Don't put your real name on it. Hmm. And I was like, Really? I have no problem with what I did. He's like, Don't put your and if you look back now, 
Because those ones went to like the Iraqis, right? I don't know. I don't know. But well, here, there you go. If you don't know, that's right. Because it because it had to be part of the legal process. Yes. I think. Well, here's why that was a very sound piece of advice because they're prosecuting British soldiers now for what they did on Bloody Sunday in the 1970s. They're wow. 90 year old men, and they're trying to prosecute them now. Wow. Right. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility that some liberal tree hugger organization would go back to Iraq, talk to people on the street, pull up shooter statements and try to go after people, right? So as I was doing that, I did nothing wrong. I'm in war, right? And I'm mm -hmm. fighting. But I, when I got to the end and the guy's like, don't put your real name on it. <laughs> and that was kind of common for us. So I, I will tell you in 2006, <laughs> Andy Bernard, Dwight Schrute, <laughs> Michael Scott. These guys were busy. They, they shot a lot of people, man. Those oh, guys. man, the office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was all a big cover. Yeah, yeah. Um, but those are all the names of you. I, I, at the time, I was like, it's like getting read your rights and saying, I don't need a lawyer. I didn't do anything wrong, right? But yeah, at the time, I was like, I don't, I don't need to put a fake name on here. I, I did nothing wrong. Um, but in hindsight, looking back now, actually probably smart, right? Yeah. There's Wise no context move. to what happened. Right. There's their story and our story. And, you know, the, 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 the world is gray. It's yeah. not black and white. Well, I saw the news this morning. I saw uh, Prince Harry did his interviewer's book coming out um, and the 60 Minutes interview. So I didn't see it. I was working. But um, I saw that there's this this uh, controversy about him saying that he, uh, with his when he was an Apache pilot or co-pilot in Afghanistan, he killed 25 people, 24 people, something yeah. like that. And so now, okay, that's that's out there. It's fine. Now I just saw this morning on uh, I was checking Al Jazeera, and I saw Al Jazeera has an interview with someone in Afghanistan yeah. saying we checked all our records for yeah. that day where mm -hmm. he says he did this, and no uh, militants were killed that day. It was all civilians yeah. killed you see that how day. It goes? And right. so they just flipped it. So I don't know. Half the world's going to see that. Yep. We know whatever mm -hmm. that are looking. And uh, now what do they see? That's that's their new source yes. they trust. And like, and look, yep, they were just out there murdering yep. civilians. And where you sit is where you stand, and that that's what they'll believe, right? Because they they are they're looking for goes back something. to that propaganda using yeah, media uh, that we talked about in the beginning. Yes, it it really does, and um, and that's why I don't talk about it much because it's too hard to to explain the context mm -hmm. in which you pull the trigger. And I, I don't want to have to defend myself for something I did that my country sent me to do and that I would do again right now and I did the right thing. So that's just, uh, yeah, interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, well, I'm going to check out the podcast. I hope you write a book or at least start down there. You know, even if no one ever, you don't ever submit it to anybody, you never show yeah. it to an agent, mm -hmm. it's cool for the for future generations or your family to have. Yeah. You know, for your I kids to go to. I think a lot of stories to. are lost. A lot of that war stories are lost. Um, like, I, I know... Stuff that I didn't, even I didn't do. I, other guys did that phenomenal stories, but they'll never be told, especially yeah. CAG stories and, and, and yeah. a lot of those uh, really top tier things. And, and a lot of stuff that's, again, no context that their group did and, and, and all the groups did, you know, years and years and years of combat, um, they'll be lost to history. So, um, yeah, well, yep. Check out the podcast. And yeah, yeah. I just, I just hit the record button and start talking, man. Nice. And, and obviously, I'm a talker. I don't know how long we've been going. <gasps> Four hours? Oh, that my so. God. Is that the I longest so. podcast you ever did? <laughs> it might be. It might be. It might be the longest. I got the, the record. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Think, trying to think if there was a longer Edited one. Down. Oh, no, one longer. One was longer. Was there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, 
Um, Mark, Mark Owen on the uh, UBL raid. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of lot of material there. So. Oh man. Well, I hope you do that. And uh, man, this is. I look. We, we got to talk about Mike Glover again right here because yeah. we had these the uh, Rocky Mountain sourced everyday water from Fieldcraft. Mm-hmm. Look at this. Is my first. It just arrived here. Mm. Um, so yeah, Fieldcraft water. I don't know if they're. They, we have to edit this part out. I don't know if this is top secret yet or not because it just no, uh, showed up. The veteran owned right there. Look at yeah. that. Bam. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, before we go, we have to take a look around this place. Look mm-hmm. at that security stuff. It's always good to have somebody else yeah. coming in. There's a few yeah. things I want to do, you know, with the yeah. gates and cameras, yeah. wide angle. And there's a few things that I'm going to kind of do around here. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's yeah. an awesome place. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Appreciate cool. it. Appreciate it. Well, man, thanks for uh, yeah. for being here, and thanks for stepping up and doing everything that you did, and thanks for passing on lessons learned uh, here and through Fieldcraft. I know mm-hmm. everybody that takes your classes walks away much better prepared for mm-hmm. it. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, amazing. amazing. Thanks for having me out here. It's beautiful Absolutely, place. man. Absolutely. You. Take care. Okay. You awesome. too. Bye. We all know how finances can take a major hit during the holiday season. That's why you need to go to NavyFederal.org and check out everything that they have going on. I have been a member since 1996, and I could not be more pleased with how all of that has gone. Partner up with Navy Federal Credit Union to pay down credit card debt. You could get into low APR on balance transfers with their Platinum credit card. It's their lowest rate card, and it's a great tool to pay down debt. Navy Federal can even help get you started on your next home improvement project. They offer home equity line of credit with convenient access to funds when you need them at a variable rate. You can also get a fixed rate equity loan that has set monthly payments for large purchases. Consolidating debt with a home equity loan could also streamline and lower your monthly payments. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, where their members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Loans subject to approval, call one 888 842-6328 for details about credit card costs and terms. H-E-L-O-C-A-P-R as low as 6.5% as of November 23rd, 2022. Black Rifle Coffee Company, the coffee that I drink every single day and powers me through my novels. Black Rifle Coffee Company set out on a mission to make the best cup of coffee that's ever hit your mug. The dream was to sell enough premium coffee to be able to build a support network for veterans, first responders, and law enforcement. Thanks to your support, all that dream has become a reality. Black Rifle Coffee is roasted by a veteran-led team of brilliant coffee graders here in the United States who work tirelessly to roast and bag the highest quality coffee right here in America. The coffee is truly one of a kind, but it's your support that gets gear, funding, and supplies into the hands of those on our front lines. This year alone, your support has helped Black Rifle Coffee Company expand our team of active duty service members, veterans, and veteran family members. Black Rifle was also able to donate over 120,000 bags of coffee to veterans and first responders in 2022. All thanks to you. Purchase at blackriflecoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. That's blackriflecoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20. You can also find Black Rifle Coffee in grocery and convenience stores near you. Black Rifle Coffee, America's coffee. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast 
possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they are always pushing, pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush so thank you so much for that friendship and support uh it will never be forgotten welcome to the gear highlight portion of the danger close podcast first off Hoyt has a new bow here it is called the cobalt and it is for youth archers so for kids so they were kind enough to send this up for my littlest who is 12 and Caleb Brewer out at Stick Sniper Archery in Tucson built this up for me. So Hoyt, thank you so much. Thank you, Caleb, also. Can't wait to have you on the podcast, my friend. And uh, yeah, this thing, awesome. So thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Bam. Check out Hoyt. All right. What else? Hidden War. Bam. John Norris, been on the podcast before. This is a second edition of his book called Hidden War right here, former game warden out in California. And he asked me to write the foreword. So I did. And uh, check this out. Second edition right here. And Dom Rosso, also been on the podcast before, out at Dynamis Alliance. And he sent me this. If you've uh, read the books or have followed me for a while, you know that the Combat Flathead is one of my favorites. Look at that right there. And this is a new version right here. has a coating on it so it does not rust and then I don't know if you're gonna be able to see that or not, but Dom put the cross tomahawks on there for me. So awesome. Dom, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate everything. Go to Dynamis Alliance, and I think it's at crusheverything.com now. But if you type in Dynamis Alliance, that'll pop up as well. Check out these combat flatheads, the blades, all the gear out there. And look at this, inspected by Dom himself. So very cool. And Dynamis sticker right there crush everything oh yeah honor very cool so dom thanks buddy all right let's see oh it's a new sheath on that too for those that are paying attention and what is this fieldcraft water everyday water rocky mountain source fieldcraft survival veteran owned Whew. look at that right there that is a cool can well done mike awesome and black rifle coffee not only do they have coffee but they have a sticker club. Are you a member of the sticker club? Look at that. Every month, different stickers. Look at that right there. And of course, the exclusive coffee subscription club. So this one right here, I love this because it tells you the different ways you can make it. So Chemex right here. So it has a bunch of different ways. Cold brew gives you some directions right there. Oh yeah. Look at that artwork right there. Oh, laissez-faire is this your work right here. The Teddy Roosevelt. I see what you did there, Black Rifle Coffee. Well done. Awesome. And what else? Here we go. 
Protect right here. So they are a supplement company, and my buddy Nick Norris is uh, over there. Uh, we work together in the SEAL teams and love this stuff, the hydration stuff right here and the energy. This stuff is fueling me through book number six and starting book number seven and starting a couple other projects that'll be announced soon. So Nick and everybody at Protect, thank you so much. Awesome. All right, that is it for today. Take care out there. You know there are different grades of fuel for your vehicle, but did you know there's different grades of fuel for your mind? When your mind gets low quality fuel, it gets easily distracted, fatigues quickly, and leaves you swamped in brain fog. But when it gets high quality fuel that's packed with the electrolytes it needs to operate at optimal levels, your brain cells fire more quickly and efficiently, which keeps you focused, energized, and ready for anything. That's why Navy SEAL veteran Nick Norris created Protect Hydration. It's an electrolyte supplement that contains the optimal ratio of electrolytes your mind needs without any of the sugar, artificial sweeteners, or other junk it doesn't. And people love it so much, it sold out three times in 2022. They just got some back in stock right now. Danger Close listeners can get 25% off. Visit Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T dot com slash Danger Close and start giving your mind higher quality fuel today. Once again, visit Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T dot com slash Danger Close for 25% off. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this spring and is available for pre-order now. To find out more about Kevin Owens, check him out on Instagram at kevin.p.owens and go to YouTube. Type in Kevin Owens and check out his YouTube channel. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there. Until the next time, Take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.